G'day, mate. Forty here. I was reading a book review by one of my favorite academics, Stephen Turner. He's a philosopher of the social sciences, and there's just a killer opening sentence, which I think is important and will illustrate the show for today. So he writes: Works from Harvard in political theory have a special sociological interest because they come from a center of power and indicate. The probable rationale for where the elite are next taking the government. So it's not just where the elite are next just taking the government, but when they take the government, they are going to influence our lives through schools, right, through public discourse, through laws, through incentives. And、uh, Stephen Turner notes the last 50 years have been dominated by John Rawls. And his philosophy of redistribution. So it used to be that American politics was primarily about distributing economic resources, like who gets what. And the dominant preoccupation of the Democratic Party was shifting resources from the most affluent to the most needy. So now have a new book by a Harvard classicist, Danielle Allen, and she is in the running to be Harvard's next president. So if the next president isn't Barack Obama. I'll very likely be Danielle Allen, and she's proposed a radical new revision to these theories of John Rawls, and it retains the basic animus of Rawlsianism, which is that justice is fundamentally about equality, right? But now she transforms the concerns about equality onto new realms. So this is a work that's on diversity, meaning racial difference should be taken into account, and we should celebrate difference without. Domination, right? Title of her co-edited collection、uh, release from Harvard, right? Domination without difference, without domination, right? So there's a move here among our dominant elite at Harvard University and other centers of academic influence, right? To move from the traditional liberal notion of freedom as non-interference by the state, meaning negative freedom, now with the idea of domination. Means the state will increasingly be in our lives. All right, we're going to move away from limiting the state to more government intrusion to create more and more equality. And there are just infinite number of realms to which one can bring about equality. Right. So now, state intervention, in her worldview, has absolutely no limits. You have、uh, some forms of power which rest upon you know, absolute rights of a negative kind, right, such as cruelty. All right. But it opens the door for positive interventions for the good of the recipient. All right, for the good of us, however much we don't want it. So, the majority may want all sorts of things that the minority regards as unjust and oppressive. For example, the majority of American citizens want strong law enforcement and strong punishment for people who commit violent crime. But there is a Minority in this country who regards that as unjust and oppressive, right? And so, where is the room for minority expression when the majority is overwhelmingly against them? And so, modern racial inequality relies upon the free market and informal racial bias to recreate, recreate and worsen structured racial inequality. All right, that's the elite perspective. So, we currently have laissez-faire racism. Right, we have these hierarchies of domination, which unjustly restrict opportunity, power, and influence for people of color. Right, and so John Rawls's notions of justice about preserving negative freedoms, 
and prioritizing economic redistribution do not touch and indeed can exacerbate racial injustice. So Danielle Allen wants something different. Right, she wants more government intervention to ever increase equality. So just as you can uh, basically sum up the works of Leo Strauss, in he wanted to create a, a world that was user-friendly for Jews. Right? You can basically sum up all of Leo Strauss's thought in creating a world that's user-friendly for Jews. And so too with Danielle Allen, you can basically encapsulate all of her thought to want to create a world that is user-friendly for people of color, for oppressed minorities, for, for people like herself. And she's incredibly influential. She almost ran for governor in the state of Massachusetts. She runs various influential committees. So she's not just some ivory tower academic. So she knows that democracy requires loss. People vote, and then they must sacrifice to the majority, which frequently disempowers them. And so as an African-American, she feels like the majority of Americans frequently disempowered her people. And so that's the place from which she's coming with her political theories. So she says we need rituals to manage the psychological tension that arises from being powerless, right? And so we need rituals that will address this emotional sacrifice, right? And so people, the losers, should be honored as such, and their grievances should be open to redress, and this can only happen if there is a basis in friendship in which we are not strangers, but we are vulnerable to one another. Now, many Americans would not want to be vulnerable to African Americans, particularly, I think, among Asian Americans and Latino Americans, even more than white Americans. There's a great fear about being vulnerable to African Americans. You may remember the L.A. riots and various Korean businesses coming under attack and rooftop Koreans defending their businesses with, with guns against a rampaging uh, black and Latino mob. That's kind of an encapsulation of fears of many Asian Americans and uh, Latino Americans, and they do not want to become you know, vulnerable to African Americans. But Danielle Allen has a political philosophy about how we need to become vulnerable to one another, whether you want to or not. And when we're different, right, that estranges us, and that allows us to, as much as possible, try to avoid our mutual vulnerability, which is necessary for friendship and trust, so we need new habits for dealing with one another despite our differences. And she says friendship answers this need. And she essentially wants government-enforced friendship between American citizens. Right? Friendship means establishing equality of material benefit, recognition, and agency. So who rules in this new order? You'll be shocked and surprised to learn that people like her will rule in this new order. Right? She talks about egalitarianism and being inclusive and participatory and self-transformative political liberty, but she recognizes that her platform of vulnerability will not appeal to everyone. And the creation of political friendship and the bridging of ties between groups that have radically different interests right, will not come naturally. So what she's really describing is a form of rule in which people like her, the justice-enlightened, multitasking people with good connections across groups, right, like Danielle Allen, will increasingly use to steer us. They're going to run the, the rest of us. They're going to maneuver us and force us to have uh, friendships with people that we would otherwise not want to be friends with. So this is what's coming out of Harvard. This is what's coming out of our elites. This is what's going to be coming our way in, in our government. And uh, do you really want to be steered? Do you really want to lose so many freedoms?
I've been talking a lot the last uh, week about uh, Pareto and Carl Friedrich. So Vilfredo Pareto was enormously influential at Harvard in the 1930s. Pareto was an, an Italian theorist on the elites and on power. Then Carl Friedrich was a German Protestant who moved to the United States in, in the 1920s. And what's interesting about much of elite rhetoric in general, and Carl Friedrich's rhetoric in particular, and Daniel Allen's rhetoric in particular, is that there are simultaneously esoteric and exoteric messages. Right? So the esoteric means the hidden message. So when you hear in the media and among elites concerns about our democracy, it's not really about majority rule that they're concerned about. It's about maintaining control of the institutions that uh, run, run America. So it's not really democracy that they're primarily concerned about. Use the language of democracy. All right, That's the exoteric message. So exoteric means blatant, obvious, public. Esoteric means hidden. And what you get with, with rhetorics, with, with the rhetoric of so many of our elites, is both an esoteric and an exoteric message. Uh, let me play a little bit here from Richard Spencer's space yesterday. Questions of you know the status of things like Charlottesville or J6 and other related matters. And uh, it, it might even lead to kind of personal questions uh, about people who I've been talking a little bit about here and there, and some, some other people in this room have been discussing. Uh, I think someone like Frame Game might come up. And um, I will let, we already have 100 people, that's excellent. And um, I will let some of my special guests come in right away. Uh, but let, let me just talk, just to get the conversation started a little bit, let me just talk about some of these issues. So for the alt-right, and that would include a little bit. Let me just reactionaries, about white nationalists, uh, neo-Nazis, incel advocates, all sorts of different people. Anonymity is the name of the game. It's, it, it is their MO. And I think they do that understand, for understandable reasons. It's also the MO for a kind of parallel group or, or, or kind of mirror image or dark, <laughs> dark shadow of something like the alt-right, which is Antifa. That's the other well-known group of so-called extremists who also engage in anonymity as their modus operandi. Uh, they, of course, are, you know, they have an online presence, of course, but they're much more engaged in real-world action than the alt-right. But there is something similar when you see, say, a Patriot Front march uh, with mask, and they're not doing it for COVID, and, say, an Antifa present, um, a protest also in mask. Um, it is interesting. I think these pe both of these groups are kind of outside of the mainstream, even outside of society, you could say. Uh, but then two groups that actually have had a tremendous impact on society and are, and are in fact, uh, household terms. So we all know the reason why someone would be anonymous. And, and so this is kind of a, a charitable reading of the situation, but, but also a, a very realistic reading of it as well. So when the alt-right began in, or it was coming on, you know, coming into public awareness in 2016, there would be a lot of mainstream news articles about me. Um, I have always used my own name and face and voice. Uh, I actually have written under a pseudonym on... Okay, let me fast forward through the self-promotion and self-justification. People who were on 4chan, on Twitter, using avatars, um, on, on other websites, you didn't really know who they were. And I think that could inspire some good things. I can, it can inspire some bad things, the good things. So it does protect you from being doxxed and facing any consequences. So after Charlottesville, there, there were absolutely examples of people who went to Charlottesville and might very well have gone there under the best motives. They cared about the statue. They wanted to take part in this whole thing. They were Trump fans or what have you. 
And they just marched. They held up a sign. They participated in some way. And they get ID'd and fired from their job. Okay, so I was provoked to this stream by listening to Ricardo call in to Richard Spencer's stream and uh, Duvid appearing. But there was one comment made by Ricardo that inspired my stream. And he talked about how he was feeling demoralized. And so my, my critique here is not of Ricardo in particular. I'm critiquing that sentiment, which is so widespread among many people who were once heavily involved in politics and then politics did not go their way. And so they, they left politics. So if you are feeling demoralized and you say it's ostensibly because of the direction of American politics, it has nothing to do with American politics, right? You're feeling demoralized for eternal reasons, right? If you get out of touch with reality, right? Reality bites back. It humiliates you. It slaps you around. There is no rational self-interested reason to pay attention to national politics unless you enjoy it. But if you have an exaggerated sense of your own prognostication abilities, if you have an exaggerated sense of your own ability to change things in politics, if you have an exaggerated sense of how much uh, politics can change America, then you're going to feel demoralized, right? So I have my weaknesses, right? I can lose touch with reality through through experiencing adulation, all right? I had, had a young woman who adulated me over the past few weeks and I just completely lost my head. So the attention of pretty young women, uh, attention in general, uh, anything that uh, feels like adulation, all right, very easy for me to um, lose, lose touch with reality. And Ricardo says, by demoralization, I don't mean feeling depressed or hopeless. I mean that I can't discern the truth of what's happening in public. And that's exactly what I talk, want to talk about. When you're clear, when you're in reality, when you are honest with yourself, right, you will be able to discern what's going on in, in, with other people, right? And either if what they say makes sense or if it doesn't make sense, you'll recognize that they're either lying, self-deceived, or trying to manipulate you. It just becomes really clear, right? There's no inherent rational uh, basis that we should be concerned about uh, Mike Benz, Frame Game Radio, Richard Spencer, Nick Fuentes, Luke Ford, right? None of us have great significance for, for America. The only reason you should be concerned with anything we say is because it interests you. And then if you develop an exaggerated interest in these personalities or things that they say or do or in the wider body politic, and then you develop an exaggerated sense of your own abilities to uh, discern political trends, then you're going to feel let down and demoralized and think, oh, you know, I can't understand America. Well, of course you can't understand America, right? The world outside of us is an incredibly complicated place. There is no way you can fully understand it. There are just way too many variables. You'll only get demoralized if you have an exaggerated sense of your own ability to make sense of that which is way beyond our ability to make sense. We can kind of discern some, some general patterns, but when we do so, we have to be incredibly humble because there's just you know, so much diversity, unreliability, so many things going on in, in America, just America, let alone the world, that we will never understand. So we're only going to feel demoralized at our own ability to discern the truth if we have an exaggerated sense of our ability to discern what is true and what is false in matters far beyond our ken, where we can't, we simply cannot understand 
right, everything that's, that's going on in American politics or any part of American national policy. There's just way too many variables. And a policy that may seem great to us one moment, situation changes. There may be all sorts of circumstances that are completely outside of our understanding. And the policy that we thought was great would turn out to be disaster, right? Uh, I didn't support the invasion of Iraq in 2003, but I, I really hoped that it would be a success. I, I really hoped for, for, the, for the best. I was buoyed up and excited by many of the, the positive developments in the first few weeks of, of the war. And, and then it just turned into an absolute disaster. I voted for, for George W. Bush twice, and I think he was one of the, the worst presidents in American history because there are just way too many variables. So if I'm honest with myself, right, how, how vulnerable I am to uh, the attention of pretty young women, how vulnerable I am to attention in general, how vulnerable I am to uh, adulation, all right, if I have that, that keen sense of, of my vulnerabilities and how easily I want to fly away from reality and enter the world of daydreaming. And there's adaptive daydreaming and there's maladaptive daydreaming. Like we all have a soul, we all have a spirit, and we all soar off into dreams that have absolutely nothing to do with reality. Right? For some of us, it might be playing for the San Francisco 49ers. I occasionally have daydreams where I'm covering the San Francisco 49ers at uh, Sierra Community College, which is where they trained in the summers during the 1980s when I worked at uh, K-High, K-Hill Radio. And I go down to Sierra Community College and I'd cover their, their training camps. And occasionally I've had dreams where Bill Walsh calls me into the scrimmage and says, you know, I want you to carry the ball, and I carry the ball into the end zone. Uh, for some reason, in my dream, I'm a, I'm a m member of the San Francisco 49ers whose uh, athletic ability was finally seen by Bill Walsh. All right, that's a dream that's completely removed from reality, and having that as a dream, right, there's nothing inherently maladaptive about it. But if I spend hours of my, you know, waking time fantasizing that I'm going to play in the National Football League. Obviously, that's maladaptive. So what's the difference between adaptive and maladaptive is if it starts taking a toll on your relationships. So if I don't pay attention to my work, right, if I don't pay attention to my obligations to other people, if I don't take, pay attention to preparing my taxes, if I don't pay attention to doing the things that I need to do because I'm lost in these daydreams, then obviously that's, that's become uh, maladaptive. So we all have a soul. We all have spirit. We all have fantasies and, and daydreams. And to a certain extent, these daydreams are adaptive and healthy and a wonderful release. But if we spend too much time in this fantasy world, it becomes uh, maladaptive. And so the only rational reason to closely follow politics is because you enjoy it, because it's, it's fascinating and fun to you. But if you develop an exaggerated sense of your own capacity to understand what's going on, all right, you're going to get demoralized because... There's just way, way too much out there for us to get a handle on. We'll never get a handle on the big, buzzing, confusing world around us. We will have, we, we may develop heuristics, right? Rough approximations of reality that, that work better than other heuristics, but that's about the best we can hope for. So this is from Richard Spencer's space last On time. existing friction points in society, like simmering resentments. Yeah. And, and that runs across the political spectrum. It's like, um, that force is just out there. I mean, that is social media. That is the internet age. And who, he who controls the levers of the algorithm control like what's promoted and, and what images are put in people's heads and things. And I think like the alt-right, you know, I don't really know what the origin, uh, like was that grassroots that got harnessed? I think, I think people like, um, 
I think people like Frank Games and that group, national conservatism, you know, all this sort of, you know, Zio, like sort of the kosher right, you know, mm-hmm. have, they would like to take the, that pre-existing energy, harness it for their own ends. And, but you know, like, I think that's the name of the game now. You know what I mean? That's. Everybody tries to harness what's going on for, for their own ends. All right. That's all living things try to create the optimal environment around them by which they can thrive, right? Eucalyptus trees, right? They emit certain compounds that destroy other plant life around them, right? So that they can outcompete other other plants for for water and other natural resources. So it's not just something that uh, Zionists do. What one has to do, I mean, if you're Lenin or something, if you're you're a revolutionary, an activist, you're you're constantly trying to ride a wave. Um, Yes. Yeah, and I, I just mean, think I, like I become the problem. I mean, I, I don't know. I kind of look at this whole thing as I become so cynical that and demoralized, really, in that like I really have no idea like who's real and who's fake. And you, you. Okay, the only reason you'd become demoralized by something like this is if you had an exaggerated sense of your own ability to read things that are going to be way beyond your ken or, or my ken. Right? I can at best, you know, perhaps detect or discern, you know, glimmerings, outlines. Uh, shapes uh, on on a, of shadows that are bouncing around on a wall, right? The idea that we can discern clearly what what's going on in a big, complicated country like the United States of America, where there, there are going to be so many variables that we haven't even considered, right? That's a delusion, right? The the only reason we should even be engaged in this project is if we enjoy it, and then we'll be fine as long as we stay in the reality that the outside big buzzing confusing world is far more complicated than we'll ever possibly grasp and at best we can develop some approximates for you know what what's going on at best we can kind of detect the the shadows dancing on the wall you get convincing arguments from both sides and i'm i'm sure i'm not the only person who feels like totally adrift and i think all societies adrift and i think there's like this there's an ideological storm where these, all, all these ideolo- ideological movements are bubbling up and, and basically in search of leaders to take advantage of them. And uh, I think it's not that different than, you know, all the changes that were going on about 100 years ago. Yeah, some people feel broken, right? Some people feel unhappy. <laughs> some people feel lost. Some people feel dissatisfied. And there are people like me, perhaps, or Dennis Prager or Jordan Peterson or Richard Spencer come along and offer a vision of the world. There are people like me who come along and offer a blanket, a quilt of meaning to lay over reality, to lay over the world, to lay over national politics. And it makes us feel good. It makes us feel whole. It makes us feel alive. It makes us feel excited and connected to a project greater than us. I mean, when I was bedridden for six years with uh, chronic (laughs) fatigue syndrome, all right, and I was desperate. I couldn't really accomplish anything. That uh, Dennis Prager enlisted me in this universal battle for good against evil, right? That gave me the strength and power to, to carry on. All right. So if you hurt, if like your life isn't working, you're going to be particularly susceptible to gurus who come along and promise to lay a qu- quilt of meaning o- over your world and help you. Everything suddenly falls into place. Everything starts to make sense. You suddenly have a reason and a purpose for life. You suddenly have energy. You have things to fight for. You have things to achieve. You you suddenly see who the good guys are and the bad guys are. All right. But what type of person is so 
needy for a guru? What type of person is so needy for someone to lay a quilt of, of meaning over American national politics so that you impute far more meaning into politics than is really there? Right? American politics, in the words of Tom Wolfe, is like a freight train going down a track. And people to the right of the track will have complaints, and people to the left of the track will have complaints, but it won't really change the freight train. It's just going down down the track. And 99% of the time, right, it's not going to matter to your real life, whether it's Barack Obama, George W. Bush, uh, Donald Trump, or Joe Biden, who's president of the United States. But if that reality is too humdrum and boring, you need something more exciting to transport you out of the reality of the frustrations of your quotidian existence, then you're going to turn to someone who makes an offer of, I will, I will share with you what's really going on, right? I will, I will give you the secrets of, of what's really driving the national conversation, right? I will help you discern what, what's right and what's wrong, which is really what Ricardo here is alluding to. And he's saying, ah, you know, I get frustrated because I, Essentially, he's not stating this, but I get frustrated because, you know, one time I think, you know, this person is really opening my eyes to what's going on. And then it turns out that what they said is flawed. And so another commentator comes along and I feel like, oh, this person, he really gets what, what's going on. But then that person turns out to be flawed. But it all comes from the same needy place of needing someone to come along and lay a quilt of meaning over the world around me to enlist me essentially in some kind of war to give my life you know greater significance than than it has in my, my daily tasks and responsibilities like someone right i'm not married I, I don't have kids but i have a moderate amount of responsibilities i have various volunteer organizations that i contribute to i play an important role in in some individuals lives but if that's not enough for me right i'm gonna be incredibly excited by someone coming along and saying look there's a war going on for the soul of America, for the future of America. America is in peril and America needs you, 40. Right? And I want you to join the, the Prager Force today so that we can take back this country. Right? If I'm lacking in my life, if I need to believe in things that aren't there because the quotidian reality of my daily life is just too depressing for me, then I'm going to be vulnerable to all these smooth talkers who come along. So what Ricardo's, people like Ricardo, I don't want to pick on my friend Ricardo, what people like Ricardo are really saying is the quotidian nature of my reality is not enough for me. It's leaving me frustrated, incredibly frustrated and lacking. I just, there's something that's not really working in my life. I need more. I need something grander. I need something more exciting. I need something transcendent. I need something to transport me out of the mundane nature of my reality. And here comes a Richard Spencer, a Nick Fuentes, a Luke Ford, a Jordan Peterson, a Donald Trump, uh, this preacher, this priest, this, this rabbi. Right? They offer a recipe for meaning and purpose, which brings with it excitement and clarity and strength. Right? And, and then these, these gurus who come along, they disappoint me. And that leaves me in the final analysis feeling demoralized because I can't really detect, you know, which guru is telling me the truth. Um, And let me pick up on two things that you said. Um, First off, the, you know, the best opposition is the one you control. So there was a moment when the conservative movement was caught totally flat footed. We control very little. 
<laughs> and that's true for presidents of the United States. Right? You see people like Donald Trump become president of the United States, and they're able to shift the, the nation not very much. Right? It really took him three and a half years before he was able to make substantial progress with immigration, which was his n number one campaign theme. So presidents of the United States are frustrated by how little they control. They achieve the position of the most powerful person in the world, and they're frustrated by how little they control. Someone becomes president of CBS News or becomes the CEO of a company, and they become frustrated by how little they control. Someone takes over a department, and they become frustrated by how little they control. So you know who really controls things? The situation. And the situation is frequently changing. So there's a New York Times article here I'm looking at, how college-educated Republicans learn to love Trump again. So why did college-educated Republicans learn to love Trump again? Did, did Trump, Trump change? No. This surge towards the former president, says the New York Times, appears to stem largely from a reaction to the current political climate rather than a sudden clamoring to join MAGA, right? The situation changed, right? All these indictments came out against Donald Trump and college-educated Republicans thought, ah, the Democrats are abusing the justice system and Donald Trump is their enemy and I, I want to stand up against this abuse of Democratic judicial overreach and so they're finding their way back to Trump again, right? Trump didn't change, the situation changed. Right? And when the situation around us changes, right, we're going to see the world in completely different terms. By the then alt-right. And I remember there's an interview with Paul Ryan, and he said at some point, he was like, these uh, alternative conservatives, or uh, however they're calling themselves, uh, they're a bunch of liberals, and we don't like them. You know? And they, they were just caught unaware, basically, of, of the impact of, of social media, I guess, in general, but yeah. also of a kind of young, edgy, crazy, in a good way, right-wing energy that was behind Trump. And this was compounded by the fact that they were all in opposition to Trump, and yet Trump was winning. So it was, it was kind of like the Ron Paul movement, but, but much worse. Like, Ron Paul had a crazy online army back in 2007, even. So this, this in a way, isn't new at all. And they would raise money, they would bomb the, uh, I mean, not literally bomb, but uh, go, <laughs> go bomb the, uh, uh, the, the debate polls. And so it'd be like, who won the debate? And it'd be like, Ron Paul, 85%, because basically all the olds... Uh, we're not online to vote for, you know, Mitt Romney or something. All the youngs were online. They were spamming, uh, you know, the Fox News uh, poll. And it was crazy. It was, and I, you know, I was even a part of that to some degree. Uh, but they were caught unaware of, of the power of this kind of thing. But then, they, you know, the best opposition is the one you control. So one thing that I have noticed among the mainstream right is that it is basically the alt-right with just a few things removed or toned yes. down. Yes. Okay, well. All right. I mean, it sounds incredibly profound. It's like an exciting thing to hear. Wow. The modern Republican Party is essentially just the alt-right with a few things toned down. It's not. It, it is as different from the alt-right as it was in, in 2016. But it's an exciting thing to say. So Richard is great at saying things that are exciting to hear, but completely removed from reality. Because Richard is not optimizing for telling the truth to the best of his ability. He is optimizing what he says towards capturing attention. And that comes with tapping into, you know, people's primal emotions. Like no, TV think, USA is like the alt-right, basically. Yeah, no, I, like, I think the things yeah. they were... The idea that Turning Point USA is the alt-right is absurd. It has absolutely nothing to do with reality, right? It is just absolute nonsense, but it sounds profound. 
So that's what gurus do. That's their stock in trade. Pseudo profound BS. We're being discussed in 2015, 2016, 2017 that it's all it's all one out on the right. It's, I mean, at least the alt light, at least we would say, I think, yes. has, you know, I mean, plus a little bit more of a hard edge when it comes to like dealing with criminal groups. You know what I mean? Yeah. But um, I don't know. You know, that was the thing about the anti-Semitism thing when it came to frame games, like how people go. And I know there's people that are, you know, after Mike Benz or digging into them. They, they really can't understand that. I think Frame Games, a.k.a. Mike Bent, is pretty much who he said he was in 2017, 2018, and who he is today. He is someone who resents the liberal left stranglehold of most of our institutions. He resents the liberal left stranglehold on public discourse. And in reaction to the lies promoted by the liberal left stranglehold on public discourse, he went too far in the dissident direction in 2017, 2018, I'm sure he now regrets it and he's reframing it as, as uh, some master psyop by a group of Jews. I'd never had any sense that there was any kind of group with what uh, Frame Game Radio was doing. It was very clearly a one-man operation. He was reacting, like, like many of us, against a, a dominant discourse that was frequently removed from reality. And he went too far, I'm sure he now believes, in the dissident direction that was pushing back on against the, the mainstream discourse. But there is a through line to everything that he's done publicly. He resents the liberal left stranglehold of our major institutions. So he was pushing for more free speech. He was pushing against social media censorship back in 2017, 2018. He was pushing against diversity, equity, inclusion programs. Right? He was pushing against requirements in professional organizations that restricted its members' freedom of speech and committed these groups to diversity, equity, inclusion. He was opposed to that in 2017, 2018, he's opposed to that now in 2023. So I see a consistent through line. He is formidably smart. He is incredibly well-connected. Uh, he, he's very talented. He's hardworking. And he attracted a huge following under Frame Game Radio. And he's attracting a huge following now because he's tapping into something that millions of people are feeling visceral, that they are being strangled by the, the liberal left domination of our institutions and of our discourse. The, how an Israeli, how a Jew might benefit from promoting anti-Semitism. You know what I mean? And it's like, and it kind of like draws So I think Mike Benz was reacting against woke back in 2017 and 2018. I think the easiest way to define woke is that there are certain sacred groups that you cannot criticize publicly. And Mike Benz, like myself, believes that every group is made better through the application of accurate criticism. I am improved by accurate criticism. Jews are improved by accurate criticism. Blacks are improved by accurate criticism. Every group is improved through accurate criticism. Okay, well, Don, Mark, because, because, because Frame Games was pretty brutal, and he was like very, you know, you guys need to deal with this. You know what yeah. I mean? It was very like, that was his whole thing. And I will say, um, you know, du Duvid posted in the, co in the comments of this that he reminds me that, you know, the thing that Frame Game was really like came to speak to you on the stream that we did together mm -hmm. it was like really about his, his whole program was promoting Saul Alinsky type tactics, right? Like basically minority mindset. He wanted white yeah. people to like play the minority game. Well, he wanted people to be effective, right? He, he noted that most people who purport to be organizing in a political direction are primarily just acting out their own need to feel important and to feel like they are doing something. But he was saying, hey, you know, good feelings, that's fine. But what's more important are good actions, right? Having a real effect on the world around you. 
And a lot of things that feel good don't actually do good. And it's a profound point, right? Many things that feel triumphant, that, that feel like you're winning against the libs, right, are actually having a negative effect. And so there's all the world of difference between that which feels good and that which does good. And Mike Benz was talking about how, how the world works, and he was a clued-in guy. He was a corporate lawyer. He was Ivy League educated. He knows important, influential, smart people. And uh, he was giving a lot of you know, good, solid information about how the world works. So one way that people get demoralized is by getting out of touch with reality. So here's a man set out to build the world's greatest stereo, and in the process, he destroyed his own family. So if you are pursuing your politics or your religion or your, your guru or the, the particular quilt of, of meaning which you have chosen to lay over the world and it's causing you to destroy the most important relationships in your life, right? you're going to end up feeling demoralized and end up a lot like uh, this nice bloke. thing about music is regardless of the mood a person is in, there is always some music to complement that mood and sit you down and let you think that's gorgeous. I'm glad I put this on because now I feel better than I did before. Right. If you run into a brick wall in your pursuit of, of politics, ideas, religion, over and against your own best interest, you're going to end up, you know, isolated and alienated from the people most important to you, like this My guy. Pleasure. And he devoted everything to building the world's greatest stereo, and he alienated his family in the process. And so he ended up a very lonely, sad man. I mean, is that really what you you want? You want to follow your your politics, your your religion, your particular set of, of meaning? I fulfilled my, my dreams. dreams. The thought of what it would take to reproduce music perfectly. I it would take to but reproduce uh, music he lost his health as perfectly. And he wasn't able to enjoy it. To hear. But he set out to create the world's greatest stereo, right? He completed the project in 2016, and in the process, he destroyed his relations with his family, right? The project cost around $1 million, but the greatest cost I saw the room was about to his 35 family. years ago. And at that time, I had a business that I... Right, we all know people like this, right? They seize on one good thing in life, building a great stereo system or pursuing a certain type of politics or a certain type of religion, but they pursue it without relationship to the other good things in life without a sense of proportion right our, our values should be a constellation we should be weighing up our, our individual freedom versus our need to belong to tribe and, and community right it's not like there's one good value there's one good thing in life that we should pursue without regard to its consequences i had just begun and i could not work on the room full time i did all of constructing myself. I knew how big it would be, but the accoutrements, the details, the lighting, the soundproofing, that all had to be figured out. There's just so many uh, things that we've done to this room to improve it, and some of the stuff is 
pretty impressive spiral staircase, making all the panels, all the trim. As far as the equipment, I designed and built all the loudspeakers. Nothing good happens fast. Right, you know people, right, who have pursued one thing to total destruction, like chasing your white whale, right? This perfect stereo is his white whale, and he, he pursued it to his destruction, just like the protagonist in the novel Moby Dick, right? If you seize on one thing and you pursue it to all others, right, you're very likely to destroy your life in the process, destroy your most important relationships. Right, back to Ricardo and Richard. And that's kind of like, you know, you think this is your route to winning, like you're losing by even playing it this way. Like you're admitting defeat. Like you're just joining the mat. Like you're just one of many instead of the cultural center of gravity. Right. And, you know, I... I don't even think that's a good strategy, to be honest. I, I don't... Absolutely not. No, no, agree. Yeah. And I think this is what I'm saying. Is that it was like, it's self-defeating in that you're just sort of, you know, frankly, it's like, who are you putting in as the arbiter of, uh, the arbiter between all the races? You know, like who's positioned for that, you know? Yeah. But, um... Well, Danielle Allen wants to put herself in the position as uh, arbiter between all the races, right? That's that's the elite project to have more and more government intervention to pursue the endless pursuit of equality in in all areas of life, and so forcing us to become vulnerable to you know other people that we want absolutely nothing to do with, and who's going to steer us in that direction? Right, the elite, and. Harvard is about our most elite academic institution. I don't know. I think, I think when it comes to this censorship stuff, you know, our conversation earlier really got me thinking about, you know, what it means free speech in America is like, I mean, I can't really fathom. I, I think it is sacrosanct. I don't know if that's like my Anglo heritage or not, <laughs> but um, I, I do think that there, it is a problem in that there is a, the, the ability for foreigners to act upon our political system and there being no means of, of, of stemming that tide. You know, it, it kind of reminds me of like after September 11th. The... That's, that's not a, a killer problem, right? We did not evolve to be gullible, right? The, the, the mainstream media, almost all our institutions, our dominant elite have been liberal left for decades. And yet approximately half the country still votes Republican, right? People did not evolve to be gullible. Uh, foreigners operating bots and using AI is not going to take over our minds, the, the, the people who are AI doomers, and Richard later on in this Twitter space says that he, he's an AI doomer, right? The same people have been doomers for all sorts of other reasons, right? If you feel doomed, it has nothing to do with AI or foreign bots or, or foreign influence uh, on the United States, right? That's not what's uh, dooming you, right? You have some kind of psychological need to feel doomed because... It lets you out of certain responsibilities. It uh, allows you to stay in a space that's unrelated to reality, right? If you feel doomed about AI, I'm sure there are a dozen things prior to AI that uh, had you feeling doomed, right? Feeling doomed is meeting some psychological need in you. There's no inherent reason why Russian bots, right, should make you feel doomed. There's no inherent reason why you know foreign interference in American elections or in American media should make you feel doomed, right? No one is going to turn you from a right winger to a left winger just by the force of some you know foreign influence operation, because we did not evolve to be gullible. If we evolved to be this gullible, we wouldn't still be here, right? We evolved to survive, 
and we evolved to have really good ways of detecting when other people are pushing us in a direction that we do not want to go. Right? We will instinctively revolt against people pushing us in a direction that we don't want to go. So we don't have to feel doomed because uh, foreigners play a substantial role in our discourse. Appropriate response to me would have been deportations, you know, strictly monitoring mosques, uh, restricting immigration with these with these countries, okay, because of the risks. Mm -hmm. Instead, we've had more immigrants from these countries after September 11th than before, and that got reached not that late soon, or not that long afterwards. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's just mind blowing. Like that's the response that that's how you deal with, um, you know, these kinds of problems. Yeah. Well, let me let me take it in just a little bit of a slightly different direction, and then I'll then I'll go to Ace and Jeff who have their hands up. But uh, one thing that I noticed to focus on Frame Game or Mike Ben's particular, um, I had forgotten all about Frame Game. And he, I was a bit suspicious of him when he came in because he did strike me as a kind of multi-level marketer, you know, I'm one of you guys type thing. And I wasn't really that enthused by it. Um, I did watch some of his videos. A lot of those videos were recommended to me. I, it, he was Right, your primary source of meaning in life should come from your family. And then if, if you don't have a family or just have a small family, you got room left over after your family, then your meaning in life should come from your career or your friends, your community, your interests, your volunteering opportunities and your and your hobbies right all the meaning that you need in life is right there right if uh, foreigners buy important parts of american real estate or buy important parts of american news media that should not affect your happiness level right it's not going to destroy your life it's not going to demoralize you it was clearly making an impact people would dm me or text me like oh this is so amazing he's bloated open you know and um I wasn't that impressed, but, but maybe, you know, that's just my own kind of ego or whatever. But um, when I've seen... Yes, that, that was your ego. Richard is not impressed by anyone else who competes with him for attention. Mike Benz afterward, and I, I have watched um, a dozen or so videos of him do, talking about censorship. I've noticed this consistent theme, and that is to poo-poo notions of Russian collusion or foreign actors. And focus in on it's the government and these. Well, that's a reaction to the mainstream media, essentially, either explicitly or implicitly, either esoterically or exoterically, esoteric meaning hidden, exoteric meaning blatant and obvious, saying that Russia hacked the 2016 election and that Russia was responsible for the election of Donald Trump. Now, there's absolutely no evidence that Russia was responsible for the election of Donald Trump. Uh, Russian interference does disrupt American society a little bit, but it wasn't the consequential factor in the election of Donald Trump. So those who poo-poo Russian influence are doing it against the overwhelming media message for the first three years of the Trump presidency that the 2016 election was substantially tainted by Russian interference. And countries have been interfering in American elections, just like America has interfered in the elections of other countries for decades. Right? This is a normal part of life that every living thing tries to influence the, the environment to make it most conducive to its, its own thriving. So Russian interference in America, right? Russian bots in, in social media do have a, a somewhat disruptive effect, right? do have a negative effect right, do probably exacerbate divisions among Americans, but it's not decisive. It's not, it's not one of the top 20 problems that this country faces. These blue-haired SJWs in um, 
in, in, on Twitter or whatever who are trying to restrict the free speech of conservatives. Now, look, I think that's, to be fair, I think that's happening to some degree. I bet there is no doubt, you know, things have changed at X or Twitter, but there's no doubt that there was a kind of biased monitoring. And if someone made a joke about transsexuals, he was kicked. Yeah, whatever mechanism you have for running social media or running a company, there's always going to be some bias. All right, we're never going to live in a world without bias. It's not. It's not possible. But if you want to look at the future direction of America, you could do worse than just paying attention to what's going on at Harvard University. Right, Harvard is long been the most influential university in America. Right. The liberal left dominate the high grounds of our culture. And near the pinnacle or at the pinnacle of our culture are places like Harvard University. So many of our elites went to Harvard. And many of the dominant forms of argument that uh, take over in our news media and among elite discussions come from intellectuals at Harvard. Right In the 1930s, Harvard tried to lead the way in promoting democracy, a certain type of democracy, while also promoting President Roosevelt's attempts and successful attempts to limit the Constitution, to subvert the Constitution in his pursuit of big government. So Harvard intellectuals led the way in making the case for what President Roosevelt was doing in subverting our Constitution. At the same time, they were trying to make the case for democratic ideals as opposed to fascism. And uh, during the Cold War, again, many Harvard intellectuals led the way in trying to make the case for America as opposed to to Russia. And then many Harvard intellectuals, when communism fell, went over to Russia and helped the the, uh, president of Russia during the 1990s reorganize and, and privatize the economy. So Harvard was particularly influential in the pro-interventionist movement during the 1930s, that America should get more deeply involved in the greater world, that America should go to war against uh, fascist Germany and fascist Italy. And one of the leaders of this pro-interventionist movement at Harvard was Karl Friedrich. Right? And he had a, a promotion of democracy, which was really the opposite of democracy. He really wanted elite rule. But his exoteric, his public message was uh, very different than, than his private message, the hidden message, the esoteric message, right? At, at Harvard has at various times demonstrated an incredibly influential political Weltanschauung, meaning worldview, right? And through this Harvard political Weltanschauung, right, you get the self-conception of our current governing elite and they they say two messages right there is the esoteric message and there's the exoteric message and you get this throughout our elite discourse right you see it with Karl Friedrich in in particular right he he gave a blatant public exoteric message and an esoteric message so the, the public exoteric message that uh, Karl Friedrich put out there was that uh, Pareto, who was a critic of elite rule, that Pareto was the real elitist and therefore anti-democratic, while Karl Friedrich and his compatriots at Harvard were the real believers in democracy. So Karl Friedrich embraced Kantianism, 
that we should have the rule of absolute reason. So people on the liberal left, they have much more faith in the power of reason to manage the world, to contain the world. And so one of the great examples of this is President Lyndon Baines Johnson. He would micromanage where the United States would bomb in North Vietnam during the Vietnamese War. People on the right have less faith in the power of reason to manage reality. People on the right understand that the most powerful forces that drive us are not rational, right? They are forces that are genetic, and they are forces that come from imprinting from our early years and our identification with our family, extended family, nation, and, and tribe. But uh, the dominant liberal left agenda is that we can transform the world through reason, that we can aspire towards a buffered identity, meaning that we are not contaminated by the influences of nationalism and tribalism and traditional religious mores, that we can rise above them, that we can discern what is right and wrong through the power of our own reason, that we can strategically plot the way forward for our society, for our community, for our lives, using the kingly power of reason. And people on the right, right, people who are traditional, they recognize much more the power of ties to, say, blood and soil, to family, to tribe, to nation, that the ties and drives that are linked to genetics and to our early imprinting. So uh, people on the, on the left, like Carl Friedrich, say, you know, we can have this rich and humane Kantian view of reason, and, and we can rule through pure rationality. People who are traditional say uh, we have much more powerful drives that precede reason. So people on the liberal left say, look, we are open and honest, right? People on the right are disingenuous, elusive, and cynical, right? People on the liberal left say we believe in the people, we believe in representation, while people on the right, such as myself, will point out in, in many areas that uh, popular will amounts to you know, very little, such as in foreign policy. Foreign policy is overwhelmingly decided by our elites. Uh, people like me will point out that though our public rhetoric and our education and what comes from our elites and the mainstream media is constantly extolling the virtues of democracy, in reality, the way the world works is overwhelmingly hierarchical and dictatorial. Right? Corporations have a CEO. Right? Even NGOs, non-governmental organizations, have a board or a CEO that, that runs things. Right? To, to get anything to work, you usually need some sort of dictatorial, hierarchical uh, line of power. But people on the liberal left will, in particular, constantly extol the virtues of democracy. Well, people on the right, we will have a more nuanced and a more limited appreciation of those things that are properly appropriate for democracy. So trads recognize the power of tradition. We recognize the power of the traditional ways of organizing life, organizing families, of organizing communities and nations and tribes are usually better than new untested ways that are simply arrived at through the power of reason. So you'll have people on the liberal left stating that law should be, should be rational, and any time our law is not rational, right, then we need to change it, even if that goes against the Constitution. And people on the right are much more skeptical of the power of reason, and they believe that time-tested traditional ways of doing things that can be in particular tied to a document that helped to organize and run this country for hundreds of years 
that that should not just be thrown away easily just because we think we found something that's more rational. Uh, on a strictly rational basis, it's hard to make the case against same-sex marriage. The traditional perspective is once we unravel the traditional understandings of family and marriage between one man and one woman, who knows what uh, devastation might might result from that. Arguing just purely on reason, right, the, the same-sex marriage crowd has a much easier case to make because the traditional response is we don't know the untold amount of damage that comes from unraveling traditional ways of doing things. Right, so people on the left, like Carl Friedrich, uh, much more faith in the power of reason and the power of doing new, untested ways of organizing people, organizing families and communities, nations and tribes. The traditionalist says, we've got time-tested ways of running things, those are better. Right, people on the left will portray themselves, we believe in universality and emancipation, the power of reason, while people on the right celebrate the dark, the irrational, and the particularistic. And people on the liberal left say, you know, bureaucracy is you know, a beautiful thing. It represents reason itself, that we have to give uh, bureaucrats the power to decide how law should be applied. So no first world nation has effectively come up with a way of disciplining and pushing back against the decisions of bureaucracies. Because when bureaucracy makes a decision, it's usually not accountable to the executive it's not usually accountable to the legislature, and it's not usually accountable to the courts. You can't sue the DMV, generally speaking. Right? You can't usually go to court against some bureaucratic decision. So the liberal left generally celebrates the intrusive nation-state because the power of reason should give us a feeling of confidence that we can shape the intrusions of the nation-state to help us to become you know, friends with each other and more vulnerable to each other, as Danielle Allen was talking about, and that we have the superior rationality of the bureaucracy and its institutions on our side, and these forces can create ever you know, greater levels of equality. Stop. And someone could you know, call for violence for a left-wing cause, and they're free. You know, they get away scot-free. I have no doubt that that takes place. COVID compounded this. I, I don't even want to go into all that kind of the medical aspect of it. But that being said, it seemed to me like Frame Game was just kind of like letting people off scot-free. It was like, this is all about an attack on conservatives. And we need to, you know, defund the FBI, def you know, stop all FBI contact with these social media companies so that we can have free speech. Because all it is, it's all a joke, Russian collusion, pfft, but, you know, it's these SJWs attacking service. Well, the fact is, like, there is a lot of <laughs> misinformation and sh pot stirring or shit stirring, let's say, done by... Right, so Richard went from celebrating unfettered free speech and anonymous posting online when it was to his benefit, when the anonymous posters online were largely praising him. But as soon as the anons online started primarily mocking and criticizing Richard, he developed a very different attitude. Foreign actors. That is a real thing. And it just struck me as... Right, that's, that's Pareto's insight, that uh, ideology is incredibly flexible. It's flexible to support you know, whatever side is in power and what is in their best interest. So to support our own best interests, we'll come up with all sorts of reasons, just like a kid who wants to be allowed to come home late or wants to have to go to a friend's house or whatever you want to do, you will just keep coming up with reasons until you find one that works with your parents. And Pareto's 
insight is that that effectively is how ideology works. It's how various groups pursue their own best interests, and they will use wildly varying arguments, which will be framed as ideological, but are basically to support their own power and interests. He was kind of like opening up the front door to people who are going to distort discourse for their ends, you know, under the banner of free speech or anti-censorship. And to, to just dismiss the whole concept of, you know, the Russians, you know, doing something, I, I think is just exceedingly naive. And this is not about anyone's opinion on like Ukraine or whatever. But, you know, when Putin was stationed in Dresden in the 80s, he was meeting with the remnants of the Red Army faction. So that, that is a outright terror operation. The idea that the Kremlin is, you know, benign or like they, they would never, you know, lead people astray or something is just absurd. And like, if I don't know all of the things that went into, you know, censorship and, you know, I probably have an ambivalent opinion on like the Hunter Biden laptop and ivermectin or whatever and free speech. But, I, you know, you also have to like give somewhat of the benefit of the doubt that the FBI. Okay, there's a ridiculous New York Times headline that illustrates the ridiculous nature of much of our elite discourse. All right. Uh, the regional war. No one wanted is here. How wide will it get? So I didn't read that correctly. The regional war no one wanted is here. How wide will it get? With the U.S.-led attacks in Yemen against the Houthis, there is no longer a question of whether the israel mass war will escalate into a wider conflict. The question is whether it can be contained. Right, this is ludicrous. Of course, there are all sorts of people who want a wider war in the Middle East. Right? The headline is the regional war no one wanted. All sorts of people want a wider war in the Middle East. All right, what, what type of people want a wider war in the Middle East? Those people to whom it's to their advantage, right? Substantial parts of Hezbollah and Iran would like a wider war in the Middle East. Substantial numbers of the enemies of Israel in the Middle East would like a wider war. Why? Because there is a non-trivial chance that the Zionist state could be destroyed by a wider war, right? If you hate the Zionist state, why would you not want to reach for that non-trivial chance of destroying Israel? Right. All sorts of forces go up against Israel. There is a chance that the Zionist state will be absolutely destroyed. On the other hand, there are substantial factions in power in Israel who would like a wider war. Because if there is a conflagration in the Middle East, right, then the Israelis would have justification and cover for expelling a substantial number of Arabs from the West Bank, from Gaza, even possibly from Israel itself. Right? Uh, I, I suspect, I believe, that Israel will invade southern Lebanon and go into a massive war against Hezbollah in the next few weeks that will make its war against Hamas look like child's play because Hezbollah has the rocketry to level large parts of Israel's major cities and to kill thousands of Israelis within hours. It would be a massive conflagration. But if a conflagration kicks off, right, then Israel may very well expel large numbers of Arabs from Gaza and the West Bank and create a greater Israel that is more unified, that has more social trust, that is, is more coherent, right? And that is stronger and bigger. So conservatives often talk about the Great Reset and how, you know, the dastardly liberal left is trying to use COVID to, you know, reset global economic foreign immigration policy. Well, every living thing tries to change the world around it to suit its interests. All right. Uh, 
the right wing in Israel will do this just as much as uh, the left. Right? We're all trying to create a world that uh, is, is best aligned with our own interests. Is John Mishan right? Uh, indeed. I think the United States would like to see the Israelis win, whatever that means, in uh, Gaza and that war uh, so that we have a stable Middle East. That, that's, the, that's the American goal. No escalation. The Israelis are a different matter. Uh, first point I would make. Right. So the Israelis are not monolithic. Some Israelis will go along with what John says here. There is. I actually believe the Israelis wouldn't mind a general conflagration because that would facilitate ethnic cleansing. Uh, I think the Israelis are interested in cleansing not only uh, Gaza, uh, where they've made their views manifestly clear in recent months, but I think they're also interested in cleansing the West Bank. And a general conflagration uh, would make it easier for them to do it. I'm not saying they could succeed at cleansing both places, but it would make it easier. So I wouldn't be surprised if there are some people who in Israel who want escalation for that reason. I think the other reason they want escalation, which I have no doubt about, uh, is that they have a huge problem on their northern border, the border with Hezbollah. Uh, most accounts say that there are about 200,000 Israelis who have been displaced from their homes, either in northern Israel or in southern Israel. And of course, it's the Gaza conflict in southern Israel that explains what's going on there. So let's say there are 100,000 people. Okay, so if pushing out Arabs from the West Bank and Gaza is in the best interest of Jewish Israelis, why would they not support that? Right? Why would any people not support policies that are in its best interest? Right? India now, under the BJP for, what, the past 10 years, is finally being governed in the interest of the majority of its population. Right? I'm sure many Americans would like to see the United States of America finally governed in the best interests of the majority of its population rather than being hamstrung by all these civil rights laws, right? Why would any nation not want to be governed by what's in the best interests of the majority of its citizens? From Southern Israel who have been displaced by the Gaza conflict, there are another 100,000 who have been displaced by what's going on in the North. And this is a huge problem for the Israelis. And the question is, how do they move those people back to Northern Israel until the conflict with Hamas excuse me, until the conflict with Hezbollah is settled and Hezbollah stops firing rockets, missile and artillery rounds uh, into northern Israel. Well, as long as the war in Gaza goes on, I believe Hezbollah will continue to target northern Israel, again, because of what's going on in Gaza. So what the Israelis would like to do is they would like to use military force. They'd like to escalate. They think they have escalation domination here or escalation dominance here. I think they'd like to escalate against Hezbollah inflict massive punishment on not only Hezbollah, but Lebanon more generally, and work out some sort of modus vivendi with Hezbollah that allows them to move those 100,000 or so uh, Israelis back to northern Israel. So I think that's what's going on. Uh, and I think it's a very dangerous situation. I think the Americans understand that. <laughs> Given that the Americans don't want escalation, I think this is why they're putting great pressure on Israel not to escalate the war against Hezbollah. And there are two, two philosophical reasons why I believe this New York Times and very common part of contemporary discourse is just dumb, right? New York headline once again, the regional war no one wanted is here. How wide will it get? All right? Two reasons this is dumb. One, people don't always say what they mean. So just because many leaders in the Middle East say they don't want a wider war, it doesn't mean that's what they truly believe in all circumstances. They may say that right now because of a particular set of circumstances, but circumstances change, right? They will change their opinion. Also, very well, the leaders of Iran and Hezbollah, possibly even Israel, do not want a wider war, but plenty of their compatriots do. Bibi Netanyahu's leadership as Prime Minister of Israel depends upon an ongoing war. Once there is peace, he is out of office and very likely on trial. 
but BB can't say this publicly. He has to placate the United States in his public pronouncements while placating the coalition members to his right in private. So what people say publicly frequently has nothing to do with what they really think. Also, what people say and think will vary depending upon circumstance. It's not like there is this universal reaction, we don't want a wider war in the Middle East, right? Individual incentives are often different from national incentives. So the individual incentives of various leaders, such as Bibi Netanyahu, all right, may well be quite different from the incentives for the best interests of their people, right? Many leaders want to go down in history and are willing to risk things that are not aligned with their own people's best interests. Think about, you know, Adolf Hitler keeping Germany in a suicidal war in World War II. Two, uh, the liberal left believes that people are basically good and that peace is our default state. The peace is the default state of the state of nature. People on the right believe that the state of nature gives us lives that are nasty, brutish, and short. Right? People on the right do not believe that people are basically good. They do not believe that peace is our default state. And they understand that sometimes wars have to be allowed to begin, go forward, and finish before you can have a lasting peace. Also, on the liberal left side of the political spectrum, there's an individualist worldview that we are primarily individuals born with certain inalienable rights. And so there's much more power, uh, much more confidence in the power of buffered strategic, you know, human reason and agency to manage things, like the, you know, President Lyndon Baines Johnson micromanaging the bombing of North Vietnam. While on the right, we believe that people are primarily tribal and primarily driven by forces far more powerful than conscious cognition and reason. Therefore, we suspect that life and war are inherently wild and therefore less containable. So last week, uh, Stephen Walt, who's John J. Mearsheimer's co-author in the book, uh, The Israel Lobby, said uh, the Biden administration is the revenge of the blob. The blob refers to the American foreign policy establishment. So after the Trumpian interlude, you brought back the professionals, the Obama team, back in action, taking it on the road. So the Biden foreign policy team is indeed the revenge of the blob, has great confidence in its abilities to manage the world, and has created greater disasters than any Amer American presidential administration since World War II, right? Created a disaster in Ukraine, created a disaster in the Middle East by unnecessarily sending Joe Biden over there to hug Bibi Netanyahu, and very likely creating a disaster with, chi Taiwan, uh, uh, with China over Taiwan. Right, this elite foreign policy cohesive team. Right, the Biden administration leaks less than any other presidential administration in in memory. Right, they are professionals, they are cohesive, and they are consistently wrong. They have consistently had an exaggerated sense of their own abilities through the strategic power of reason to be able to contain and manage conflicts around them, and that they can micromanage the Ukraine conflict by just steadily feeding. Ukraine certain weapons and denying them other weapons and maintaining this absolute disaster of a war, essentially NATO versus Russia, which is going on in Ukraine. All right here is John Mishimer on Judge Andrew Napolitano's show. Today of the chief uh, lawyer for South Africa. The violence and the destruction in Palestine and Israel did not begin on the 7th of October, 2023. The Palestinians have experienced systematic oppression and violence for the last 76 years. 
on 6 October 2023 and every day since October the 7th, 2023. In the Gaza Strip, at least since 2004, Israel continues to exercise control over the airspace, territorial waters, land crossing, water, electricity, and civilian infrastructure, as well as over key government functions. No armed attack on a state territory, no matter how serious, even an attack involving atrocity crimes, can provide any justification for or defense to breaches to the Convention, whether as a matter of law or morality. Israel's response to the 7th of October 2023 attack has crossed this line and give rise to the breaches of the Convention. What did you think when you saw that argument earlier today? Well, what you're seeing there is that gentleman who is one of the first speakers is setting up the context for the charge of genocide. He's not talking about uh, what actually happened uh, in Gaza after October 7th, and he's not talking about genocidal intent. He's setting up the context, and he's saying that there's a rich history that places much emphasis on the fact that uh, he believes Israel is an apartheid state. Then the next speaker uh, makes the argument about the Israeli actions in Gaza and makes the case that if you look at what the Israelis are doing, uh, it's genocidal in nature. And then after that, comes another speaker who makes the argument for genocidal intent. So just as is the case in the report, you get sort of a one, two, three punch, context, actions or behavior, and then the question of uh, genocidal intent. Okay, so John Mitchheimer ironically explains why Israel's reaction to the October 7 massacre in southern Israel by Hamas has been so devastating and so brutal. So Mishheimer just came out with a new book last year called How States Think, the Rationality of Foreign Policy. And in this book, he notes, when states believe their survival is at stake, or if you believe your survival is at stake, you will stop at nothing. Right? You back someone into a corner, they will lash out at you. Right? When states believe their survival is at stake, they do not hesitate to kill large numbers of civilians. If such murderous behavior will help them avoid defeat or massive casualties on the battlefield. Right, Britain and the United States blockaded Germany during World War I to try to starve its civilian population and force Germany to surrender. The United States relentlessly firebombed Japanese cities beginning in March 1945 before dropping atomic weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August to bring World War II to an end and to minimize American casualties. So Israel feels like it's fighting for its very survival. And like all other nation states, feel like they are fighting for their very survival, right? They will not hesitate to kill large numbers of civilians on the enemy side to try to protect themselves. It doesn't want, you know, a Kremlin troll operation. And hopefully, I'm not as certain about this one, to be honest, but like, hopefully they don't want Israeli operatives um, banning Palestinian uh, voices or... Okay, so when you recognize what's going on with you, right, when you're in touch with the reality of your own tendencies towards selfishness, towards lack of consideration, towards self-aggrandizement, right, towards trying to manipulate others, right, you will be much more clear about what other people are saying and doing to you. So you'll recognize that when other people are saying something 
or doing something that doesn't make sense, that uh, they are not being honest and forthright with you, whether they know it or not, but they are trying to manipulate you. But first, you have to be clear about what's going on with you, right? When you are in touch with reality, when you're in touch with the reality of your own flawed nature, you will much more quickly detect the, the flawed nature of other Kind of like Euro-right-inspired stuff in America. Um, would you put that in? That hasn't caught on exactly. But I, I think the alt-right culture has caught on with the mainstream where, I mean, just as an, ex- as an example that's, that's anecdotal but very quite telling. Like, that, that's absurd to think that uh, the alt-right that uh, Richard Spencer helped create is just suffusing our mainstream culture today. But it's self-aggrandizing. It feels profound, and it makes one very important, right? So when I'm talking, Richard Spencer's talking, anyone's talking, first question to ask is, you know, how is what they're saying, how does that shape their, their own level of importance, right? If people are, are saying things to exaggerate their own level of importance, then you should have skepticism. There's some chick, for lack of a better word, who is on Twitter and was a kind of uh, uh, online ambassador for TPUSA. And there was some controversy recently about her like exposing the Talmud. <laughs> so she's some girl, she's, you know, cute looking. She kind of has that model look going um, and Instagram model look going. But she, and, and, and she's not doing some things from the alt-right of 2016, like um, racial issues or anything like that. They're kind of beating around the bush on those. But the idea that a ch- Okay, so if you contain your romantic and sexual energies towards your spouse, you're not going to be thrown off. You're not going to be demoralized. You're not going to be confused by, you know, big-breasted chicks saying incoherent things online. Certainly, if you're not stable, if you don't have yourself together, if you're just bleeding sexual romantic need, if you're living in a delusional erotic fantasy life, that you're going to become vulnerable to big-breasted women saying incoherent things. Charlie Kirk organization was associated with this Instagram model who is, you know, declaring that Christ is king and exposing the Talmud. I mean, that is kind of incredible. And it shows you where this is going. Like, I don't think the Christian nationalism uh, thing was present at all in 2016, or it was on the margins. And it, it certainly wasn't present when I, like, attended CPAC in 2009 or something. And now... At least on Twitter, it is it is dominant, perhaps, or 50-50 or something. And that is remarkable. No, it's not remarkable. Because in the current, you know, dominant secular regime, right, liberal left, overwhelmingly secular, dominates our institutions, dominates the high ground of our culture. And to try to maintain you know, any semblance of a Christian community, right, increasing numbers of Christians have embraced something akin to Christian nationalism because they have to go further in the pursuit of their Christianity to try to maintain some semblance of a Christian community against an overwhelming secular onslaught. So when there wasn't this secular onslaught, then Christians didn't feel the need to organize in a Christian nationalist direction. Right? Christian nationalism is a response to a secular onslaught. So Speaking of uh, public intellectuals self-aggrandizing themselves. Because it involves my saying something implicitly positive about me, but, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a big deal in American public life and intellectual life, media life. You, you are the only person I've ever co-hosted anything with. Let's say it was the only thing you did. Uh, the Most 24-year-olds are not having a weekly podcast with a national figure. 
Okay, so is Dennis Prager a big deal in American intellectual life? That's absurd. All right, you use Google Scholar, and there's virtually no academic interest in the intellectual thought of Dennis Prager. There's, there's none. All right, there, there's as much interest in the intellectual thought of Dennis Prager as there is in the intellectual thought of, of Luke Ford. So is, is Dennis Prager a big deal? Yeah, in certain segments of America, Dennis Prager is a big deal. To hundreds of millions of Americans, Dennis Prager doesn't register at all. But to several hundred thousand Americans, Dennis Prager is a big deal. Right? To less than 1% of the American population, or possibly 1% of the American population, Dennis Prager is a big deal. To 99% of the American population, Dennis Prager is not a big deal. Right To several dozen people, I'm a big deal. To 99.99% of America, I'm not a big deal. So, you know, again, like the alt-right kind of won. <laughs> you know, like I didn't win, and a lot of the leaders aren't going to win. But the alt-right as a kind of aesthetic and vibe and its talking points and its commitments even has largely won. And that in itself is interesting. And I'm, I'm just saying that as a... That's absolutely absurd. That bears absolutely no relationship to reality. The only way that this outburst makes sense is you, you recognize that it's a way that uh, Richard you know, exaggerates and, and lives in a fantasy world of his own importance. Fact. In many ways, I'm, I don't know. In some ways, I'm critical of it, but it just seems to be a, a fact. So wouldn't that be like kind of a, it's being like, like these Barbie doll types are kind of becoming the faces by that yeah. use of the alt-right. So it's kind of like not anonymous. It is... Right. The, well, the yeah, sure. There, there are a number of, you know, online personalities who are not anonymous. That, that's definitely true. Um, but it, I mean, and you did see this beforehand. I mean, I think like someone like Lauren Southern was kind of a front runner and she would, you know, the alt-right would do something and she would kind of like get out in front of it and be the face of it while to be honest, not really generating it and kind of water it down a little bit. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to be too critical because she is nice, um, but that was her MO. And I, God, Dennis, <laughs> Richard doesn't want to be too critical of uh, some competing right-wing pundit. Uh, spare me. Okay, here's a little more. The vote this. on what is true. Uh, the, the consensus was that masks had to go on two-year-olds. Now that is regarded as child abuse, which is how I regarded it during the time, just for the record. You did. You I did. was right on virtually every – I don't care if this sounds like a brag. I have been right on virtually every you, you issue – that I have differed with the majority on in my life. Especially Ivermectin. I absurd levels of self-confidence, right? To be able to look back on your public career and to be able to state you know, confidently that you've been right, you know, every time you've differed with the majority is absurd. But you see in both Richard Spencer and Dennis Prager, just extreme off-the-charts levels of self-confidence and, and narcissism and delusion. I think they're now like, 2,000 um, cute girls doing that. So, well, whereas like in 2017, there were like two or something. Now there are 2,000. It's, you know, this is just my impression. But um, Jeff Giza, you've, you've had your hand up for a little while, so you, you have the floor. Hey, Richard. Uh, hey. This is a great, great discussion. Thanks for having me on. I have a lot to say on these issues, um, but I think you really set the table effectively. Um, before going into some of the points about... Okay, so let's get a little bit of uh, AI doomerism here from Richard... Spencer, Jeff Giza, and company. Like, does it creep you out? That's what you mean. That's what you mean by that. Yeah. Uh, no, well, well, no, no. There were people in the like NATO 
uh, defense world coined a term called cognitive security, which was uh-huh. basically like, and at the time I kind of laughed at it, but the, and the term is silly, but the principle behind it was like, how do we protect our minds fr- from being infected by, you know, foreign agitators trying to mess with our democratic discourse? Like that, that yeah. was the spirit behind it, which I think is a val- very valid concern. No, it, it is absolutely valid. I, I was simply poking a little bit fun at the um, highfalutin name, but um, I mean, I think it's almost in a way worse because all of the stuff that you described and that I described has already happened. And I think there's an almost like dystopian future of the internet that we're getting glimpses of now. And I guess I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I I noticed this thing and I've noticed it less because I've taken time to like, say I'm not interested in something, but it was one time it was like a little bit low down on one of my tweets. There was a mention and it was just this nonsensical you know, of sentence that, that was put forth. I can't even remember what it was, but it made no sense. And it was this like girl, um, you know, like with big boobs and her avatar. And then I just went to her profile, probably for the reasons you can imagine. And it's just this like tweet storm of nonsense that is either produced by someone who does not speak English or very well might be produced by some like primitive AI throwing together a sentence. And it's tweeting constantly. And it's this chick with big boobs. And there's almost, I mean, there's this like kind of paranoid schizo theory of like the empty internet where the internet, in fact, doesn't have people in it. It's all bots, you know, like all your supposed friends on Facebook are, are just fake. And even this discussion right now is AI generated. And, and look, I obviously don't think that is happening, but it kind of is happening. I mean, that's like a horror movie version of what actually is happening. All right. This is classic guru speak, right? Strategic disclaimers to simultaneously say, you know, something outrageous and provocative is happening, and then simultaneously say it's not happening is to try to get the best of both worlds. Which is that, I don't know the percentage, but, and it's probably higher for a, a, a larger and more famous account than my own, but like the amount of just weird AI gibberish being thrown out there. And then to make it even worse, could this start, could this occur on the level of the platform itself? I mean, Elon's using AI to do things like the for you recommendation or some of the tweets that kind of, I don't know what they're labeled, but they, they kind of like, they're separate tweets that are somewhat related to something they're interested in. And, and that's kind of a good use of AI, you could say, you know, it's, it's figure, it's the algorithm, it's figuring out what you would be interested in, et cetera. But it, it's just, to tell it kind of opens up this to do it, totalitarian. That it is wrong and God doesn't want you to do it. And society doesn't want you to do it. And your spouse doesn't want you to do it. It's wrong. Rather than, don't you lust after anybody else? I am convinced that the behavioral approach is far more effective. I hear you. Agreed. But how are you going to change the behavior of that unruly, By, narcissistic, unfulfilled, unapp- whatever, at the, at the, at table, the di- dinner table? Somebody pulls them over and says, I don't care that you're angry at mom over, over X, Y, or Z. You think that's going to work? Shut up. You think that's going to work? Yes, much better than I want. Let me deal with your unresolved feelings about mom. That's correct. That's why psychotherapy is usually useless because they deal with feelings, not behavior. Okay, but what if you can't you can't pull aside, especially if you know I'm 24. If let's say the problem in my family was my yeah, yeah, just these sweeping declarations that are so provocative. Uh, Psychotherapy is usually useless because it talks about feelings rather than behavior. So I'm able to just dismiss a, an entire profession because it's not, you know, following you know, the, the way that I think they should go, right? It's just delusional. Door, where 
you know, imagine, you know, people get so hot and heavy about arguments, but imagine having an argument with a robot for three hours and like stressing out over it. And like <laughs> your, your marriage gets ruined because you're yelling at a robot. I mean, isn't that, it, it's both dystopian, a little bit comical, but then also like realistic. It, and, yeah. It, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, you're right. I mean, I think the, the synthetic media, you know, AI, um, you know, it, it's going to shatter sense making. And so I think the question is, how do we, I'm not to totally pessimistic about it. I think the question is like, how, how do we proactively take what we learned, you know, mis including mistakes, right? Like what mm -hmm. we've learned from the past and apply that to the future. And I think, you know, for, for example, labeling false, you know, AI generated images and videos, I think that should definitely be a requirement. I can see both on the left and on the right, people battle testing, seeding out AI generated ideas. I mean, even like images of Trump and handcuffs or images of Trump being crucified, like here, like those are funny on right. a certain level. Right. Uh, they're really funny. But on, on another level, like when they're not labeled, I see them as kind of dangerous because they create the like neural pathways that make it, it's like meaning something into reality. Oh, um, absolutely. People did not evolve to be gullible, right? Uh, memes are not going to destroy people's brains and turn people into zombies. Yeah, no, I think the whole synthetic media, I mean, clearly that, that troll knew your type of, you know, woman. Clearly oh, they yeah. figured that out, right? And, and in theory, they could like figure that out. And one-to-one -one messages like being done in the voice of somebody else that you know, that's yeah. creepy. You know, I don't know if you've played with like, what is it, something, I forget the service, but I, I cloned, cloned, I started this institute named after John Boyd and I cloned his, his he's dead now. So there was this huge burst of AI doomerism a few months ago. Notice how it started to die off. Like there are always these bursts of doomerism over, over this or that. And then, and then the hysterics, they, uh, they lose their significance in the national conversation. So talk of AI doomerism is considerably reduced now as compared to six months or a year ago. Right? Here's a little more. They're from truly they're, they're among the evil of the evil, but I am not for suppressing their free speech. We, we don't suppress speech. The left does because if truth is allowed out, there is no left. The it's, left. It's a brilliant point. Oh, it, it... <laughs> it's an absurd point. Right. Left and right politics are evolutionary ad adaptations that have enabled people to survive difficult circumstances and to reproduce. And in certain situations, a left wing egalitarian approach of doing new innovative things and having more openness to strangers is more adaptive. And in other circumstances, a more hierarchical approach that is more suspicious of new things, more suspicious of strangers, more suspicious of contagion will be more adaptive. Uh, this idea that if the truth were allowed out, there'd be no left politics is absolutely absurd, but it sounds so profound. This is what, what gurus and pundits do. They say things that sound amazing, that just like, pow, blow your mind. But upon examination, these points are ridiculous, right? That they don't hold up to examination, but they sound incredible. Now, but I cloned his right. voice, and uh, shocking how easy that is to do, right? And oh, someone did that to me. Things I say oh, shocking. Years from now, it's going to be completely accurate. And indistinguishable, even to myself. I mean, it's we are very close to that point. And uh, I mean, this is kind of like a broader discussion about AI. Um, I I think AI. I, I'm I'm not afraid of like killer robots, but I am. I do think that AI is going to just annihilate culture and thinking. AI is just going to annihilate culture. It sounds amazing. It's like wow, wow. AI is just going to annihilate culture, but it's absolutely absurd. Chat says, look. I think Richard would agree with your critique that he is grandiose, delusional, and narcissistic. I think he's hilarious and entertaining. I agree. Richard is hilarious. He is entertaining. He is compelling. And uh, he is you know, 
simultaneously delusional. And art and things like, like I, I think it is actually a huge threat to the point where I am a kind of AI doomer. I, I think we should just, I don't know what to do. We need to just ban it or something because the, the, the degree to which it is going to degenerate thought. Yeah, just banning a lot of things is uh, one of Richard's default responses to the world. Oh, we just got to ban it. Um, among so as opposed to a more rooted in reality reaction of uh, being, being humbled and uh, not, not immediately reaching to, you know, ban things that we just uh, viscerally find disturbing, right? Recognizing the world is far more complicated than we can ever comprehend. And therefore we're going to be you know, somewhat reluctant to just immediately reach for banning. Average people who no longer have to think, but it's going to degenerate thought itself because it's going to be, you know, and this is what the, the New York Times lawsuit is about, um, I think, to the degree that I understand it. But it's the AI bot isn't really kind of like coming up with something new. It's finding a lot of things on the internet and kind of mashing them together and creating a complete sentence. Much like an AI art isn't like a painter imagining something that's never been painted before, drawing a unicorn. It's taking other people's art and mashing it together into something that is fairly original. And the problem with that is that AI art is now everywhere. Um, I've posted AI art in my limited capacity. So I notice people are very tempted to believe that those with different religious and political ideologies than them just are much less likely to be good people. If, if you're grateful, you're not a leftist. And I mean that literally. I, I, I try never to exaggerate. It is it's absurd. The, the idea that if you're, you're grateful, you're by definition not a leftist is absurd, but it sounds so profound. Sounds so compelling if you're a conservative. It's not possible to be a grateful leftist. You could be a grateful liberal. You could be a grateful conservative. Leftism is rooted in ingratitude. And my old line, I don't know if I've said it on Dennis and Julie, in America, at a university, you got a BA in ingratitude, you got a master's in ingratitude, and you got a PhD in ingratitude. Yep. Well, you know, so I was recently analyzing... <laughs> apropos of this whole, you know, Harvard, MIT, and Penn president's embarrassing congressional testimonies. I was analyzing how we got to this place where colleges and universities. Okay, yeah, this idea that if uh, someone has a fundamental human response, such as gratitude, therefore they, they cannot be on the left, right? It's obviously absurd. Capacity. And it's going to soon be like, let's say it's 40% of the art. That means that the Xerox copier of the AI or the algorithm is, is making Xerox copies of Xerox copies. And soon you're going to make Xerox copies of Xerox copies of Xerox copies. And it's going to be dull and lifeless. And um, I, I, I think it's going to destroy culture itself. And yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm on a, a doom well, tangent here, but I do believe this. <laughs> well, well, I think two, two quick points on that. I mean, one, uh, for people on the right, I mean, they've got to move past this. So why is Richard Spencer so attracted to doom? Right. Why, why are you so attracted to predictions of doom? Right. It's meeting some psychological need in you. Right. There's no inherent reason to feel that we are doomed by AI. But but people who are very attracted to notions of cataclysm, right? There, there's something in them that's resonating there. Right. The the two times when I was a kid and I, I lit fires. Right. I wanted to create a miserable world of conflagration around me that matched the conflagration inside of me. Right. Richard personally feels doomed, and so he then projects that to you know various developments in the world around him that you know, he barely understands. 
They are shallow and superficial. And very unimpressive, I might add. And we saw that on display at the congressional hearings. Right, this is Dennis talking about uh, university professors. They're all just shallow and superficial. All right, this is semantic pollution. Right, he wants to diminish competing sources of authority and information and analysis to elevate himself and his own team. Now, some professors are shallow and superficial, and uh, most talk show hosts are shallow and superficial. It's not like there's, you know, certain professions that are inherently shallow and superficial. Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't that be great if we could just find lofty, profound-sounding explanations to completely dismiss professions who are engaging in activities we don't fully understand and just dismiss them as inherently shallow and superficial? Most professors are deeply shallow, superficial thinkers. That's, that's what it, it's painful to think about because if, if professors at universities... Yeah, it pains him to consider that competing sources of information and authority you know, might be shallow and superficial. Of course, it, it doesn't pain him. All right, uh, pundits and gurus want to dismiss competing pundits and gurus and sources of authority. Right? There's absolutely no reason to think that inherently professors are more shallow and superficial than pundits, than authors, than uh, rabbis and preachers and priests and uh, CEOs. Right? Some are, some aren't. Binary, oh, censorship or free speech, you know, it, it's not that simple. We, we do need content moderation and we have to be proactive, at, um, when, especially with the rise of AI stuff. And in fact, you know, the disinformation people out there, I don't really like that term, but they could use people on like, like they need all, all different perspectives, right, in order to address the issue. And so, you know, if people don't want it to be like a one party system, then they need to claim a seat at the table. Uh, and then on the issue of the AI, I'm a little bit less doomer, doomerish, I'm more optimistic, I think. But I think a different yeah. way of looking at it is they'll put a premium on what it means to be human. Like I, I wrote an essay just just in order to figure out for myself like how do you how do you differentiate like right so. like like no I mean <laughs> so stuff that will go up like personality um, you know uh, mistakes um, the human experience like I think it will call into question what it means to be human in interesting ways uh, oh, in scary I, ways right I know what what if you want the AI robot I mean okay I was actually great we've got uh, on, um, Shutterstock joining us uh, David how's it going man Hey Brokashem good to see so, you. What did you think of uh, the Richard Spencer space? You were saying a lot of things in the chat. I wanted you to be able to you know, develop on them. Um, well, so, you know, some background, because, uh, and I'm not sure if Ricardo's going to be joining or not. Did he, did he say he's coming on? I have no indication he will, but happy to have him. So, okay, I mean, first, you know, God forbid my Shabbos observance has collapsed a little bit. So I still, you make Kiddush, say the prayers, uh, you like in Hebrew terms, I still do all the mitzvahs, I say the positive commandments relate to Sabbath, but I'm, I've become lax. So, um, you know, Saturday during the day, Ricardo messages me that uh, Richard Spencer messaged him. And, uh, you know, I guess it's been a while, like, you know, out of nowhere. I think he told me maybe like, Months ago, Richard Spencer followed him on Twitter, but uh, you know, looked like out of nowhere he hadn't had any contact with Richard Spencer at all on his new Ricardo account, and out of nowhere, Richard Spencer messages him, and uh, it would appear the reason he messaged him 
is related to this Kristen Ruby, like this Kristen Ruby's digging around and she had probably been contacting Richard, trying to dig up information about Mike Benz. And, uh, you know, my interpretation of this is whatever, re I mean, Kristen Ruby's probably minor professional, you know, like B-list media person. You saw, like, I think you were on, you're just watching Fox News randomly and she appeared on, but, uh, you know, she's, so she's like some sort of media personality, but she's obsessed with this Mike Benz case and she wants to take him down. Like she thinks that this frame game thing should ruin him. She thinks uh, Mike Benz is some form of nefarious character, maybe even criminal and deserves to be taken down. And she's very upset that this frame game story uh, hasn't caused him more damage. And like almost half of her Twitter feed is dedicated to attacking Mike Benz. I'm not sure if that you would agree with that assessment. Yeah, that that's true. What why is she so focused on Mike Benz? You yeah, I actually spoke to her on the phone for like 2 hours. Um like that was our, that was uh 3 months ago. Actually it was it was a long time ago. And like right when I told her like I dealt with frame game, she like gave me her number and I called her and we spoke for like 3 hours. And but she didn't give that much information about herself or why she's doing uh, besides like this guy's bad. He needs to go down. He needs to be taken down um, that uh, she doesn't know him personally, although she knows a lot of people who knows him. And, uh, and, you know, if we talk more about the Richard Spencer space where you know, one thing, I guess he has a, a tendency maybe to use people up and then spit them out to kind of like, you know, break his way, infiltrate into organizations, make himself useful get a whole bunch of information, the network connections, and then backstab people. So it could be something personal where she's like friends with or knows someone that uh, she did this to uh, besides, and, and she got very upset at me when I called like conspiracy theory in my term, but I just mean like she thinks that there's a greater conspiracy around Mike Benz where he might be this larger nefarious character currently. So not just uh, God forbid uh, the fact that he used to be frame games and, uh, that that should damage his career. Uh, but, uh, you know, she thinks that she might go on to uncover, uh, you, you know, some like criminal criminal, like she's on, um, you know, but I don't know anything more than that. If, uh, if your assessment, if you would agree that for whatever reason, she thinks that like, she's going to break some sort of criminal activity and bring him down. Yeah, that, that, that seems, uh, correct. I, I think that your perspective on Mike Benz is similar to mine in that we, we think he's just another flawed individual who has some strong points and some weak points, who has some blind spots and has some insights, who has some strengths and has some weaknesses. I mean, that's my perspective. What's yours? Yeah, my, I wouldn't like personally, like he's probably an opportunistic uh, climber, you know, that, that, that he's probably, he might have some idealism of uh you know, certain causes he cares about or things that he wants to change, but he's probably largely an independent actor, self-serving, uh, trying to, you know, climb his way to power or wealth or fame. Um, I'm sure he's had partners and different people that he's, uh, dealt with along the way. Richard Spencer mentioned multiple times, Jerome Harzoni, ironically, uh, he kept on calling him Harzoni, but I'm pretty sure he meant Jerome Harzoni, which uh, didn't you do like a whole two month, uh, uh, re, uh, like streaming on his uh, book on nationalism? I, I think so. 
but uh, whatever Richard Spencer was like caught up that he thought it was Hazoni that he was caught up. But I, I wouldn't be surprised that Ben's is just a master networker and he may have been caught up with uh, any number of people. But the, yeah, I, I agree with you. He's probably largely an independent actor. And uh, I also think he's probably at his uh, pinnacle of prosperity um, right now. And I would doubt he is a criminal. Like, I, like he seems like a smart guy. He's a lawyer. I, I, like, I, my guess would be he probably kept his hands clean. Although, I don't know any information. Like, if he did, like, you know, some sort of uh, technical insider Washington uh, illegal activity, um, it's remotely possible. But like, you know, generally, I disagreed with Frame Games in terms of like, you know, I thought he was at the time basically a jewish racist you're like you're a jew you should be multicultural you should be supporting multiculturalism and immigration and here he was like a jew supporting uh white nationalism so at the time that was my largest critique of him but like yeah i felt outclassed by frame games like he he knew heads and shoulders he was an insider he knew way more about this stuff and uh, he had good information like where he you know when he talked like i would just shut up and sit and listen because like he he knew his stuff uh, so in that sense, I was sympathetic and uh, even sympathetic to Christine Ruby that like, yeah, like if anyone was part of a conspiracy, it was probably him in terms of like a QAnon. Like, so I said that on the Richard Spencer stream uh, that, uh, you know, but you're just a, that that Frame Games was essentially the real QAnon. Like if there was such a thing as a QAnon, Frame Games was probably the closest thing to it who was like the insider who felt sympathetic to uh, the corruption of the government and was giving information to the general public under uh, an anonymous identity. I'm not sure if you agree with that assessment that frame games basically fit the, uh, uh, you know, the MO of, uh, of the precursor. To yeah. Except he wasn't saying that the, the, the elites are engaging in pedophilia and they're all going to be, arrested by Donald Trump and put on trial. So he, he was a, a guru of sorts, but he, he wasn't promoting something as ridiculous as QAnon. I think that what he was promoting was a rebellion against a liberal left stranglehold on elite discourse and on our elite institutions. So I see many commonalities between Frame Game of 2017, 2018, and Mike Benz today, and that's a rebellion against this liberal left stranglehold on elite discourse and he's back then in 2018 and today he's trying to show ways that uh, ordinary people can fight back against this stranglehold yeah I mean that's what i meant like in terms of like you know, like the pedophilia alex jones conspiracies i mean god forbid some of that might be true but i don't really care about it you know like the frame games was giving the real important QAnon stuff like about censorship uh you know uh, um corruption of government power that was uh, relatively important, you know, as opposed to, uh, you know, the main QAnon stuff that focused on like, uh, you know, God forbid, uh, child molestation or something like that. So, uh, you know, but, uh, but, you know, so I even said that, like, Frank Games was like, he was the real QAnon, that, in a sense, like, not the conspiracy. He was actually giving you useful information. Yeah. And, um, okay, let me jump and, in. Let, let me, let me jump in. So, I think uh, Mike Benz was similar to you and, and to me in that we found the rise of the alt-right uh, interesting and intellectually stimulating. And we welcomed the widening of discourse, the widening of the Overton window, 
we have to talk about things that were generally considered, you know, out of bounds in polite discussion. So even though we could not uh, join with, certainly did not want to join with the alt-right in many of their conclusions, we welcomed the chance to talk about things that were considered uh, verboten and that there was an excitement to those years in talking to people with a radically different perspective on the world than we had. And I think uh, Mike Benz was excited about that. I was excited by it. You were excited about it. And there was like a touch of the forbidden. And there was there was just something new and exciting in the air that we could not uh, join with and get on the, the subway and, you know, go, go to the alt-right. But we wanted to talk to people in the alt-right. Is that is that fair? Well, yeah, but I would say, no, I mean, Benz was clearly a league ahead of ours. He actually had insider information. Like, we just had commentary, uh, you know, maybe some information that other people didn't know, but we didn't actually have insider information. Like, Mike Benz was actually a Washington insider who had insider information to share. Yes. And it was a particular time and it was a particular place, so we wouldn't necessarily welcome those exact same conversations today because of the frequently antisocial behavior of the people who say these alt-right talking points. And so it's, now is a different time and place. Once people saying things about the Great Replacement go out into a Walmart or into a mosque and start killing people, then those conversations become much more difficult, if not impossible, to have. But at a particular time, in a particular place, we all engaged in some... Risky, exciting conversations that we would not necessarily want to conduct today. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. So, and just one last comment before we bring it back to the Spencer space yesterday. So, I mean, when I came on to you, like the Richard Spencer protest at University of Michigan were probably the most serious, biggest protest I've seen in my life. And that was way before George Floyd or the Palestinian stuff, in the sense like, you know, I, I was just graduated University of Michigan. I was still going back regularly. And he won the Supreme Court case to be able to speak at University of Michigan, which he never took up on, but he went to Michigan State. And it was basically riots, violence, thousands of people doing walkouts, uh, you know, chanting, uh, walking through all the streets and, uh, and uh, you know, student uh, buildings, you know, the, whatever they were chanting then, like no Nazis, no KKK or, or something like that. But uh um, you know, I've been through like the war in Iraq or Occupy Wall Street and you've know, been protests. But I think the at the time, the anti Richard Spencer protest at University of Michigan was like one of the biggest protests I'd ever seen in my life. And that's why I came onto your channel. It's like, who the hell is this Richard Spencer guy? Why is everybody so shook up that, uh, you know, like it's. It, uh, you have to completely turn over University of Michigan campus just because he's speaking there. And then I saw you were interviewing him, and that's how I came to uh, y your channel. And uh, I don't know if, uh, you know, you put back in you know, the history of how you've seen protests in the U.S. and maybe, like, the alt-right anti-Trump stuff, and especially, like, you know, the counter Charlottesville, if you would agree with my assessment, like, that the anti-alt-right protests, uh, like, were at the time, like the biggest thing in America. Yeah, it, it, it was, you know, pretty close to the biggest, if not the, the biggest, and it was exciting and interesting. But that, that that conversation changed once people using alt right talking points started going out murdering people.
then then it became much more difficult to have those conversations. Yeah, I mean Charlottesville, and then and then especially Christchurch, uh, and, and then you know so, um, you know with that so. Ricardo, you know, all of a sudden, you know, he's like, okay, you know, like, uh, you know, maybe me and Richard are going to start uh, doing spaces. Like, you know, I, I was joking with him as like, at this point, I don't even think your wife would care. You know, if you remember the first time that he, you know, got uh, Richard's number and got the space and he had to take out a hotel room. And, uh, you know, so I was joking at this point, Richard's basically irrelevant to current events. And it'd just be kind of like reminiscing on the good old days and not even his wife would care if, uh, you know, she heard and he joked like, yeah, he actually mentioned it to his wife that he was talking with Richard Spencer. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, Ricardo's like nine o'clock, we're doing a space nine o'clock about frame games. Yeah. Richard's been neutered. Uh, I need to step away for two minutes. Can you just share further thoughts on this Richard Spencer space while I fill up my water bottle? Oh, yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, that's maybe like four in the afternoon or something that uh, it was like, wow, you know, Ricardo's back. And so I was like, OK, good for you. Like he could probably at this point be Richard Spencer's co-host. Like I, I see Richard Spencer around. I still occasionally catch his stuff. But like, God forbid, Richard Spencer's like uh, doing spaces, talking to like 20, 30 people a lot of times. Almost, you know, very rarely does Richard Spencer have a space with more than a hundred people. So I was like, yeah, you could probably like, uh, you know, Ricardo's like, I'm back. And I was like, yeah, you could probably be back. You could probably, uh, you know, get a few streams, uh, with Richard Spencer, maybe be his co-host occasionally. And, uh, you know, not YouTube, but Twitter spaces create something where, you know, uh, Ricardo could just, uh, go live on Twitter spaces and all of a sudden there'd be like 20, 30 people there. And, uh, you know, the gang would be back. And so I was envisioning, you know, kind of be like a small space um, and it would be kind of like reminiscing and we would be talking mostly about frame games. Um, but, uh, you know, so nine o'clock, uh, the space, uh, it got postponed till 10. And when the space finally starts, it's huge. There's like, I mean, it's not huge. There's like a hundred people at the very beginning and then gets up to like two, 300 people. And then there's a few bigger names and so, like, I was there right at the beginning. I requested to speak. Uh, Ricardo's there for maybe, like, 15 minutes. Richard opens talking with uh, Ricardo. And probably most, you know, just a handful of people even remember Brundle's voice. And, you know, like, there was even a few comments, like, who the hell is this guy? Why are you talking to him? Um, but, uh, yeah, Richard added me as a speaker uh, after, like, 10 minutes. But then all of a sudden the space blew up. And there was already multiple hundreds of people. and after like 45 minutes, there was like 800 people and the space kind of deteriorated. Like, like, like in terms of my perspective, Ricardo's perspective, I wanted to talk about, you know, the alt-right frame games and the topic at hand of anonymity. So related to what Luke Ford was saying, I think it's important to note that whatever reason this space had a lot of people at like 800 people at the peak it got well over 500, uh, you know, 300 people within the first uh, uh, 10 minutes and then just kept on going up. And I think Richard probably got carried away by the big audience. Like, he, you know, he also had this, like, I'm back. So, you know, Luke Ford was talking about, like, you know, like the delusion of uh, the alt-right in the movement. So I think that was partially because, like, you know, God forbid Richard's on his lows. 
usually talking to just tens of people. So all of a sudden he had like hundreds of people listening. And uh, so most of the time was wasted. It was kind of like Richard just, you know, it's like, okay, I got a big audience. And so, you know, if he's like a narcissist, maybe like Luke Ford in the sense, I say basically everybody in streaming is like that. Like where once they have an audience, they will use it to their own advantage, like Charles Moskowitz or something like that, where he loves telling stories, repeating himself. So if he has a big audience, rather than staying on topic, you know, he's like, well, now it's time for me to tell stories about myself. And uh, so basically that's what happened. Like the first hour of the stream, it was mostly like Richard pontificating, uh, self-aggrandizing on his own importance or role in the alt-right and giving his takes on like every various issue. And uh, what did you want to say more about the Twitter space? Yeah, well, I don't know if you agree with my assessment. Yes, I mean, one thing yes, I do. Say Richard's on his low, and for whatever reason, this is the biggest audience he's had in a long time, and that changed his behavior. Yeah, and, and so, go ahead. I don't know if you agree with me also about the type of radio personality. I said, you're like that, Charles Moskowitz is like that. Basically, every streamer is like that, where they can't control themselves, they get in front of an audience, and they want it to be about them, and then they just start telling war stories. Yeah, I, I think there's there's something to that, but you've also experienced the the perils of the e-personality. You've also experienced the intoxicating effect of having a large audience when you've gone on a stream with hundreds of people. Uh, talk to me about the intoxicating effect of having hundreds, if not thousands of people listening to you. Well, I think I've always been relatively level about it because like most of my large audiences were people that were there for my opponent and you know, mentioned like the alt-right uh and, you know even the keith wood stream that uh you know, maybe hit a hundred thousand people at 1500 people live uh you know some of the people were respectful and said like okay you know david was a good guest he was honest but uh and i gained quite a few followers but but like i knew it was largely negative that uh most of the people and i knew i was a topic expert or even like the adam green and, you know, kind of had it like, I'm not a star. I'm an introvert. These people aren't really here for me. At best, they're here to hear my research. So, you know, just stay on topic, uh, stay on point. And, and then occasionally, maybe like Stephen James or my own channel, where I'll just ramble about my own thoughts. And then like, I know, because like, I'll, you know, I do a, I mean, the few times I gained my, uh, you know, just good technique when we were streaming, I did a post stream. That's how I got a thousand subs. You know, I, I was on JF or Adam Green the first time, and then I do a post stream and I get a huge audience. And I've even explained that, like Church of Entropy, who you know broke a thousand subs, Stephen James, like just the technique of uh, building an audience, doing the post stream. I mean, because you know we started off building it off of uh, off of you on the Babscast. We used to do post streams, but like I'm I'm pretty self aware that like I'm not a star, I'm not going to be famous, and I stream every week. Uh, you know to 10 people so like even after these big streams like uh i don't think it made people interested in in me um at mo like i said like i did my due diligence where i did my research and i said what i know where i could be pretty sure that i you know i said accurately but it doesn't mean people are going to be interested in me and you know, maybe you in hollywood have had that little feel like like no i'm a, i'm going to be the star myself um but like i don't think i've had those delusions 
Okay, so I had a critique of this New York Times headline. I wanted to offer it to you and get your reaction. New York Times headline from two days ago, the regional war no one wanted is here. How wide will it get? And my critique is that that's absurd. There are plenty of people, including in Israel, including in Iran, including in Hezbollah, who would welcome a wider war. For one, in Israel, I'm sure there are plenty of people who would welcome a conflagration if it created an opportunity to drive out many Arabs from Gaza and, and the West Bank, and uh, people obviously in Hezbollah and Iran who would like to wipe out the Zionist state. And there's a non-trivial chance that if Israel's enemies joined together and attacked Israel, that they could possibly destroy the Zionist state. What do you think? That uh, Do you agree with me that there are plenty of powerful people in the Middle East who would welcome a wider war? Yeah, God forbid. I mean, saying the the regional war that Israel and some American elites want, but like you know, say, like relatively statistically, you could say like nobody, most Americans don't want, but uh, that Israel has been pushing for, that the elites have been pushing for, in the New York Times, kind of like Russia Ukraine, where they keep on selling you basically a lie that they know is not true, you know, it's propaganda because they want to change public opinion, and so at this point. The war is a disaster, and America, uh, you, you know, so they kind of now have to uh, backtrack and uh, prepare the public for uh, the change in uh, you know tone or reporting that's likely to occur over the next few months. As the you know, as Israel now, um, you know, is likely to carry on with the war, uh, might expand it. I'm not sure if you saw the Wall Street Journal article that basically claimed that Israel plans on. Uh, taking over the Egyptian border and uh, yes. And it could also be like the pressure where, where God forbid, uh, you know, I was, I was telling Brundle or Stephen or some of the people that the JQ of all the things in the alt-right, the alt-right is basically irrelevant uh, in terms of like the white nationalism. And there's still some sentiment. The great replacement has become talking point, but the movement failed uh, and, and it's clearly, doesn't have any lasting power, maybe some of the ideas. Um, however, the biggest element that's most important is, um, I mean, you could argue just the the demographic change, the great replacement, entering the public dialogue, um, but uh, but it's more the JQ and the rise of anti-Semitism, <coughs> where you had someone like Richard Spencer, who, uh, you know, the, the Charlottesville were, uh, you know, clean cut, prominent white people showing their names and faces, were doing what had never been done before, which was, uh, you know, openly saying anti-Semitic things. And now that has exploded. And especially with the war in Israel, uh, I would put it basically, I, I would say one out of five Americans are basically anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists. Like even on the street, like if you're just walking down the street, talk to a random person, one out of five Americans now like openly would talk to you about anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Like, well, of course no one wants this war. And the only reason we're doing this war is because, you know, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, however they understand it, because Jews have so much power and they're forcing our government to do it, even though no one else wants it. And I, mean, I don't know if you agree with my assessment or my numbers, but, uh, you know, so the New York Times is, they're not, they're not going to tell you that. They're not going to tell you that, uh, um, I'm not sure. Yesterday, also, I, I don't think you ever spoke to that guy, Ider Weinrob from Sula. I tried to uh, 
uh, book book you on, but he had a debate also on Sabbath with uh, John Frances Greppi about the JQ, and he was you know pushing back and it was basically a repeat of these debates from like six years ago where you know JF is like clearly the only reason the U.S. is being engaged in these foreign wars is because of you know Jewish pressure because Jews have uh, you know taken control of our uh, government. So uh, I'm not sure if you would, uh, you know, how you feel about the JQ. Okay, I'll jump in. Yeah, so I would not say 20% of Americans. I'd say probably less than 5% of Americans buy into anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theories. I would say the overwhelming majority of Americans are not terribly concerned about Jews and they probably don't even think of Jews very much as a group, but rather they look at uh, people around them as individuals who may happen to be Jewish or Catholic or Hindu. So I'd put it at a lower number, but yeah, maybe it's somewhere between 5% and, and 20%. It's not, it's not uh, an enormous difference between us. Uh, I wanted to move on and... Well, just in relation to the war now, where it's saying, what does it mean the war nobody wanted? Where the people, like, the people are like, well, who wants the war? And it's clearly like, you know, Israel or powerful Jewish lobbies. And so I say, well, if no one wants the war, why are we going to war? And that's why I mean like anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that like, uh, you know, because the Jews have due loyalty or the Jews have too much power that we're going to a war that no one wants. Right. So I think maybe five, five percent of Americans feel very strongly about we, we need to support Israel. And perhaps, you know, five percent of Americans feel very strongly we need to disengage from Israel, but I would estimate that 90% of Americans are not strongly engaged with this topic. Yeah, but what, you know, what if they thought like, well, why are we doing it? Would they think, you know, what we call like a conspiracy theory, oh, because the Jews have a lot of power and they want us to do it? Yeah, I, I think um, maybe the, even the opposite of a conspiracy theory. I mean, Stephen Walt and John J. Mishaim made the point that the Israel lobby is the opposite of a conspiracy theory in that it's not hidden, that it's, it's very obvious that there are a diverse coalition of groups that support the Zionist state of Israel and support American support for the Zionist state of Israel, and they're very open. So I think uh, many Americans would recognize that there is a powerful coalition of diverse groups that support an interventionist American uh, policy towards Israel. But it's kind of the opposite of a conspiracy theory because it's it's so open and obvious. Yeah, I'm just using those terms, say, like, you know, from, like, the ADL perspective that now, um, you know, even according to the statistics, like, you know, what the, the ADL would consider you a anti-Semitic conspiracy theory where, where you know, like, if you believe that Jews are more loyal to Israel than America, you're, you know, that's one of the anti-Semitic tropes, even though the majority of Americans believe that. And then at this point where the ADL, uh, you know, with their like questionnaire of like the 10 questions, and if you have to answer over half of them, yes, uh, you're considered, you know, like a full-blown anti-Semite. And at this point, I think 20% of America in the most recent ADL survey answered like over half of the questions, yes. And so that extent, I mean, according to the ADL, 20% uh, of Americans are anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists. Okay, I understand your point. I would say probably 10% of American Jews are more concerned with the welfare of the Jewish state of Israel than they are with 
the United States. But uh, I would not say that a majority of American Jews are more concerned and more loyal to Israel than they are to America, because if they were, they'd, they'd move to Israel. So I was going to move on to a different question, unless you wanted to say anything further on this one. Yeah, well, I mean, you brought off the topic of Richard Spencer, but you know, whatever you want to talk about is fine if you want to bring it back to the Twitter space. Okay, yeah, I, I do, but just as an example of a wider trend, and that is, I think, an important line of analysis, whether it's of primary importance or secondary importance, is when you hear someone saying something public, whether it's me, whether it's you, whether it's Richard Spencer, whether it's a university professor, whether it's an ethnic a activist or a religious activist, one's first or second question should be, how is the ideology that this person is stating, how does that enhance the, the individuals or the group's power and prestige, influence, and money-making abilities? I, I think a, a dominant motivation for almost everyone is self-importance. And so when you hear someone say something, first ask, you know, how does this benefit them? How does this increase how is this an attempt by them to increase their own prestige? What do you think of that uh, line of analysis against uh, pundits, live streamers, activists, and academics? I would phrase it more in terms of cognitive psychology, neuroscience, that would talk about predictive processing. And in terms that people were required in order to function to have some sort of understanding of the external world and therefore, a lot of like neuroscientists will say that's how the brain works and that's naturally how all humans function, that the brain makes predictions. And that would be you know, for basic physical things, like if you're walking down the street and you need to take in, uh, you know, like driving and you need to not bump into things or correctly identify uh, objects, uh, but also in terms of like worldviews or what you call like hero systems, that uh, the person's worldview uh, or however you want to define it, which I wouldn't necessarily disagree with, is basically just a form of predictively processing the world. And um, all predictive processing is flawed. No one correctly understands the world. And therefore, all predictive systems come up short, but we need one anyway. So we have to work with the uh, best one we have. We have to work with the best information that we have. And as we gain more information, you know, then you have cognitive dissonance where it's like, oh, my predictive system, my hero system uh, that uh, was helping me navigate the world is failing me. And then you have the difficulty of changing hero systems to more correctly navigate the world. And then you have you know, cognitive dissonance where you're going to double down on a system, even though it's failing to make uh, predictions that uh, are helping you. And, you know, that's what you were mentioning. That's why you need valid uh, criticism, self-reflection uh, and these uh various aspects. I, I think you even once quoted the uh, Carl Friston paper on active inference. So I'm not sure how much you've studied the, uh, but but yeah, I think it's best termed in this uh, phraseology of predictive processing. Okay. Uh, and you see it to varying degrees, right? Some people are much more susceptible to trying to inflate their self-importance than others. I mean, I think it's just so obvious with Richard Spencer, just always trying to inflate his his, his role in the world and in world history, uh, as opposed to more disinterested observers. Uh, another theme that I haven't... That I just, well, just, just in your terms, okay, because it's never happened to me. 
I wouldn't make a predictive processing. Like, so if Kristen Ruby is messaging Richard Spencer and bombing him with all these questions, his predictive processing, you know, like if his self-importance might be like, obviously she wants to have sex with me. You know, she's into me. And he has some sort of predictive processing. Well, that's happened to him in the past. So like I could be living in a fantasy world, but I said like, no, no, like she does not want to have sex with me. She just wants to, uh, you know, dig up this information or get this information from me. Cause like my predictive processing never once in my life, you know, has a woman, uh, you know, just thrown herself at me. And you know, maybe from your perspective, you could also, you have that self aggrandizement, you know, to uh, when you were a kid and no, never once in your life, a woman had thrown yourself at her at you. Uh, you know, you wouldn't even think that that was a possibility, but once it happened a few times, you might over predict that any woman who's talking to you is doing that. So, you know, Richard Spencer had that moment of glory, and so, like, you know, relatively well, have I, I've never really had that moment of glory, so I'm not going to get too much into these delusions of self grandeur. But uh, for someone who's had that moment of glory, you know, even like Ricardo was like, Well, I'm back. Or like, you know, like even the, your channel, like Luke is back. So anytime you get that moment of glory, you're like, well, I'm back. And, uh, you know, if you think that's what happened, you know, Richard Spencer, even when he's talking like that chick, you know, something like, you know, kind of like, I don't know if he was referring to Kristen Ruby, who was probably, you know, the one who initiated the stream, who probably, you know, if we get back to even a few of the guests, that big guests that were on it, uh, my guests were probably also orchestrated by her. Uh, but uh, Richard Spencer, she's just some chick that's obviously into him. I find uh, Kristen Ruby just absolutely delightful in the, the tiny number of interactions I've had with her. Is that how you would describe her? Yeah, I mean, she, I mean, like, I mean, almost like, okay, like, well, yeah, I mean, she's bigger than I am. Like, she's, uh, you know, like, uh, on mainstream news, she's a relatively attractive, intelligent, wealthy, prominent woman. But I'm saying from Richard Spencer, like he probably in his own mind, she's like, obviously she digs me, she's into me. And if that's yeah. what you mean, like the self-aggrandizement where, you know, maybe at your stage, like you're not having the delusions that Kristen Ruby, like you're just like, well, obviously she wants the dirt on frame games. She's not messaging you because she's in, you know, she digs you. She's messaging you because she wants you to spill the beans on what you know about frame games. What Richard Spencer, he probably at this point still thinks like, she can't really care about frame games. She's probably, you know, she digs me. She's just like some chick that digs me. I'm, I'm respectful and envious of people who are socially smooth, like, uh, like Ruby. So some people go through life in just a graceful, elegant way. Some people know how to interact with strangers, acquaintances, friends, uh, coworkers, competitors in a graceful and elegant way and they take that grace and their elegance with them you know throughout life and and i just so admire that there's just like an effortless grace with some people because i feel so frequently awkward myself do you do you notice that do you notice people just consistently moving through life with uh, grace and elegance and do you feel any envy of that I mean, you know, Perky Alvos feel like, uh, I mean, I think even the Hebrew, like Taiva Kina, uh, you know, re removes a person from this world. So, I mean, uh, envy is a bad character trait that removes you from the world. So, generally, if I feel envy, I try to, I mean, I have a natural inclination, but uh, yeah, I would just try to squash it. Envy is a bad character trait. And I've heard you talk about it in the past, especially probably Hollywood, LA, where there's clearly like, 
you know, like leagues, like someone like Kristen Ruby is like, so, okay, she's out of my league. She takes good care of herself. She's fit. She probably exercises. She's rich. She's educated. She's on Fox news. Um, you know, where you're, well, what about, let's, just, let's change the word envy to admire. It's a good thing to admire good traits in other people and having grace, elegance, and ease with the way that you move through life are admirable qualities. So do you find yourself admiring people with admirable qualities? Yeah, I mean, I constantly, like I was t talking with you a few months ago about taking instruction. Like I spend a lot of my life just taking instruction from people who know things better than me. And I recognize expertise and learn from experts. And so when someone who is more successful takes their time to talk to me, I usually try to be respectful and I usually try to recognize the value proposition that, you know, like, obviously you're a busy person. Obviously you're someone who's accomplished more in your life uh, than I have. And if you're dealing with me, it's probably in some important matter, you know, just the facts and try to deal appropriately. And, you know, in the sense where, you know, Kristen Ruby contacted me, um, I didn't really have any you know, delusion. I mean, obviously she's on Fox News. She's a big personality. She just wanted some dirt on uh, or, or the info on frame games. And I don't think it was anything more than that. Um, OK, OK, let me let me move on. So one way that uh, people get tripped up in trying to understand the world around them is that they take what people say literally as though people actually mean what they say. My life experience is that people much of the time, if not most of the time, do not mean what they say and they do not say what they mean and this this also goes not just for private conversations but it also goes for public dialogues from you know leading elites in academia or business or, or politics that uh, you will frequently encounter an esoteric and an exoteric message you, the exoteric means the public blatant message and such as you know pro democracy our democracy is at stake we need to do more to restore democracy but the esoteric, the hidden message often accompanying those pronouncements is that uh, by pro-democracy, we mean shoring up the democratic institutions that uh, people like me dominate and control. And we, we don't want to lose our power. We don't want to lose elite control of the world around us, which is really the very opposite of the exoteric message. So frequently the esoteric message, whether it comes from intellectuals or people that we talk to in our daily life on a private basis, frequently the esoteric message is the very opposite of the exoteric, blatant public message. Do you have any thoughts on this phenomenon? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I haven't used that terminology. Um, and then, you know, if you put in the terms like predictive processing or identity uh, um, theory, you know, self-consciousness, uh, how we portray ourselves and, and uh, your role theory or even we talked about the narrative theory of uh, identity of uh, McAdams a, a while back where you end up in a role with different people and then you might let your guard down or, you know, feel that feel some sort of social power over somebody that causes you to act in a different way or, or social vulnerability when you're interacting with someone that has more uh, power, social capital with you. And that will change your identity versus, uh, you know, maybe someone's on your own league or we could just, be friends, we're on the same level, and you know, try to work together, exchange secrets. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, your terminology is you know, probably interesting and uh, you know, relatively accurate way of explaining a phenomenon. And uh, synagogue, Detroit synagogue president Samantha Wall was murdered a few months ago. 
uh, they they found a man who broke and entered into her home, and they say that you know this guy, someone who didn't know her, was responsible for her death. Any any reflections on this incident? And I'm going to step away for two minutes. So can you carry the show for two minutes? Yeah. So the you know God forbid it's been delayed. So it's actually this week. I think the 17th. Well, they're supposed to finally release the evidence. Uh, you know, so it'd been months and I was leaning towards like inside job where it was some sort of like, you're probably like a you're Jewish uh, person she was dating and there was evidence and the police were hitting that way. And then all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, they arrest this guy and it's like, no, it was just a random break in. And, uh, you know, guy who was uh, breaking into cars in the area and she happened to have left her front door unlocked and he entered and whatever reason ended up killing her. Um, so that arrest occurred a few weeks ago, maybe already like a month ago. Uh, but they, like the grand jury indictment hasn't happened yet and they've postponed it a few times. So the evidence against him still hasn't been released. It was supposed to be released on January 2nd and then it got delayed till January 17th, which will be in the middle of this week. And so then we'll have all the evidence uh, of whether it's likely that this guy actually killed her. Maybe it was a greater conspiracy. And I, I guess at some level, maybe my, uh, you know, being pro-diversity or, you know, liberal, I almost would rather have it been some sort of uh, internal Jewish dispute or, or God forbid, jealous boyfriend than the most obvious, which would have been just a, a random black on uh, white crime, a theft gone wrong. So, uh, but yeah, I'll be following it. You know, like I'll cover on my week in review next week after the court case and we'll go over all the uh, evidence. And so, yeah, I just mentioned Luke, like they haven't, Wednesday, they're going to be the hearing and the police are going to release all the evidence that they have and try to indict him. He's declared, he's uh, said he's not guilty. His lawyer said, uh, you know, there's even conspiracy theories that like people want the crime solved. So they're just trying to pin it on some random black guy so we'll have to wait to see okay uh, let me, this week okay. what the evidence is let me let me jump in here one more topic uh the, the tunnelers under 770 eastern parkway the worldwide headquarters of kabad my perspective was i can i can empathize and resonate with the tunnelers because i suspect these are not people who are flourishing in life i suspect these the people who are creating these tunnels are not people who have thriving careers or thriving family life, but what they're primarily tunneling for is meaning and purpose and a sense that they're making a difference in the world and that they are connected to something grand. And so they believe that they're fulfilling the, the will of the Rebbe and they are creating something bigger than themselves and they're creating a way to feel significant. What do you think of that analysis of the tunnelers and I, I see the same sort of thing motivating people like me and a lot of other live streamers. We're tunneling for meaning, purpose, significance. We're tunneling to create a room, a community, a, a part of life where we can feel important. Yeah, so, you know, ironically, like, Richard Spencer muted me on the stream related to what I mentioned on the tunnels. And he had, like, this other loudmouth guy that... Uh, you know, Charles encouraged, Johnson, yeah. And encouraged him. And then he eventually, like, like a few minutes later, just bounced me off the stream so he could bring other people on. And what I had mentioned you know, regarding the tunnels was that 770 is not that important 
anymore for international Chabad. And I've been to 770 like 50 times. And part of the whole purpose of, you know, the Rebbe and Ishliak movement was to protect Jews through having like international, like, okay, maybe like America could turn against the Jews or one country could, but the Jews are everywhere now. And, uh, you know, so Chabad is decentralized. And at this point, like when the Rebbe was alive, he passed away in 1994, 770 was the central headquarters. Like everyone went to see the Rebbe. They had multiple gatherings there every week. Right. And, but, but don't you think that they were, they were doing something to feel important? Whether or they were wrong is entirely a separate matter. We, we all do things to feel important that are delusional. Do you, do you agree with me that what was driving them was this desperate need to tunnel towards a feeling of significance in their life? Yeah, so I'm mentioning the point where one th it's kind of the the Haredi dream and like, okay, like I ended up talking with Adam Green sometimes. He's doing Twitter spaces in his circle and a few other people you probably haven't even heard of, uh, you know, kind of like remnants of the alt-right, although they're not kind of like not even the alt-right, but like the J J JQ conspiracist. So like I'm still active in that debating people, Twitter spaces, and you probably haven't been following that. Um, but like, yeah, the Adam Green type stuff or even like the Keith Woods, even on Stephen James, where like everybody hits you with like, oh, like you think that you're going to have 2,800 slaves, like, you know, like Messiah is going to come and you think like when Messiah comes, like the Goyim are going to be slaves to the Jews. And to some extent, there is this Chabad Jewish dream that the Rebbe portrayed that, yes, any lowly Jew is a prince. Like, you're a Jew, even if you're just the lowest of low Haredi person, orphan, orphan, no education, you're a Jew, you're a prince. The best, the worst Jew is still better than the best goy. And you could take the Rebbe's teachings, train yourself up, and then go someplace to the world and you will be a leader, you know, like God forbid the conspiracy, you'll have your like 2,800 slaves, but in the sense that like, yes, like all you have to do, go to 770, train yourself up, study the Rebbe's teachings, and then eventually they'll send you someplace and you'll be a leader and you'll have your uh, prosperity. And I'm not sure if you would have that assessment of kind of like the Chabad dream of uh yeah, any any group essentially has that that message, whether it's a football club or a religious group. Um, every every group is essentially selling the message that if you join us, you'll never walk alone; that you'll be part of something of great significance. Well, but also that that you could take like any lowly Orthodox Jew and turn him into a leader. And the Rebbe... Yes, and who, who brings ultimate redemption, right? Who brings ultimate redemption. By, by doing a mitzvah, you can bring about the ultimate redemption of the world. Yeah, I mean, why are these people tunneling under 770, uh, you know, like power trying to expand it? Because, like, the Rebbe believed in me. Like, the yes. Rebbe didn't think I was just some worthless Orthodox Jew that had no future and should just dump my beliefs and secularize and give up on believing this stuff. Like, no, the Rebbe believed in me. And he could have turned me into a leader. He could have sent me somewhere where I would have, uh, you know, had my own Chabad house and my own following. And, uh, you know, somewhat uniquely the Lubavitch message say, well, why are these people tunneling? So there's a few problems. One problem is that Chabad has been oversaturated. Like, I'm not sure, like Beverly Hills, L.A., 
I wouldn't be surprised. There's probably already like 50 Chabad houses in Los Angeles, right? Yeah. And like in Beverly Hills, there's probably like 10 Chabadsters out there yeah. all trying, competing with each other for you know, the same basic ideas. Like, okay, I went to Yeshiva. I'm going to go into Beverly Hills. I'm going to teach Judaism 101. And then I'm going to like open up a synagogue and these rich people are going to give me their money and I'm going to become a leader and like the mayor is going to come to my menorah lighting, so on and so on. Right. Yes. But it's oversaturated. Like now there's already like 50 Chabad houses in Los Angeles. There's probably like, you know, because Beverly Hills is probably one of the nicest place. There's probably like 20 Chabadsters, um, you know, like roaming every synagogue in Beverly Hills. And it's oversaturated. Like at this point, uh, the mission has already been accomplished. They've already sent um, multiple Chabad rabbis to every major Jewish institution. And they're even sending like, you know, basically Chabad people to you know, just places that maybe a Jew will come and like one day want kosher food in a minion so that, you know, you're going to go to like the far East or, or these various aspects. But uh, yeah. the dream is still alive. That's why it's so important. Like the Chiyadonenu that the Rebbe was Mashiach because it keeps the dream alive. And where, you know, I think most Jews, yourself included, we've had these debates many times, kind of have a negative view towards Haredi Jews. Like that, like, look, you don't have a future. You have to change your ways. You have to become more modern. Um, the teachings aren't true. Um, you're not going to be able to just like tunnel under 770 and then one day be like some, uh, you know, big rabbi. Um, I mean, right. Isn't that kind of like the gist of like arguments we've been having for years? Well, the gist of my the way of life is, is failing. Somewhat. I would say that people should earn their own living and that they should not rely on welfare and that's dishonorable. And so, to the extent that Haredi Jews depend upon welfare or to the extent that able-bodied non-Haredi Jews rely upon welfare, I think that is bad. So I would like everyone who's able-bodied to get off welfare and to earn a living for themselves. Yeah, so there was like the, the Rebbe in the movement was unparalleled successful in the sense that he saw like he came to America and like even you're in Los Angeles, like relatively to like uh, someone who grew up Orthodox, uh, like even modern Orthodox people, it's like, oh, my God, like these guys don't know crap about Judaism. Like they don't even know how to daven right. They don't even know simple laws that you could take like even a B-rate student from Yeshiva and he could like replace conservative reform rabbis, even some modern Orthodox rabbis. And to some point that was successful. And like it is true that even like B-rate yeshiva students were able to go around america and replace reform and conservative rabbis who who uh you know, didn't even know hebrew how to do the prayers or like anything about israel um and, and that was why chabad was so successful but at this point it's been oversaturated okay yeah. okay we've made made that point i i, I gotta move on uh duvid it's uh great to okay. talk to you man but i was mentioning like related to the tunnels so like why are people you, you know like so why are these israelis uh, you know, going to seven seven, they still want that dream, and to some extent, that dream's not there anymore. And uh, you know, that's and that's what I don't know if you agree with me. Like that's what what they bounced me when I was like seven seventy is not even that significant to international Chabad anymore. Like uh, here in Detroit, we train rabbis that move on to new locations. They might make pilgrimage to seven seventy. I'm sure in Los Angeles, there's like a Chabad yeshiva where like the graduates go on to become shlukim. And maybe they make pilgrimage to 770, but 
it's not really that significant anymore. So it's these people like chasing this dream that doesn't exist anymore. Okay, David, good to catch up with you. Take care, man. Okay. Yeah. God bless. Thanks for having me on. God bless. Yeah. Okay. So a uh, few quick thoughts on what David was just talking about. Uh, so people resent competition. <laughs> All right. A normal thing. Let's say you're an established live streamer. You start your live stream, say, every weekday at 4 p.m. Right. You're going to resent, you know, people you know or people you've helped, you know, who start uh, competing live stream. And so many uh, Chabad rabbis with an established synagogue, established congregation, established community are going to resent competition. So even when you become religious, right, you don't transcend the human condition. So there have been great rabbis who have not wanted to move to a certain institution or a certain community because if they moved there, then they would no longer be number one. So they'd rather stay in a small community where they're number one than go to a bigger, more influential community that in many ways is much better suited for them but then deal with the humiliation of being number two. So you don't get to transcend the human condition by becoming super religious. And so there's a great deal of competition for power and for resources among Chabad rabbis, just like there is for, for anyone else. Uh, had had so many thoughts there on what uh, David was talking about. And, oh, well, this... Uh, story about tunnels under 770 it's kind of a Rorschach's test and you see it coming out with Richard he was very open to all sorts of super nefarious explanations so I just see this as garden variety delusional uh, activity by some fringe members of the Chabad movement but for people who consistently have negative views about Jews right it's a Rorschach's test it just shows they're they're going to immediately look for some dastardly, horrific, you know, negative, uh, anti-social reason that uh, Jews are doing this, and they're going to look at this not just as the misguided activity of a handful of Jews, but as representative of Jews as a whole. Uh, the chat notes that uh, Gonzalo Lira, Coach Red Pill, has died in a Ukrainian detention center, a strange and sad end. Yes, and he was delusional that he could live in Ukraine and trash the Ukrainian efforts to resist the Russian invasion. So people tend to create their own misery. I have been the biggest source of my own misery. My own insensitivity to other people, my own lack of recognition of how my words and how my behavior is affecting other people has led to my social exclusion has led to girlfriends breaking up with me, has led to the loss of economic and social and romantic connections, has led to the loss of jobs and income. Uh, me, you know, just being incredibly self-centered and not thinking about other people, right, has, has led to a life of frequent humiliation, all right? I have consistently been the number one source of my own misery, at age 57, I am still consistently the number one source for my own misery. I am particularly prone to exaggerating the level of uh, interest that uh, some attractive young woman has shown in me simply because she smiled at me and talked with me for half an hour, an hour, two hours, or hung out with me at this event or 
that event and I have developed, you know, an exaggerated sense of my own romantic attraction from her towards me. I have consistently exaggerated my own importance and my own capabilities in all sorts of areas of life. And whenever I do that, I seem to consistently get humiliated. So I have suffered humiliation over the past few weeks because I had an exaggerated sense of my own importance. So very much remain the number one cause of my own misery. And uh, Gonzalo Lira was the number one cause of his own misery. Didn't he use the, the name Coach Red Pill? Duvid says, delusional desperation based on the hope that uh, they too can become great Jews of power and wealth through the magical power of the Rebbe. So for narcissists like myself, we will often feel this overwhelming pull to get close to successful people because we feel that if we can attach ourselves to someone successful, that we will become successful ourselves, that it will rub off on us that it will increase our, our status. So when I talk to you know, very successful people, when I am socializing with people who move through life with grace and elegance and ease, often that has an intoxicating effect. And it's often not even rational or conscious. I just feel this, oh man, if I can just you know, build a connection with this person, it can transport me to a life of elegance and ease where I learn to emulate the elegance and ease that you know, this person demonstrates consistently in his behavior with other people. I'm sure that was a great part of my obsession with Dennis Prager. Right? I, I saw someone who consistently uh, conducted himself with you know, elegance and ease, and I thought, you know, I want that. Right? I want to, to walk through life as, as successfully as Dennis. Like I saw something that uh, that filled a hole in my soul. That that's why people get gurus, right? They encounter something that simply meets a hole in their soul, and from their emptiness and from their pain, that they get this idea: Ah, oh, if only I could you know, become friends with, join the social circle of this person, I would transport myself into a higher realm. I could live a a better life. I could learn to move through life with the, the grace and elegance and ease and effectiveness of, you know, the, the great man, in, in this case, uh, Dennis Prager. Yeah. Teaches me the lesson not to wear earphones during our broadcast. But uh, no, I don't. But the um, uh, but my wife, my wife is converted to Judaism. So she is as, as Jewish as I am. Uh, from the perspective of Judaism, a convert is the same as a born Jew. Uh, but she was she comes from a christian home so i have all of her family over and we have a very big christmas dinner which i love i even wear my kippah at the dinner uh because it, it's my my way of uh, of both re- reminding everyone that this is the a, the jew in your family who is enjoying this with you and and because it's a holy day it's not my holy day but it is a holy day and it is their holy day and so i i i open up with a prayer and uh it's it's a very beautiful time uh for uh for my wife and her family 
and this, especially for her family, but especially for my wife too, because she has all the people over. We have a lot of people over. Right. So stuff like that may mean nothing to you, but when I was 21, 22 at UCLA, my life had fallen apart due to chronic fatigue syndrome. I you know, realized that through the best of my efforts, my life was absolute misery. And I encounter someone who seems to demonstrate you know, grace and ease and elegance and seems to be a righteous person and a successful person and a person who's consistently doing good in the world and someone who lays this alluring quilt of, of meaning over the world and I could follow him and enlist in his battle against evil, right? that, that just took me over and, and consumed me and made an absolute fool of me. I spent hundreds of dollars sending subscriptions to his newsletter, Ultimate Issues, to all sorts of friends of mine from UCLA who had absolutely no interest whatsoever in Dennis Prager's newsletter, but I wasted hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, you know, buying Dennis Prager materials and sending them as wide and far as I could. It meant a great deal to me when I was 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, that I was Dennis Prager's number one customer. <laughs> All right. I got meaning in life out of buying more Dennis Prager materials than anybody else that I spent more money. Like I, I should have been spending my money you know, trying to regain my health and trying to rebuild my life. But no, I was getting my meaning, my purpose in life from such a fragile basis as being Dennis Prager's number one customer at the Dennis Prager store, buying his lectures for $10 each, right? sending out subscriptions to his newsletter for something like $25 a year. It was absurd, but is on such slender reads, many of us base our meaning. And I, I got meaning in life that when I would send a letter to Dennis Prager, he would write back to me. And I would I would share his tapes with, with friends of mine who were inspired by the, the tapes and they moved to Orthodox Judaism and then they wrote Dennis Prager and says, Hey, there's this guy, Luke Ford, who shared your tapes with me and they changed my life and Dennis Prager would write back, Anyone who's a friend of Luke Ford's is a friend of mine. And that just meant everything to me. When my life had fallen apart, when my life was you know, otherwise absolute misery and humiliation and failure, that Dennis Prager would write to people I know and say, oh, anyone who's a friend of Luke Ford's is a friend of mine, that uh, Dennis Prager would use me as an example in his public speeches about you know, his desire to touch people with good values on university campuses that uh, I was this uh, Fabrenta, passionate Marxist who used to call into his show. And then eventually I said, ah, oh, Dennis, I realized I was wrong, that I was looking for a substitute religion in Marxism, but now you've introduced me to Judaism. It's the, it's the real thing. And here's an authentic way that I can meet this authentic need that I have for transcendent connection. Thank you for changing my life. And wherever I'd go, I'd talk about how Dennis Prager changed my life and would get back to Dennis Prager and that would make him feel good. When I finally met Dennis Prager in person, he said, you know, I, I, can, I can die happy. I can die at peace knowing that you will be there to carry on my work. And can you imagine someone who's, you know, six years into devastating case of chronic fatigue syndrome, whose life has absolutely fallen apart and Super Bowl weekend, uh, January 1994, you know, Dennis Prager says, you know, I can die at peace. I can die happy knowing that you will carry on my work. I mean, it was incredibly intoxicating. That gave meaning and purpose to my life. 
when he said that weekend, ah, oh, if you move to Los Angeles, I, I might have work to you. It's like, oh my God, I can work for my hero. And I, I thought by you know carrying on Dennis Prager's work that I could transform myself from being the rather self-centered, inconsiderate, awkward, self-serving, duplicitous, sex-crazed, porn-crazed uh, loser and, and become a, a winner like Dennis Prager, where I could be elegant and at ease and charming and lead a, a blessed life and a successful life and a righteous life and be connected to God and to Torah and to wonderful people everywhere. And it, it just took, took me over, so much so that I would say the most ridiculous things. In, in 2010, I visited Loma Linda University. I was on a panel about Jews, Christians, and the Seventh-day Sabbath. And after the panel, I was walking with a friend around the Loma Linda University campus, and he kind of didn't understand, like many people who've known me, like, why are you so obsessed with Dennis Prager? And this, mind you, is like 13 years after Dennis Prager and I have personally fallen out because in 1997, I started writing a blog about his uh, daily radio show, started compiling an unauthorized biography of Dennis Prager online. And so basically he stopped talking to me and all the friends that I had in common with Dennis Prager turned their backs on me. So all I lost all of my friends in Los Angeles, but still I had this crazed idealistic conception of Dennis Prager because he met the psychological need I had to feel some sort of connection to an elegant, graceful, righteous, godly way of life. And so people couldn't understand my obsession with Dennis Prager. And if I were honest, I couldn't understand it either. I'd have all sorts of rationalizations. I like to talk about, oh, I've always had heroes. I know having heroes isn't cool. Uh, Dennis Prager is a substitute father figure for me. I had kind of a, a limited and difficult relationship with my own father. And so Dennis Prager has met this vital need I have for a father figure. And he inspires me whether or not, you know, he personally approves of my blogging or many things that I've said. And I had to move away from Dennis Prager starting in 1997 because I got online, started blogging regularly July 3, 1997. But I was primarily blogging about the pornography industry. And the first question I would consistently get from people were, what does Dennis Prager think about what you're doing? And that was a horrible question because the, the dark, dirty truth was I would not have ended up in this dark part of, of life if not for Dennis Prager because he'd recommended these books by the late UCLA psychiatrist, Dr. Robert Stoller, on erotic excitement. And Dr. Robert Stoller wrote two books on the pornography industry. As I was sex-crazed and, and porn-crazed, I kind of took this as Dennis Prager's tacit endorsement of you know, writing a book on the porn industry because he recommended Robert Stoller, the works of Robert Stoller on erotic excitement. So I thought, wow, if, if Robert Stoller, UCLA psychiatrist, can write two books on the pornography industry, Luke Ford can write one and still be a mensch, still be a righteous Jew, still, still be a good guy. And so for months, I tried to massage this awkward situation and I, I ran my response by Dennis and I said, well, I tell them that you're some combination of amused and appalled by my choice of, of what I'm doing. And he said, yeah, that, that's fine. Because I didn't want to tarnish Dennis with my tawdry activities. And yet I kind of thought, Dennis, you sort of led me in this direction by endorsing the works of Robert Stoller. He wrote two books on the pornography industry. Why can't I write an you know, academic elevated lofty tome on the pornography industry too? 
And I remember uh, Dennis Prager once uh, introduced me to the the Mexican help who were serving us our our Sabbath lunch at at synagogue at Stephen S. Wise Temple, and he would say, "Oh, this this is the most religious man in his profession," and he he, he meant the the pornography profession. And I would tease Dennis back and I'd say, oh, I want to dedicate my, my next book to you because I was writing History of X, 100 Years of Sex and Film. And Dennis would go, oh, no, no, I, I'm not worthy. Like, wait until you write a, a biography of the Vilna Gaon and, you know, dedicate th- that book to me. But the tension just became unbearable. All right. I, I couldn't praise Dennis Prager and value his teachings and simultaneously be developing a blog that was about the pornography industry. And so I couldn't live with the tension anymore. And so I thought, okay, I need to write about something else aside from the pornography industry. Let me start a blog in addition to the pornography industry. Let me start a blog about Dennis Prager. And Dennis Prager's assistant, who was a good friend of mine at the time, she said, if you do that, none of us will ever talk to you again. Dennis won't talk to you again. I won't talk to you again. Or your friends in Los Angeles, none of them will talk to you again. So I was warned. I did it. I thought I was strong enough to handle it. But that social exclusion just absolutely killed me. It devastated me. Like everything, everything that was holding my life together was ripped away. And how did I hold myself up? Well, one thing I did is I then became vulnerable to a fortune teller. I'd broken my wrist playing touch football. And so I've gotten surgery on my wrist and I got a prescription for pain medication, which I never ended up taking. But as I was standing in line for my pain medication, this uh, woman tapped me on the shoulder and I'm so vulnerable now. I've lost all my friends in Los Angeles. And she says, I'm getting a special feeling about you. Because I was vulnerable, right? I found Dennis Prager in the first place and made him this mythic substitute father figure for me. And now I've lost Dennis Prager and all the friends that I had in Los Angeles. Now this woman along comes along and says, she's getting a special feeling about me. Wow, I was so needy that I bought into that. And she turned out to be a gypsy fortune teller. So I kept going to her. And what was the basis that I went to her? Right, this, is, this is a few months after I totally destroyed my you know, very limited relationship with Dennis Prager. And I said, oh, you know, I want to get my relationship, my friendship back with, with Dennis Prager. And so I'm spending hundreds of dollars, right, eventually about $900 that I could not afford because my credit cards were maxed out at this point at about 22000 in credit card debt. And I spent $900 on this gypsy fortune teller to try to restore my relationship with Dennis Prager that I blew up for the sake of my own blogging to get away from the impossible tension that came with both venerating Dennis Prager and writing a blog about the pornography industry. And so the first time I go to this gypsy fortune teller, I drop about on her. They were very smart. She started me off. Oh, you know, I'll read your fortune for $5. But then she had all these add-ons. She upsold me on various add-ons to her fortune telling. And so I think I dropped $50 on her that first time. And I walk home. And for the first and only time in my life, I came home and I found an email from Dennis Prager that was not a reply to an email I'd sent to him. So the only time in my life that I received An unsolicited email from Dennis Prager was after I dropped $50 on this gypsy fortune teller. And the email quoted something that I'd just written about two hours before. 
about how I'd come home from the hospital after being held in overnight at the hospital after my wrist surgery. What was the reason I was held in overnight? Because I had a panic attack as I came out of surgery. I just felt so alone because I'd walked to the hospital, right? No one had taken me to the hospital and no one was picking me up at the hospital. And I felt so alone and I felt so broken and I was so uncomfortable with the direction of my life. I felt like I was betraying everything good that I'd ever stood for. I I felt like I was just running in a self-destructive downward spiral, that I was stuck in some negative trends in my life that I could not surmount. I felt absolutely alone. I'd lost all my friends in Los Angeles. I'd largely alienated myself from my family. My life was just going, going down, 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 down. My life was going to hell. And so I had I'd blogged what a comfort it was to come out of surgery, have them finally release me the next day and get home and to be able to turn on Dennis Prager's radio show. So even though I completely alienated myself from Dennis Prager, any normal person would look at what I was doing by my blogging about him against his wishes as the grossest betrayal. But here I blog what a comfort I find it is to you know, go through surgery and come out of it, get home, and to listen to Dennis Prager. And Dennis Prager quoted my blog post in his unsolicited email to me after I visited the Gypsy Fortune Teller. Then he wrote, I hope you remember that the next time, comma, for whatever reason, comma, you want to hurt me. So when I or anyone who's been close to Dennis Prager makes a criticism of him publicly, it's usually experienced by Dennis Prager as it's not that this person has a genuine disagreement with me. It's this person wants to hurt me. See, I was, I was always you know, much lower in status, right? I never had status comparable to, to Dennis Prager. And so I've also experienced this when you, when you get a fan, right? At various times of my life, I've had you know, this or that fan, and, and then you... You hear these wonderful things from the fan, and then you reciprocate and you try to be helpful. But, you know, eventually no one is purely a fan, all right? Everyone who's quote-unquote a fan will eventually be critical or, you know, completely come out and publicly publicly critique you, publicly uh, challenge you, right? And they're not doing it really out of betrayal. It's just that. We always have competing values. And so there may be someone you you admire, right? You might respect me for this or that, but then I come along and say something or do something which violates your your hero system, right? I may violate, you know, everything that you find true and good and beautiful and holy. And so in loyalty to your higher value system, to your hero system, you will feel compelled after publicly praise me to publicly critique me. And then I will experience that as betrayal. Like, how could, how could this person who I thought was my, my fan, how could they deny me? So I never had any status, right? I just always had this you know, mentor-fan relationship. And Dennis has been very clear to say, you know, I was never friends with Luke Ford. He was never a student. I, I, this was his quote to the Jewish Journal in 2007 when they did a cover story on me. He said, I think at some point I may have had a positive influence on him, but now I don't know. So Dennis Prager you know, has often been asked about Luke Ford. You know, how do you explain what he's saying and doing? And it's a great embarrassment to him. 
as I was a great embarrassment to my father and to my family. Like my father was the preacher man, and then I became the the king of porn by writing a, a gossipy website and blog about the pornography industry. It was just absolutely shaming for my my father in particular and my 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 stepmother as well. And so they'd constantly be asked to explain or justify you know how their youngest son had so deviated from everything that they teach is true and good and beautiful and holy and godly. So I caused enormous distress to my parents, other parts of my family, caused enormous distress to my friends. I caused enormous distress and pain to inconvenience to Dennis Prager. Like the poor guy, he didn't ask for, for this. He didn't ask to have you know some fan come into his life and then critique him publicly, repeatedly. It... it, it must feel to Dennis Prager and to any normal observer of us as I am exhibiting the, the basest ingratitude. Now, from my perspective, I've just been following the truth, whether the, during the times that I'm following Dennis Prager and praising Dennis Prager or critiquing and criticizing Dennis Prager, I experience it as I am following the truth. I am you know, seeking what is true and beautiful and good and holy and godly whether I'm praising or critiquing Dennis Prager, but that's not how it comes across. I remember I was dating this one woman in 1998, and she looked at something I'd written about Dennis Prager that was a critique. She burst into tears, and she turned to me, and she said, this is the person you admire more than anybody in the world, and yet you write this? It it reminded me, when I was converting to Judaism, uh, a secular Jewish friend who I had lent Dennis Prager tapes and he'd become an Orthodox Jew in large part through through me and my influence and my story and my passion and the, the materials that I'd shared with him, but he didn't like my scathing nature, right? So I have a part of myself that is yearning to join, yearning to join a group, to join a cult, to join, connect, to, to you know, build something with other people however you, you want to understand it. That, that's one part of me. It wants to connect with others. And then I have another part of me that is a critiquer, an investigator. And so same with Kundalini Yoga. I love Kundalini Yoga, but I then investigated all the downsides to Kundalini Yoga and blogged about the, the downsides. So too, when I was immersed in, in Judaism at the same time, I was filled with critiques of, of Judaism. And so my, my new friend said, why don't you go scathe somebody else? You know, why don't you become a Muslim or a Buddhist? Because it strikes people as the basis in gratitude to have someone who converts to Judaism or converts to becoming a fan of Dennis Prager who then critiques Judaism or Dennis Prager. So everybody I've known who's heard of my Dennis Prager story thinks that I have exhibited the basis in gratitude. Like virtually nobody thinks, oh, 40, he's just been pursuing the truth the whole time. And sometimes... He thought that the truth lay with Dennis Prager, and then other times he thought that Dennis Prager was concealing or demeaning or diminishing the truth. And so the pursuit of truth is the admirable through line in 40's story, right? Nobody seems to think that, right? They, They all see me as just incredibly socially awkward and ungrateful and mad, bad, and dangerous to know. All right, that's... That's what people get when they hear about my Dennis Prager story. Like, 40, he is mad, bad, and dangerous to know. And I just see, I'm a humble servant of the truth. 
I'm uh, an intellectual gigolo. I am constantly falling in love with new ideas and ultimately staying loyal to none. Whenever I run into Dennis Prager, he kind of has a bemused attitude towards me. And his typical question is like, you know, 40, what are you into now? Like, what is your kick now? What is your new intellectual exuberance now? Because he knows that I'm just constantly changing. And my, my father knew that too. Like, whatever I'm excited about today, right, I'm going to be excited about something completely different in a few days, a few weeks, a few months. My, my therapist said something profound to me about a year in. And I walked into therapy one day, and, and I'd received these two very stern letters from Dennis Prager's attorneys. And I had published lengthy excerpts of Dennis Prager's essays on my blog. And they, the lawyers warned me that I was in legal peril, that I'd committed copyright infringement. And so I walked into therapy, and I go, oh, I'm so mad at Dennis Prager. Like, you, you, you can't go to, like, lawyers, all right? That's, that's against Jewish law. You should always, you know, try to handle things within the, the Jewish community. You don't go to, you know, outside secular lawyers. And my therapist is like, you're mad at Dennis Prager? Shouldn't he be mad at you? Like, you've betrayed him. You have created embarrassment for him, right? You have inconvenienced him. You're a nuisance to him. You're a pest to him. Uh, like, how on earth do you get to a point where you're mad at Dennis Prager? And so we kind of go back and forth. And then eventually... And I, I'd been in therapy at this point for a year. And a lot of that time, I'd been talking about my relationship with Dennis Prager. So I'd given up on the gypsy because I got no more unsolicited emails from Dennis Prager. So after dropping $900 on the gypsy in the course of about three weeks, I, I gave up on her. But then I spent thousands upon thousands of dollars talking to a psychotherapist, uh, two sessions a week, you know, in large part about you know, Dennis Prager, my lost friendship with Dennis Prager, losing all my friends in Los Angeles, Everyone thinks that I am base, ungrateful, that I have betrayed Dennis Prager, that I'm an internet terrorist, that I am mad, bad, and dangerous to know, while really I'm just a humble servant of the truth. And after a year of my whining and crying and complaining and pulling my hair out of the loss of my friendship with, with Dennis Prager and everyone we had in common, what year did I have that panic attack? It was when I came out of surgery. So it's the only panic attack that I really recall in my life. It was something like April or early May of 1998. And it was when I was being wheeled out of surgery and I'd woken up and I just felt so vulnerable. I felt like if I fall, there's nothing I can do right now in my very foggy state coming out of surgery to save or protect myself. I feel like I have no friends. I feel alone in the world. Everyone who's known me has felt betrayed by me because of what I've written about Dennis Prager. Well, they felt betrayed because on the one hand, I was embracing Judaism. And on the other hand, I was simultaneously writing about the pornography industry. I had embarrassed and shamed my, my parents. I had made my name stink. And by converting to Judaism, all the people that I'd grown up with, they felt that I was telling them implicitly or explicitly that they were wrong. And so they had turned away from me. The people I'd grown up with had turned away from me. My new friends and community that I'd built around Dennis Prager had turned away from me. Uh, parts of my family, my parents had turned away from me. 
Uh, people hated a lot of the things that I was blogging. I was getting death threats. Uh, people would, you know, call up and talk about how they were going to murder me because they took such great exception to what I was writing. Uh, people would talk about how they were going to dedicate themselves to destroying me, that they were going to drive me out of Los Angeles, whether it was Orthodox Jews or pornographers or Dennis Prager people. They all hated me. They all loathed me. They all wanted nothing to do with me. They all had so much contempt for me. I was used chewing gum on the bottom of their shoe. I was trash. It bothered them that they even had to think about me or see me or interact with me. How can someone of such low status, of such low moral caliber, how can someone of such low level of achievement, how can someone who has led such a tawdry life, so how could someone who's so obviously psychologically unstable, like how could how could this person be, be gaining thousands of readers every day on his blog, on his internet website? That, that it's disgusting. He's an internet terrorist. And so my therapist, a year into this, so I'm paying thousands of dollars, and I'd say probably, I don't know, 10% of what I talked about in psychotherapy was related to this, this loss of my, my Dennis Prager friends community. And she said, you want to know what I think? And I said, yes. And it was the first time she'd really given me her opinion. She said, Dennis Prager had such a profound effect on your life that you started this blog about Dennis Prager to try to affect his life, to try to show Dennis that you could affect him too. You were kind of tired of the one-way nature of your relationship with Dennis Prager. It's just him affecting you. You wanted to show Dennis that you could affect his life. And I said, wow. Hmm. Right. That makes that makes sense. I wasn't conscious of that. Right? I was conscious. I was only pursuing truth. That's what I thought. But I immediately recognized the emotional truth of what my therapist said. Now, I didn't abandon writing about Dennis Prager, but I did let go of talking about Dennis Prager in therapy. I just had no need to talk about Dennis Prager in therapy essentially ever again because my, my therapist had nailed my hidden unconscious emotional motivation. Now, just because I had this you know, weird and uncool emotional motivation that was mixing up and perhaps contaminating what I was writing online, I recognized that from impure motives, you could still do good work. And so I believe that my writing on Dennis Prager, like my writing on many different topics, is a contribution, right? This is my, you know, gift to the world. This is this is me doing what I, I do best, right? We all like to do those things that we do well. And so I, I was able to accept and recognize the, the base, uncool nature of my motivation and still take that and transform it and try to build something that was admirable. All right, here's uh, Richard Spencer and company. For, for, some, for some kind of minor reason. And this AI, they've integrated with something, I don't know, maybe it's ChatGPT or a derivative or whatever. And yeah, it was so polite, that thing. It was so much nicer than an actual human. See, that's the problem. People want, like, if, imagine if you, you're an incel or like a pathetic middle-aged man like myself. Like, wouldn't you almost want an AI girlfriend? I mean, it's... Let's go. I, I think it, well, it's like, I would almost answer it in the other way. I, I think it's very, I, th I think where we're going is, it, it's, it's, not, it's not like a, it's not going to be Armageddon, like 1980s sci-fi movies. It, it's like cultural destruction. And, and I think that's worse. 
Yeah, I'm not as I'm, I'm more optimistic, but it, that's a good discussion unto itself. I did yeah. give my kid, I have a six year old, and I gave him a, a children's like Alexa thing. It's like, looks like a bird. Mm-hmm. And I, I went into his room for Christmas and I went into his room and he was having a conversation with it. Okay. I don't think most people are yearning for an AI girlfriend. I think troubled people like Richard Spencer feel a yearning for an AI girlfriend. But healthy people who enjoy normal, healthy relations with others and build up a family of their own. Right, I don't think they're yearning for that uh, AI girlfriend. So th- there's there's a new mental illness I discovered a few years ago that that I have. It's called uh, maladaptive daydreaming. Right, that's an ex- ex- excessive amount of time daydreaming, and for me, I, I daydream about being particularly powerful. So I have dated and bedded powerful women. And they daydream about being helpless and powerless because in the real world, they're incredibly powerful. So they want to let go of that. Uh, in the real world, I am not powerful. All right. I am just another bozo on the bus. So in my fantasy life, I'm an incredibly powerful man. And I like living in the delusions of, you know, what a great mayor of Los Angeles, governor of California. You know, editor of the Jewish Journal, I, I could be. Like, think of what I could do with power because I feel frequently so so powerless and diminished and unsuccessful in, in the real world. So I am very tempted to spend an excessive amount of time daydreaming about what it's like to be powerful. And people like me who yearn for your admiration, right? people like me who yearn for your attention, uh, people like me who have these narcissistic tendencies, right? We are so easy to manipulate, right? If I'm not psychologically and spiritually healthy, where I recognize my own vulnerabilities and recognize that the path of indulging in these yearnings, that the path ultimately ends in humiliation and destruction, right? If I'm not healthy, then I'm incredibly easy to emulate, right? I recently became intoxicated by the attention given to me by a pretty young woman, and I made an absolute fool of myself. I vastly overestimated her level of interest in me. If you're living in reality and you're in a strong, healthy, psychological, spiritual state, you're not going to become delusional because some pretty young woman gives you some attention. But if you are consistently looking for ways to bliss out on some addiction, whether it's pornography, whether it's attention, whether it's dating, whether it's online spending, drugs, alcohol, masturbation, all right, if you're consistently looking for ways to bliss out, Right, you are going to consistently remove yourself from reality. You will be destroying the reputation you have with yourself and inevitably diminishing the reputation with having you have with other people. If you're living in reality and you're not blissing out consistently on addictions so that your daydreams have become maladaptive, all right, then you make better choices and then you feel better about yourself and other people feel better about you. You'll make better choices about where you invest. Right, uh, people like me often make terrible investment choices because we want to live in a world of delusion where we become rich and powerful, and so we're easy to turn into suckers. I came to Hollywood in 1994, and I got taken for thousands of dollars in overpriced acting classes and various scams because I wanted to believe that I was Hollywood star material. And so when these scammy operations, you know, would peddle something to me, oh, we're casting a movie. We think you'd be great. And they even 
they even place announcements in Variety about how Luke Ford is going to be starring in this this new movie. And, you know, I would part with hundreds and even thousands of dollars for people who had enabled my delusions. Then, I think uh, late 1995 or 1996, I, I snapped out of the delusion that I was Hollywood star material. And then nobody ever took advantage of me in this way because I wasn't looking to be taken advantage of. Right? There were various times in my life, particularly around 1994 and again around 2007, early 2008, where I spent thousands of dollars on how to become a great entrepreneur and how I could make you know, a lot of money online. And I spent thousands of dollars on information products and motivational speakers. And then early 2008, I just snapped out of it. Right? I've never been taken in again. So people will successfully enroll you in lies and manipulation and deceit Right, to the extent, basically, that you let them. But when you're living in reality, when you're honest about yourself, when you are cognizant of your own vulnerabilities, when you set yourself on a path of, of self-honesty, right, then when other people say something to you that does not make sense, right, you can immediately grok. They're trying to manipulate you consciously or unconsciously, and you don't get taken in by scams. Right? right now, I am a micro streamer. I am speaking to 32 people on YouTube. I am speaking to zero people on Kick. Right? I am speaking to 12 people on Rumble. And in the end, when I turn this, this live stream into an MP3 and a podcast, right, maybe a thousand people will you know, listen to at least 10 minutes of this stream today. Right? I am a micro streamer. There are a few dozen people who have a pretty strong interest in what I have to say. If I develop an exaggerated sense of my own importance, of my own wisdom, of my own audience, of my own power and influence, if I get this idea that I'm you know, some big deal, right, then I'm going to get humiliated. Right? When you lose touch with reality, the result is inevitably humiliation. And I've been tasting a lot of that lately because I've spent a lot of time in delusion. Oi. Oy vey. Back to Richard Spencer and company. Israel uh, Hamas situation on these spaces. Uh, it's mm -hmm. becoming uh, quite problematic. But back to the uh, frame game, Mike Ben's uh, issue. I'll, I'll sort of work uh, backwards, I guess, from now till where it started. Um, it is interesting um, when he came onto the scene as Mike Ben's, and of course, no one knew ever heard of this person. Um, he's lying about his credentials. He was given this State Department title you know, for the last two months of the Trump administration, and but he never worked there. He was working for Ben Carson and HUD. I mean, that's, he was a speechwriter. Oh. But anyway, as he came onto Twitter and started becoming the censorship expert and getting connected to people, having his profile sort of, you know, amplified more and more and making connections to the Twitter file uh, censorship people, uh, he actually got the uh, department uh, at Twitter that is responsible for investigating influence operations. He got the entire team fired. Wow. Uh, and the person's name was uh, Aaron Roderick, and that uh, office of Twitter's was in Ireland. And um, the guy had put out some sort of uh, ad or posting that they're looking for an elections uh, person to monitor disinformation or whatnot. And uh, Mike Ben started this fear mongering campaign. And uh, since he had previously gotten connected to uh, the Twitter file people, um, uh, Taibbi and Schellenberger, who talked to Musk, he got connected straight to Musk and got that whole team fired. And that is the team that would have you know, you know, found out and exposed someone like Mike Benz or these foreign operators on the platform. So that is one interesting thing. The okay. second thing I wanted to talk about is, um, okay, so what, why?
So I, I talk about first question you should ask about live streamers, pundits, anyone making public pronouncements is how does this announcement enhance their own status? All right, and what are the esoteric and exoteric messages that they are sending? So exoteric is the public blatant message and the esoteric message is the hidden message. This rings true for me. Right, I will start lying without even realizing what I'm doing. I will exaggerate my own importance and my own dignity and my own righteousness without even realizing what I'm doing, or I will realize it and, and do it anyway. I am not consciously going to say things that diminish the quality of my life outside of these live streams. Right? I am going to shape. I am going to discipline. I am going to direct everything that I say in these live streams and on my blog in my own self-interest. I don't want to diminish the quality of my life by things I say here. So I'm going to pull my punches. Right? That presentation I gave about my you know, relationship as tenuous and limited as it was with Dennis Prager, I undersold the, the pathetic nature of my role. I, I'm, I'm not going to tell you, you know, what, what a worm I was at times. And I'm not going to tell you things that will harm me. I'm not going to consciously do that. I'm not going to say things on this live stream that would diminish the most important relationships in my life, which are generally with Orthodox Jews. So I will often be saying one thing and not even realize that my real message is the very opposite. Or I will consciously say one thing and, and uh, realize that to those who will understand, my, my very message is the opposite. I sense Luke is very stressed and suffering from anxiety. May it soon pass. I think the truth is I carry around an exorbitant level of anxiety, and then sometimes it just becomes really obvious. Sometimes it stops being esoteric anxiety, and it becomes exoteric anxiety. It becomes public and, and blatant. So, Self-interest is not the only thing that motivates me, motivates other live streamers and pundits and prognosticators and people trying to shape the world. But it's usually a pretty big role in what people do. So I agree with Pareto that ideology is incredibly flexible. It's something that various individuals and groups will enlist to try to promote their own interests. So for some people say, right-leaning Americans who often vote uh, Republican, all right, they, for, for decades they supported more and more free trade, and then suddenly they've become protectionist uh, under Trump, right? It basically reflects their own self-interests, right? Ideology is just the cover for protection of a group's interests. Just putting that to the side for a moment, the, the issue of free speech, uh, I'll just say up front, my, you know, I'd rather myself deal with, you know, the marketplace of ideas than to hand the power of policing speech and thought to corporations, big tech uh, and the state. That's just my personal uh, preference there. I know I'm not alone in that, but I know there's a lot of people that uh, feel otherwise. But um, I would say push back on what Jeff said uh, and, and, and the underlying premise of it, uh, much of which what, uh, was an outgrowth of the 2016 election and Russiagate, which we now know was completely bogus. It was a completely fictitious narrative that uh, turned out to be a hoax, a very expensive hoax, and no doubt a hoax that provides... Okay, the details that the mainstream news media presented about, quote-unquote, Russiagate were generally factually true, 
the meta-narrative, the unstated narrative, the narrative that they encouraged but did not explicitly state turned out to be bogus. The underlying support for the proxy war in Ukraine. An but, Israeli hoax. Uh, well, yeah, could, could very well be as well. But um, so what happened? Right, I think that was Charles Johnson, right? Almost everything that goes on in the world, it seems like I'm exaggerating here, but Charles Johnson will say, look, it's, it's a Likud plot. Happened was there was a mass suppression of speech on this platform and right across the meta platforms, Google, YouTube, okay, a, a massive suppression, authentic discourse. And the Stan Stanford Internet Observatory is just indicative of one of those cutout organizations that was formed as, as Facebook divided and conquered across academia, big tech and government. And they're not the only ones. There's another version of this at uh, University of Washington, which actually was the forerunner of all of it. So what that allowed, what this allowed, that massive censorship of which I, I was a victim of, I was off this platform for a year and a half under Jack Dorsey, that allowed the astroturfing right to totally colonize and occupy the, the information space. That was at that time when the Daily Wire exploded. That was amid all of the deplatforming that came in waves from the 2018 midterms to the 2020 election, to COVID, the vaccines, et cetera. That allowed the Ben Shapiro's, the Jordan Peterson's, this kind of monolithic, uh, which I think is more of a, uh, a, a, an arm of the mainstream establishment that was given independent motifs to sell to a kind of confused mainstream audience. That's kind of the market that they, they moved into. So that actually happened. J6, there was also a massive uh, uh, deplatforming and purge after that. So that allowed all these sort of fake alternative or right-wing uh, media brands and personalities to totally dominate the space and kind of monopolize it and drive the discourse or to gaslight the population uh, on a number of big issues, which we're now seeing the results of this, um, especially in the last 100 days. So that colonization of the information space was all revealed in the Twitter files. And this revealed a disturbing uh, convergence Okay, so this is just grossly exaggerated, all right? The, the Twitter full files did not reveal some modern American form of fascism. They revealed what has been going on for, for decades, that there is interaction between government and private industry, and that government will try to shape the decisions of private industry, and industry will react to government wishes in, in various ways, but usually it's not in the interests of private industry to have the government hating on them. It's a corporate and state uh, interests. And you could say from that was kind of an orthodox uh, uh, phenomenon of, of modern fascism. So that actually happened. And I was in the Twitter files. I was. All right. Just all right, some guy, Patrick Henningsen, talking there. I think that's just a vast exaggeration of what was really going on with the, with the Twitter files. But people want stuff that's exciting. People want to be heroes. People want to be important. Right. People want to be at the very center of what's going on. People want to live from the middle of the world rather than on the sidelines. So the Enneagram speaks to me, right? I know there's no scientific validity, but when I, when I had uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, someone introduced me to the Enneagram, and I felt like, oh, my God, this is, this is who I am. It just seemed to, to reveal me to, to me. Right, I am the investigator. Right, type five on the Enneagram. I am the intense cerebral type, perceptive, innovative, but also secretive and isolated. Right, people like me are alert, insightful, and curious. They're able to concentrate and focus on developing complex ideas and skills. Focus. All right, I haven't taken any Adderall for six days, by the way. Independent, innovative, and inventive. They can also become preoccupied with their thoughts and imaginary constructs. This is me. I live 
frequently in a world of delusion. I'm the guy you meet at the edge of the bar who tells you what a contender he could have been. So I found when I doubled my Adderall dose from two five milligram tablets a day to two 10 milligram tablets a day that it significantly negatively affected my sleep, or at least I think it did. It may well be that I was just anxious that it might affect my sleep and my anxiety negatively affected my sleep because I seem to function just fine during the day. I haven't been yawning on Adderall, but I haven't taken any Adderall the last six days. All right. So people like me, type five in the Enneagram, the investigators, right? They become detached yet high, strung and intense. I mean, that's me. They typically have problems with eccentricity. I, I a very good friend of mine talked about how people are turned off by my general weirdness. Uh, he, he's right. People are frequently just turned off by my general weirdness. Uh, Rabbi Aryeh Markman at Asha Torah Synagogue in Los Angeles told the Jewish Journal for their 2007 Jewish Journal cover story on me, self-aggrandizement moment here. He very accurately, profoundly, and humorously described me as a Torah weirdo. That you know, People come along who are obsessed with Torah, but also obsessed with all sorts of other things that are completely incompatible with, with Torah. And so all sorts of weird, eccentric people living on the margins of life will come along at times and embrace Torah. Torah weirdo. Luke Ford, Torah weirdo. That's true. Right? This type five in the Enneagram, the investigator, they typically have problems with eccentricity, nihilism. Right? How many of you have become convinced that I'm a nihilist? And isolation. Right? I have consistently had problems with eccentricity, general weirdness, nihilism, and isolation. At their best, this Enneagram personality is a visionary pioneer ahead of their time and able to see the world in an entirely new way. Basic fear of people like me being useless, helpless, or incapable, right? Lows to my sense of competence, effectiveness are just devastating, just devastating to me. So that's my deepest fear, being useless, helpless, or incapable. My basic desire is to be capable and competent. Our key motivation, we want to possess knowledge to understand the environment, to have everything figured out as a way of defending the self from threats from the environment. We're moving in the direction of disintegration, stress, anxiety. Right? Detached fives suddenly become hyperactive and scattered. However, when moving in the direction of integration, growth, they become avaricious, greedy. Detached fives become more self-confident and decisive. So examples from history of, of uh, the investigator, Albert Einstein, Oliver Sacks, John Nash, Stephen Hawking, Vincent van Gogh, Salvador Dali, Georgia O'Keefe, Emily Dickinson, Friedrich Nietzsche, Agatha Christie, James Joyce, Jean-Paul Sartre, Susan Sontag, Stephen King, Clive Barker, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Jane Goodall, Eckhart Tolle, Glenn Gould, Kurt Cobain, Peter Gabriel, Trent Reznor, Alfred Hitchcock, Marlene Dietrich, Stanley Kubrick, David Cronenberg, Werner Herzog, Tim Burton, David Lynch, David Fincher, Jodie Foster, Gary Larson, and Leibovitz, Bobby Fischer. All right. Yeah, I, I <laughs> wasn't Bobby Fischer raised the Seventh-day Adventist and then he became this insane hater of Jews. Uh, Julian Assange, Aaron Schwartz, and uh, the Fox Mulder character on TV and Dr. Gregory House on TV. Fives. 
right? The investigator, people like me, want to find out why things are the way they are. They want to understand how the world works, whether it is the cosmos, the microscopic world, the animal, vegetable, and mineral kingdoms, or the inner world of their own machinations. They're always searching, asking questions, delving into things in depth. They do not accept received opinions and doctrines. They feel a strong need to test the truth of most assumptions for themselves. Yeah. You have a, but underneath our relentless pursuit of knowledge, are deep insecurities about our ability to function successfully in the world. Fives feel that they do not have an ability to do things as well as others. Rather than engage directly with activities that might bolster their confidence, fives take a step back in their minds where they feel more capable. Their belief is that from the safety of their minds, they will eventually figure out how to do things and one day rejoin the world in triumph. Fives spend a lot of time observing and contemplating. They listen to the sounds of the wind. They take notes on activities in an anthill in their backyard. As they immerse themselves in their observations, they begin to internalize their knowledge and gain self-confidence. They can then go out and play a piece on the synthesizer or tell people what they know about ants. They might also stumble across exciting new information or make new creative combinations. Knowledge, understanding, and insight are highly valued by people like me because their identity is built around having ideas, being someone who has something unusual and insightful to say. Fives are not interested in exploring what is already familiar and well-established. Damn, I just lost some of my lighting. What the heck? Trying to create a high-quality show. I was, I was deemed by the State Department with, I don't know, 70,000 followers at the time, 50,000 followers as a Russian bot. So, and I, that was revealed by Matt Taibbi and others. And, of course, I'm a human being. I, was my, I had a verified account in 2017 or something, but it didn't matter because that's the way the system was running at that time. And I was alone, of course. What we learned, though, of course, from that whole period is that many of us that were put on blacklists and whatnot were put there by Israeli interests or by their allies in the U.S. <laughs> and that's just Johnson. And I think that, that the, the degree to which the Russia hoax was an outgrowth of the Zionist takeover of the Trump presidency. Okay. That's Chuck Johnson there warning us about uh, the Zionist takeover of the Trump presidency. A good uh, little discussion here. Highly critical, but interesting nevertheless. Uh, Patrick Casey. You know, um, I think the fact that there are no Republicans anymore that are publicly Israel skeptics is very interesting and kind of disturbing in a lot of ways. And the, the degree to which, like, you know, Biden is still going along with, you know, arguably a genocide taking place, you know, in Gaza is kind of a tell that we have a long way to go before we really rid ourselves of the Zionist influence. Uh, yeah, to say the least. Um, so. Okay, so I'll get a Hoplite and then a Duvid. Oh. Hey, what's up, Richard? Big fan. Um, sorry to get off a little topic. I was curious, uh, why was Patrick Casey accepted as a conservative when his past was like literally identity of robot? Well, that's interesting. I don't know the degree to which Patrick Casey is uh, doing anything. Is he still around? I think he's at um, one of those like Chronicles or something. One of the like paleo- well, Is he working there? Or is he writing? No, no, I think, he, I think he contributed, but uh, I think he just does his show, like a YouTube podcast. He's yeah, definitely I, shilled by like the Batsphere. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, he was a very odd character. Um, I don't know if he is connected to anything deeply sinister, but I, 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 he's, he's one of those little kind of sociopath types that, you know, gl- clings on to someone and then kind of backstabs them. So he, he just kind of emerged out of nowhere. I think his... Okay, so this is one person with sociopathic tendencies, you know, ascribing scri- these same tendencies to Patrick Casey, as far as clinging and then backstabbing. There's also probably a through line. This uh, Patrick Casey person was pursuing truth in difficult circumstances. His original handle was, uh, was it Reinhardt, Operation Reinhardt or something? Reinhardt some, Wolf. Reinhardt Wolf, you know, some extreme 1488 <laughs> account. And then he went to, um, 
uh, IE, and he did the kind of optics war of like, oh, we're this American group and we're conservatives and we love liberty and all this kind of stuff. And then he dropped that uh, before the election for reasons that I don't quite understand. He was then kind of glammed on to um, Nick Fuentes and then kind of betrayed Nick Fuentes the last minute. It, it was just this kind of like on, very clear life pattern. Um, I mean, one thing in the sense of like, why is he writing an article for Chronicles? I mean, first off, I'm not interested in maybe even too lazy to write an uh, article for Chronicles, but um, is, so Chronicles that's still, he... is Chronicles still a thing? I didn't even know that. Apparently yeah, they are. They are pretty active. Um, Pedro's not on the payroll anymore. Pedro. Well, Paul Godfrey runs runs Chronicles, but uh, what uh, people like Richard call betrayal, right, could just as easily be described as you know Patrick Casey was pursuing what he regarded as what was true and honorable. So when some individuals pursue what is honorable and true, right, that, that may mean turning one's back on other forms of ideology or other groups or other individuals. So some people say you're betraying Nick Fuentes, and then other people say you're pursuing what is true and honorable. Oh, God, I suppose. Yes. Um, old Pedro. Um, uh, so... I think the reason is, is that he's just not very famous because he's, he's just this, or infamous. He's just this kind of like weird kid hanging out in the background. And so he can kind of get away with it. I think that's the simplest explanation. I think a lot of this stuff too is that people have control files on people. So like. Yes, it comes down to Likud. I think that's, that's Chuck Johnson's analysis. And then here's a conspiracy coming up from Chuck Johnson saying that uh, Tablet Magazine was amplifying rumors that uh, Barack Obama was gay. Dial some things back, but it's it's there. He's just coming out of that milieu. Like, it, it's all this, like, it, it's a very strange thing. Now, I would also imagine that, and I don't know this for certain, but I, I would also imagine that he would never give me the time of day. Like, if I called him, I doubt he would answer the phone. I, I don't, don't know. I, he might. You never okay, know. Okay, fair enough. He's, he's changed quite a bit. He's changed quite a bit. I don't really want to call him, to be honest. But, but you know, <laughs> so there's this weird thing of, like, the alt-right winning while, like, any thought leader... And it's that exciting time in the show where we have our San Francisco Bureau Chief, Elliot Blatt, joining. Blessings, Elliot. Uh, blessings, Luke. Can you hear me? I can, bro. Love is all oh, around us. Oh, I can feel it. Um, sorry, you caught me chewing. I've been backstage for like 15 minutes. and then One minute, I, I can bite. I am so sorry. That was so inconsiderate, selfish, self-centered of me. No problem. So, uh, <clears throat> so you ever hear that quote by Daniel Webster? Um, it's a small, it is, sir, as I've said, a small college. Yet there are those of us who love it. You ever I hear that? don't recall it. It's from like a, one of the first big court cases of the early days of the U.S. And Dartmouth College had a contract of some sort with the crown, with the British crown. And this dispute, I forgot the specifics, you know, I'm no lawyer, but basically uh, it was whether or not the U.S. had to recognize contracts uh, formed prior to the, um, you know, creation of the, of the U.S. state. So it was one of the very first uh, uh, Supreme Court cases, I believe. Anyway, so that's how I feel about your stream, Luke. It's a small stream, but there are those of us who love it. Oh, bro. You know Thank what I'm saying? You. <laughs> so, uh, um, so finally, I mean, as the, uh, turnaround begin, you feel like, a oh yeah. Like yeah. Wednesday. I had a great, so, uh, Monday was the epic humiliation, uh, shock 
most of Monday, then could not sleep Monday night. Then Tuesday, I was wrecked because I couldn't sleep the night before. So I was just kind of lying down most of the day listening to audiobooks. Uh, Tuesday afternoon, I started an epic uh, biking uh, on my stationary bike and watching the Netflix show Suits. And so I just absolutely exhausted myself on my workout. Had a great sleep Tuesday night. And then Wednesday, I was a new man and I was back at life. That's great to hear. That's great to hear. Um, uh-oh, did I lose you? No, no, I, I'm oh. here for you, Brian. Tell okay. me about yourself. How's your own emotional turnaround? <clears throat> My turnaround um, is sort of in progress, but um, it's not complete. But the, I think the worst of it's over. Um, but I've been, you know the word perseverate? I'm uh, not sure. It means to like obsess over and over and over about something. I believe. Okay. Tell me more. And so that perseverating uh, sort of it upsets my sleep, sort of occupies my non-working moments. You know, when I'm not engaged in something else, these thoughts crowd in. It's sort of like the thoughts you can't get rid of and you just kind of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's now been extended gaps in those thoughts. So I'm able to enjoy some peace. Someday I'll discuss the the, the the specifics of this. I'm not trying to be yeah. like agey about uh, it, but yeah. I, I don't want to discuss the, the specifics of what's going on with me either. So, but in yeah. time, I, I will. Yeah. So that day will come. It'll be an amusing story by then, hopefully. Uh, but right now, it's not terribly amusing. Uh, so I did turn in tune into that stream last night by chance. Mm-hmm. You know how on the Twitter space you can see all the icons of the people mm-hmm. in the stream, and it's just like the Luke Ford Delta Force, <laughs> right? Right there, totally represent. <laughs> like Auto, Auto Pole was there, you know, Ricardo, Duvid. Just then I finally learned the backstory this morning, so I, I didn't know. <clears throat> I thought it was by chance, but I got a good uh, chuckle out of that. Um, but I was sort of in mid sleep, so I was in and out of sleep. I didn't really remember the content or whatever. So I'll have to go back and listen. But it was, a, it was, it was fun to see. Do you do you feel at times like an awkward ogre and you look with admiration towards those who seem to be moving through life with elegance and grace and ease? Yes. Well, yes, I do. But elegance and grace is not what I envy. It's the power. And my lack of it. Yeah. Right? Like, I, I see people who, you know, they have nice things. They live in nice parts of town. You know, they have all the good things in life. And I see myself as just a just a worker bee, you know? For all my, uh, for all my hard work, I just make so little, such little progress on a daily basis. Yeah. But I in the hours I do the work I'm responsible and I uh, you know I take ownership I do all the right things that just feels like the um, the formula that determines who gets the resources is just radically skewed against me so that's how I see things so the way I would deal with that is that I'd masturbate 
and I masturbate and think about what a powerful person I am and how these bitches are just eager to meet my needs because I'm so powerful. When you rub one out, do you think about power? No. No. I collapse into a bliss like a, a blissful void. <laughs> Sorry about chewing Luke, but I meant it I've been meaning to um I was trying to call in 15 minutes ago. Then I, in the, meantime, the fault is with me. But the uh, pizza, you know, this frozen pizza was completed and then I get out of the shop. Sorry. So you haven't experienced pornography as the solace for all of life's humiliations? No. No. I think I looked at I've looked at porn since I was like a late teenager. It always struck me as very um I don't know, dangerous and weird. So you've never watched health... you've never watched the news with your pants down around your ankles? No. Tubing? I only did that during conference calls. Like even Fox yeah. News? It's tempting, bro. <laughs> it's so tempting. Fox <laughs> News. Yeah. Like trying to formula. keep my pants on while watching Fox News. My God. I mean, luckily I've been ten years sober. <laughs> But but prior to that, bro, not not a pretty sight. Breaking news. Here it goes. Bro, breaking news. It's like <laughs> drop trowel. Here we go. Been waiting for this all day. Uh, it is funny to see the Fox formula work. <laughs> well, Roger just... Ailes, the the founder and director of Fox News, he essentially you know chose women who would give off the blowjob factor. He, he would choose women and then openly speculate about how enthusiastic they would give you know, a blowjob. And I think there was the Nicolas Cage character in the movie, The Weatherman, who had a, in a counseling session with his wife, he, he wrote a note that uh, complaining that her blowjobs lacked enthusiasm. So I think, you know, American men watch Fox News because they see women who they imagine would be enthusiastic at blowing them. Have you uh, ever been to a strip bar? Yes, only for journalistic purposes. Of course, of course. Well, I've been to one once. And the uh, decor inside is this weird contrast of traditionally male things, you know, pickup trucks and shotguns and military type, you know, um, what do they call it? Flare decorations and things and big loud music and dark, and big booming, you know, music. And then you have this girl on stage is like in this sort of little gossamer flower outfit, you know, and it's just a, such a constant uh, contrast. But that's what I think about with Fox News. It's this really polarized yin and yang version of life sort of tailored to men's both reality and fantasy at the same time. And uh, it's not balanced, it's extreme. Um, but Fox is like a sort of a, a tempered, a toned down version of strip bar. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not subtle. No, 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 no. Uh, so I'm glad, our, I'm glad we got to the important things. <laughs> Uh, 
I didn't know why I called in to tell the truth. Well, I thought Ricardo was going to call in, and I thought, you know, he sort of said, I'll call in if Elliot calls in. So, <clears throat> but I wanted to get the backstory on this stream. Yeah. So, what do you think about my thesis that uh, probably the first question to ask when you're listening to a live streamer, a pundit, or an activist is how does what they say enhance their prestige? So, you know, how self-serving is their presentation? Yeah, that's excellent. I, I get the sense that all of them, you know, the main panelists like uh, Johnson and Spencer, they're always quietly flexing in the background. You mm -hmm. know? They're just dropping these little nuggets, you know, to remind right. everybody. For the powerful they, people they know, their yeah. influence on history, their ability to discern hidden patterns that everyone else is oblivious to. Yeah. And lately, Richard has some very mediocre takes, but he sort of builds them up as if they're sort of really esoteric and meaningful. Yeah. You and know, they, they and sound profound, like, you know, the, the modern day Republican Party is just basically the alt-right from 2015. I mean, that sounds amazing, but it's total nonsense. Yeah. And he, he, I get the sense that Richards looks at politics as a source of entertainment. He doesn't see it as real. So he has this sort of artistic criticism distance between the real matters of, of politics and the sort of sexier spy novel version of politics. I think he looks at politics and every body and everything as tools to enhance his own status and prestige. Yeah, he's looking for a niche. How can I slot myself into this particular? Right. How can I enhance my status? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I, I remember when I was a big deal as a blogger and I'd get 10,000 plus re readers every day. And then in August of 2001, I sold my website writing on the porn industry and I just walked away for a year. Then I ran out of money, came back, and I started a new one. And people in the industry were just particularly eager to tell me you don't have the influence that you once did. Like you used to be a big deal. Everyone would talk about you, but they don't anymore. And people would would take great pleasure in saying, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. Yeah, Schadenfreude. It's, yeah. It runs deep, you know. And um, uh, and that's what I've learned recently with my little uh, escapade of the past couple of weeks that um, – Jealousy and envy will drive people to insanity. And they will, their whole perception of, of reality will be shifted to such a degree that it's, it barely resembles reality anymore. And they'll do crazy and stupid things. It's motivated out of ultimately jealousy, I believe. And so, yeah. and then, you know, so I can sort of look at that, but then I, you know, <clears throat> like I said, it's, very easy to sort of criticize other people's jealousy, but then, you know, to try and like turn the light around, as the Chinese say, investigate your own. It's not terribly easy. Then another thesis that I was presenting today is that uh, intellectuals frequently presenting two messages, one exoteric, meaning public and blatant, and one esoteric, meaning hidden. And often their hidden message is the complete opposite of their public message. So, for example, there's a lot of public discussion about how our democracy is under threat because of Donald Trump. That's the public exoteric message. The esoteric message is that 
we elites want to retain control over the dominant institutions in American life, and populism, as represented by Donald Trump, is a threat to our elite control. Any thoughts on this profound analysis? Yes, it's the projection um, dynamic. So, and this happened to me recently, somebody was projecting onto me the things that they were doing, you know, in a real way. So without going into too much detail, um, <clears throat> somebody was stealing from me and, and then someone turned around and accused me of stealing from them, which is totally not the case, but it, it's a, um, there's, word, there's phrases in the Bible about this, like, um, what is it about, uh, the, the guilty man protests or something. What yeah, protests too much. Yeah. Me but, thinks he doth protest too much. Yeah, yeah. But that's the same dynamic. Like, you're so, if, you're in, if you're engaged in a fraud of any kind, you're always thinking about it, right? Because it sort of gnaws at your consciousness and it's sort of omnipresent in your thinking. And, and eventually that thinking sort of spills out and then you project onto someone you're dealing with, right? You imagine they're exactly like you and they're doing what you're thinking about doing to them. And that's sort of the same dynamic with what the, our, our democracy at risk, uh, is at risk people crowd is saying. So I don't know if it feels like an insight it seems to all make sense now, like things make sense, but it had to come at the expense of some very painful lessons. So here's something that I experienced with uh, profound humiliation, you know, so, so, so profound that it essentially sends me in, into shock, that it it compounds upon past humiliations, that, that I immediately go back to other humiliations. And it's like they get thrown into a whole maelstrom of humiliations, and I feel like I'm in in a dryer, <laughs> being tumbled tumbled around by all these humiliations that like the latest one builds upon all previous humiliations. Yeah. So if there's multiple instances in your life, yeah, you're, you're, you makes it seem like that's the only story in your life mm -hmm. and you're just re you're just chapter by chapter. You're just repeating the same old chapter and that it's your destiny because you haven't, you know, it, it's like faded and that, when I, when I get into that state of mind, it's really hard to interrupt. And I got into that state of mind, you know, and um, I'm like, how can this happen to me? I really try to be like straightforward, upright and, you know, honest in all my dealings and things. And then this happens, you know, it's just not fair. And so <coughs> then I'll say, well, the world, <coughs> excuse me, the world is ultimately just. And it'll all come out in the wash, right? And mm -hmm. I, I don't have to do about it because God will take care of us, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a, sort of another kind of delusion, right? Like, yeah, I, I have this, you know, I've done so well by my sort of optimistic spirit mm -hmm. that I misapply that optimism in places where cynicism is more appropriate. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. I, I remember years ago, I was working in an office where I had excellent relations with the, the the women in the office but not not perfect relations so you know there was some ambivalence on many different sides so even though overall i think i had excellent relations 
uh, one one moment we all started discussing who deserved to get fired, and one woman says, "You should be fired. You're the cancer around here." Ouch. And that, yeah, and then, <coughs> and she was. I think she was only twenty percent serious and eighty percent kidding. Uh, then half an hour later, I got fired. Uh. And so I can reflect back on it and recognize that there was 10%, 20% truth to what she was saying. So have you had the experience when you realized that a lot of your behaviors and choices, which you thought were wonderful, were in fact having a disruptive negative effect on people around you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of that reflection. <clears throat> now, it's especially because I remember, you know, being younger and being an employee, right? Mm -hmm. And having the attitude like you've expressed that, you know, my goal is basically to do as little as possible and take as little risk as possible, you know? And it was just a very self-interested view of being an employee. And, you know, I didn't really think about a, the generosity that was shown to me by being hired and um, the risks involved someone takes when they hire somebody and, you know, how it's just really uh, selfish and um, uh, dishonest to sort of have that attitude as an employee. And yeah. this, this type of attitude is just basically pervasive in any sort of office setting. And, um, I just so look back at it and see that it was a big, that was a real big mistake. And I, I should have distanced myself from those people and not be, allow myself to be sucked into such an attitude. And so now I find myself in the opposite position of having to sort of take responsibility for and bear the, <clears throat> uh, bear the consequences of some of the more junior people. When they make mistakes, it's now my job to clean them up. And I feel like, this is payback and it's painful. Oh yeah. Yeah. Karma, karma, karma's a karma's bitch. A bitch. Karma's a bitch. And I've been, uh, I've been eating a lot of karma lately. So, uh, yeah. So I'm hopefully, you know, in a way I sort of think this sort of heavy period is like, maybe it's what I have to go through to sort of pay up, pay up my debts. Yeah. It's like a, a fever. Uh, yeah. It's a fever of of an intense experience of reality that I've wanted to avoid. It's it's a very harsh correction to a long running delusion. Yeah. And then like the longer the delusion runs and the more deep it goes, the more difficult it is to turn around, you know? And the more painful it is when you come to pay the piper, the bigger the bill, the bigger the psychic bill. Right. Now, I always think about this uh, uh, as a skiing metaphor, you know. Um, it's very easy to ski downhill, but it's much harder than to turn around and walk back up. You know, it's like five, ten times harder to walk uphill than it is to ski down. And I think people, you know, the live stream community, this is like even with drug addiction, so the more deeply addicted to drugs you get, the more difficult it is to stop and reverse course in this yeah. one dynamic of 
you know, it's just uh, even the smallest mistake can sort of cascade into other mistakes. And and the road home can get just be too long for most people. And when you have emotional addictions, the the cocktail of brain chemicals that go off when you start getting fed through engaging in your emotional addiction, I think acts very similarly to a drug addiction. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, there is a, um, I think even with things that aren't overtly drugs, like, you know, YouTube, like live stream consumption, mm-hmm. there's a chemical basis in it. Some of it yes, you know? yeah, there's I, a hit. It's a hit, you know, and and like you know, I found myself listening to some streams that used to provide a lot of dopamine, provide that hit, and then they don't provide that hit anymore. And I'm like, I feel like an addict now. I know what an addict feels like. Like, I need something, high, you know, more intensity, more edgy, more um, transgressive to mm-hmm. get that hit going. And uh, yeah, it used so, to be good enough to just engage like in the Playboy of live streams, and then you want the you want the split beaver penthouse version, and then you want the you know hardcore double <coughs> penetration. That's right. It's a slippery slope, my dude. <coughs> I mean, you me. start off listening to the Carpenters, and then you go, oh, you know, I want something a little more raucous. You change to ABBA, and soon you're listening to Black Sabbath. That's right. It's a one-way trip to hell. It's a hot, highway. It's a highway. Highway to hell, as, as those famous Aussies once said. Uh <coughs> So anyway, um, so anyway, oh, well, I think we, I think we covered it all. Unless okay, bro, you, good to good to talk you, to unless you. Unless you got any specific questions? No, I got no more. If you if something comes to you, feel free to jump back on. Okay, thanks a lot. All right, okay, bro, blessings. Right, blessings. Okay, back to the Richard Spencer space. You know, I know this sounds a bit self-serving, but like any thought leader who was actually out on a limb or kind of taking their lumps or like pushing things forward they get knocked off and opposed. And then five years later, all of these people just adopt the talking points. I mean, it's just so obvious. He's talking about himself here, that he had the the points, the wisdom, and then everyone else five years later is just adopting Richard Spencer's insights and not giving him the credit. Well, yeah, it's like... um... Charlie Kirk's coming out next week with the MLK documentary. It's but, like, but, welcome but, to 2016. Yeah, Sam Francis will come back to her. Yeah, I, Sam Francis did that in the 90s. I, mean, I, I, I mean, talked, by the way, when I did um, when I did a bunch of research on Obama and how Obama's, uh, there was this book about Obama being gay. And I like quoted it, put it up on my Substack, And then like... Okay, this is a mammoth book by David Garrow. It's 2,000 pages. The idea that Obama had some homosexual fantasies is maybe a page. Right, so the idea that this David Garrow 2,000-page biography is the Obama is gay book is just absolutely absurd. Just completely delusional here by Charles Johnson. Oh, no. And now now I'm getting the uh, the Twitter space is not working for me. I will will try it out. anymore this is like larger history and then it's like in tablet magazine where they're like interviewing the author and trying to make like the- so chuck johnson saying you know i had this excerpt that obama is gay you know i i accepted this book and i put it on my sub stack and then tablet magazine is copying me obvious well I, yeah I it's like um 
Charlie Kirk's coming out next week with the MLK documentary. It's but, like, but, welcome but, to 2016. Yeah, Sam Francis comeback tour. Yeah, I, Sam Francis did that in the 90s. I mean, I, I thought, by the way, when I did um, when I did a bunch of stuff, research on Obama and how Obama's uh, there was this book about Obama being gay. Right. Great research reading a book that was published. And I like quoted it, put it up on my sub stack. And then like a month, two months go by. And then it's like in tablet magazine where they're like interviewing the author and trying to make like this weird Israeli take on the Obama gay stuff. And well, it was, it's a Jewish publication, tablet mag, and it was quite a thoughtful discussion. Uh, between the interlocutor and, and David Garrow, I don't think Charles Johnson's Substack post had anything to do with it. Yeah, there's like this process wh whereby the people who identify the trend or the people who support the trend or who actually have like the actual thinking uh, on the right, they get sort of removed like very quickly mm -hmm. and they get their ideas stolen. They get. Right. This is the equivalent of guys at a bar telling you how. You know, they were the stars, and they, they didn't get the recognition that they deserve. A weird guy, a Jewish guy born in South Africa, involved with Rumble, was a huge donor to Hillary Clinton, but then curiously is now anti-censorship and was like a big donor to the American Conservative magazine. So a very interesting article. So he's talking there about David Sachs and problems at Rumble. This is Chuck Johnson attributing many of the ills of the world to the evil Likud. I in Wired magazine, which I commend to your attention. So, are people getting worried about that in this in the in Rumble? Yeah, or I mean, the, the SEC is going hard against a lot of these companies in all sorts of interesting ways. So, we'll see if, as time goes on. Um, what is their issue with them? Effectively, the SEC's uh, not saying what the real reason is, but through back channels, the issue is Rumble, in particular, acquired a company called Locals.com. <laughs> which is an Israeli-founded firm, and it's a way of moving money to their various assets in social media, a kind of like anti-censorship you know, uh, way of giving people money. Because what happens is that when the, a lot of these people are outed, they're then blacklisted by the payment service companies because they are you know, effectively acting as unregistered foreign agents. Richard, not to uh, interrupt, but uh, you know, Kristen Ruby, I know she's here, and her theory that Frame Games is actually a very big player and doing very heavy stuff, maybe like a direct advisor to Elon Musk, possibly one of the main players behind Band ADL, that possibly you know, Frame Games you know, infiltrated the alt-right and then he kept those contacts and uh, and then when banned the ADL happened that that was really a psyop so to say that frame games used the alt-right and those connections that he built up uh, then uh, on behalf of Elon Musk to kind of take down the ADL and there's also the aspect that frame games was very against the ADL from the very beginning like he said he was going to take down the ADL and I'm not sure if you have thoughts on that is it possible that or, or if Kristen Ruby wanted to express herself for research but uh, that is a possible frame games was behind banned the ADL or is uh, some sort of track well, she can definitely Elon come Musk. up I mean the the ADL thing yeah, I mean, I, I think that's certainly possible. He's connected with them. He's hanging out with Vivek, et cetera. I mean, I, I think the ADL thing is, you know, has the ADL really been taken down? I mean, there's there's no doubt that there was a huge wave of, you know, trolling going on about the ADL. Uh, but the ADL seems to now be on good terms. I mean, they are, they've reconciled, they've reconciled with Elon Musk. Well, Elon had um, to go to Israel, right? And he had to, yeah. he had that, he had that open AI summit with Elon and Netanyahu. Yeah, it's hard to succeed in public life if you were thought to be anti-Jewish. Yahoo talking about how AI was going to be critically important and AI was going to, is, is being used to do a lot of the bombing in Gaza and to target and assassinate various people. Hmm. So All right, that's uh, Chuck Johnson who attributes many, if not most of the world's ills to the Jews. The ability to have one account and maybe another one for, you know, a business or something like that and that you are truly verified. So 
the verified check mark used to be about celebrities. I think it even like emerged with. And uh, Charles Johnson will say in this discussion that uh, we need to have verification by the government. Right. <laughs> yeah, highly, highly intrusive, perhaps. What is it like Demi Moore and Ashton Kutchner or some, some frivolous thing like that? Cool. And um, it, it, it started to spread and, and it, tons of journalists had a blue check mark, et cetera. I had a blue check mark for a long time. Then it got taken away for a little while. And now it's now we're in this kind of no man's land of you are paying for quote, premium services. And I guess could get ad payments and all this kind of stuff. And you have a blue check mark. I, it, it should be about authenticity. And I know a lot of people don't like that idea of you have to, I mean, you could pr presumably use a pseudonym, but you, you have to just demonstrate that you are a human and that there is one account associated I, with your driver's license. That it's, yeah, I'm okay with that if, if the back end is the American government verifying it. But right. Elon's closeness with the Israelis, you know, meeting with Netanyahu, all of that has me like... Yeah, he wants the American government uh, verifying and essentially signing off on who is allowed to use the internet. Um, a tad uh, skeptical of... Uh, this certainly some advantages to it. Yeah, well, there's the you know replying to um, uh, Keith Woods a few times. There, there's that replying to someone I've, I've never heard of before who was basically making a Kevin McDonald like argument. Just you know the uh, the Jews really like diversity, but then when diversity starts criticizing Israel, they hate it. And um, and Elon saying that's absolutely correct. I mean you know you can take it that way, and all these liberals freaked out and so on. But you know, what I would look at is the fact that in that interview where Elon's actually even talking about the end of Twitter, he's wearing a bomber jacket, he's wearing an Israeli dog tag. And uh, a Pentagon spokesman actually wore one as well. It, it seems to me like almost this like conspicuous marking of territory. You know, we've got you. He's one of us. Um, that's what that looks like to me. And yeah, why does it look like that to Richard? Because when he's faced with a Rorschach's test, right, he sees negative Jewish influence. Right. That's his instinctive reaction that uh, the Jews are doing something dastardly. I just, I just, I don't know. This, this Elon is based notion is something that I bought in the very beginning when he was talking about buying. Richard's overwhelming reaction to Elon has been negative because Elon is a competitor in the right wing influencer space. Uh, Richard doesn't seem to care for you know, any, any right wing influencers who want to compete with him. And so I'm losing my place here. Hang neutral. On. Yeah, I think in reality, all those things in advertising generally do. Okay, I mean, yes. you, it's possible. Slip <laughs> <laughs> some retinol in your drink and the next thing you know, you gotta you watch out for us you're us. on a table and she's holding a knife above your head. Yeah. I mean, it's but, happened, happened you, to everyone. I guess. You, you get another circumcision that way. <laughs> oh, is the guy going to bite it off in this case? <laughs> You would definitely end up in a tunnel of some kind. All right. This is all right, negative speculation about those tunnels under 770. All right. Rorschach's test, hearing about something weird that some Jews have done and immediate attribution of you know, nefarious proclivities by Jews in general. Wait, can we, what do you think of the Jew tunnels? Like, we, we haven't talked about that yet, have we? Um, look, I, I mean, the only thing I would say, I mean, look, obviously, it was kind of hilarious. Just those images. I mean, particularly the uh, like the acidic Jew like emerging from underground and running off. I mean, it, it's truly hilarious. I, I think you know, legitimate questions should be asked about this. One thing that I did notice is that there's a, a broken kettle logic to all of their explanations. And so the broken kettle, of course, is um, you know you, you go to your neighbor and you return his broken kettle. So Richard sees this news story and immediately thinks that the Jews, the Jews, are up to something terrible. 
and he questions you about that. And you're like, well, it's, first off, it's not broken. And secondly, it was broken before you lent it to me. And thirdly, I never borrowed your pedal. I mean, so it's this overdetermined, you know, kind of thing. And so it was like, oh, it's nothing. Why are you even talking about it? And then it's like, oh, well, it was about COVID. We just wanted to worship on our own for COVID. Or also it's about teenagers who um, were, are messianic and they're from Israel and they were trying to like steal 770 or, which sounds a little more plausible, I, I guess. And then they'll, they'll have these even other explanations. And, you know, we were just trying to expand, but we, and so it's like, there are too many explanations and it, the, the pieces don't fit. And it sounds like they're giving different explanations to different audiences. And so like Gavin McGinnis, I mean, on the debate the other night, he would just shut down the debate whenever someone mentioned the subject. And he'd be like, that's low IQ, that's low IQ. And it's like, is it low IQ? I mean, I'm, I'm curious. It sounds like you're low IQ shutting down discussion. And he was like, you know, if the Hells Angels did this, you wouldn't say anything. Uh. You know, like, what does that mean? Um, but I don't, it, it seems to me like they're offering different explanations to different audiences. And so like the, the conservatards get the explanation that's about COVID and they're like, oh, based, you know, fighting COVID restrictions like DeSantis did, you know, uh. and then for more intelligent people, they're, they're saying, you know, oh, well, there's these, there's a split in the organization and whatever. And that, that actually struck me as more plausible. Maybe that was designed for my type of reader. And, and then they're doing other explanations for others. So I, I don't know what in the hell is going on. I mean, I don't want to jump to a conclusion that it's sex trafficking, but I, yeah, I mean, I, I have questions. Well, it's, Let's it's and uh, David says, I saw some big rabbis, some community leaders who were selfish like Richard Spencer. They forgot people's names and how they knew them. Now it's served to remind them who they are. So, yeah, rabbis are just as susceptible to human inclinations such as selfishness and self-aggrandizement as plumbers and dentists and uh, football players, any, any group susceptible to these human temptations. So when certain rabbis, when they've wanted something to me, they've, from me, they've been incredibly charming. And when they no longer needed anything from me, they completely ignored me. So we, we make a mistake when we think the clergy have uh, somehow graduated from the human condition. Well, the rise of the alt-right, because you have the currently the most powerful Jewish organization in the world with 6,000 rabbis all over the world that started there. The rabbi passed away in 1994, uh, but the reality is yeah, not really there anymore. So it's just where it all started. So uh, you have a lot of people fighting for control of the center, and it's really a you know, rundown neighborhood, almost all African-Americans, and a lot of Israelis, a lot of people sleep in the synagogue there, and the international movement is no longer headquartered there. So, uh, you know, kind of be like the alt-right or something like that, where you know, it's like, oh, it all started with Richard Spencer. No, point, no, 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 come on. No, no, this, no, you no. sound like you're running cover here. No, no, dude, dude. dude well, no, the 770 no, is not that important no, for the international I've been, movement. I've been, you have like, 6,000 no, rabbis <laughs> all over the world. They might sound like... No, 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 come on. No, no. By the way, I've been a guest. I've been to the synagogue 50 times. Right. So David, who actually knows something and has been to the synagogue 50 times, is imparting some information. And uh, Charles Johnson, Richard Spencer, and the other counter-Semites all want to accuse him of Hasbara. But there's nothing particularly, you know, Jewish and propagandist about what David's saying. David is relaying basic information, but uh, the other people on, on the stream just want to shut him down. Right? He's relaying some inconvenient truths. Right, here's a discussion which reveals the perils of the e-personality. Sure, go ahead. Hey, guys. Well, uh, Pax, yes. Yes, go Good ahead. to see you again, Richard. Uh, Good to talk Hi, to you. Pax. Hey, Meg. So, like, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, like, the title of the space because, you know, anonymity. I know I'm, like, semi-anonymous, but I do think that in terms of politics, kind of, in terms of real political change getting done, the internet is not really the place. Uh, I think the future of politics, especially with AI changing everything, is, is going to be real life. Um, I think the, the internet mainly 
what it is now, what it's been and what it's going to be is basically for education and entertainment, not so much for like actually getting policies passed. And I think this is what Trump people don't understand. They think like posting memes means that you're like winning when in reality you're posting a meme and laughing at the libs while they're like passing laws to crush you. So that's something that they need to understand. And uh, mm. I think I that when you look understand. at the successful political achievements of the so-called right, like the pro-life movement and the gun movement, th those are groups with actual real life presence. They're not online organizations, although they definitely have propaganda. They understand that to actually get laws passed, you have to go out in the real world. And I think that also connects to why the alt-right was so brutally crushed is because the alt-right was actually going out and you know causing a ruckus. And the system really did not appreciate that. And I think yes. they want a lot of people to stay online in terms of politics. Yeah, no, I get that. I mean, when, when, when online goes offline, I think some interesting things can happen. I mean, because Charlottesville was in many ways a kind of gathering of a lot of people who were connected online. And it went offline uh, and kind of off the rails uh, as well. And I think GA6 was an example of that times a thousand of all of these people hyped up on Q, hyped up on Stop the Steal stuff, and they went offline and immediately went way off the rails. Oh, that was why I requested to speak is, um, see, I started coming online around 2020 and I saw a lot of accounts and they were like PSYOPy accounts where they were like, Q people, it's like, where are they now? Like they were so big back then and they would be tweeting things like 1776, civil war is here and right. riling people up and now they're all gone. Where'd they all go? You know? They're on truth social now. They're underground. Yeah, it's a, uh... The, the, the so Q people definitely those... disappeared around, you know, when Trump lost. Funny coincidence. But it was like a big sign. Yeah. Basically. No, they're still around. They're on Truth Social for the most oh, yeah. part. Okay. What, what, what is the was... next thing? Okay. Let's go back to Q. So the alt right emerges in 2015. 2016, it is feeling itself. 2017, it is go increasingly going offline and going off the rails as well. And I would say by 2018, there was a general, you know, it was engaged in infighting and. In oh, come on, man. I'm trying to run a quality show here. You're breaking up. Don't let me over. down now. Come 2018 on, is infighting, but it's also when the censor hammer came down big time. That's so I'll just go on LTE. As, I, you know, it's very this this polar vortex has hit my uh, uh, my community, and uh, so I don't know if there's something going on with that, or just too many You're people are on the internet. Yeah, too many people might be on the internet as well, um, because everyone's stuck in their house due to. Uh, I hope everyone's uh, staying warm. Yes, cold. it is uh, very cold out there. Um, my car just does not work. It, it got too cold. Um, so hopefully, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. You'll thaw. The battery will start working. Again. Post through it. Post through it, Richard. Post through it. Yeah. Um, so in, in the fall of 2018, I started first hearing about QAnon. And I don't know when the first Q post was. It might have been in 2017, maybe early 18. And then in 2019, QAnon was getting proselytized for by Alex Jones and Infowars and Roseanne Barr and et cetera. It was reaching the boomers. It was going off 4chan and into the boomers' brains. And 2020, the compounded by COVID and lockdowns, it was going gangbusters. So remember, we're already in 2024. Like what is, if we assume this, which I think we should, which is that for Trump to win, there, there needs to be something extra. I think that the alt-right as a big tent was indispensable, in fact, towards Trump's election. I don't think he would have won, indeed, without the alt-right as a kind of unpaid PR firm that was going crazy, making Trump special, making him more than just a candidate. It was revolutionary and all of these hilarious videos, many of which did reach, um, you know, boomer voters and so on. And weren't just reaching, you know, some kid who wouldn't vote. Uh, I think the alt-right was actually integral in Donald Trump's election in 2016. I don't think he could would have been elected without him. It was that little extra something that pushed him across the goal line. Um, I think I would say the same thing for 2020. Now, Trump didn't win, of course. He did remarkably well. Um, the, the, maybe you could say liberal shenanigans.
Okay, I'm going to scroll through the chat. Here's a comment. Uh, Luke, what was it that Dennis Prager said to you or said in general or wrote in general that made you lose faith in him? No, it was more a matter of me losing faith in myself and recognizing that I was seeking in Dennis Prager you know, something that I should not have sought, you know, a, a guru. Some, he, he made me feel better, made me feel you know, more excited about life, that there was a path and a direction and army that I could join to do battle against evil. And as I came to see the, the normal human flaws in Dennis Prager's thinking, the ultimate recognition was that there was something broken in me that made me so desperate right, for, for meaning, for purpose, for excitement. And so it was really about me. It really, it wasn't anything that uh, Dennis Prager did. Look, aren't you glad that Dennis Prager brought you out of your hole? Yes, I may not be alive today. Right, eventually we all outgrow our teachers. Probably true. So Dennis Prager was always very kind to me. And he was particularly kind to me at a time when I was at my most desperate, most sad, most lonely. And he showed me a better way to live. And he gave me strength when I most needed strength. Uh, chat says, my mother had psychological problems and Dennis Prager hooked her into his cult too. So yeah, Dennis Prager led me out of the cave of hopelessness and despair and you know, brought me back to God and showed me the beauties of Judaism, and I have gratitude for that. Luke, can you summarize how you overcame chronic fatigue syndrome? Number one, a psychiatrist got me a prescription of Nadil, and within a day or two, I started feeling better. And within a couple of months, I was able to resume two-thirds of a normal life. So after almost six years of chronic fatigue syndrome, I was able to resume two-thirds of a normal life by early 1994, thanks to a psychiatrist prescribing Nardil. About uh, three years later, I was able to go off Nardil and still maintain my hold on two-thirds of a normal life. So I kind of limped through life at a two-thirds strength level from early 1994 until June of 2021, when I started taking beef organ capsules and within two weeks of taking beef organ capsules, so six capsules a day, all my chronic fatigue and other health problems disappeared. And so I've been in normal or better health ever since June of 2021 when I began regular intake of uh, beef organ capsules. And there's a comment, Zionist Jews cannot be trusted. Well, Zionist Jews have an agenda, just like uh, other groups that have an agenda, right? You just have to recognize what the agenda is, recognize you know, where you can trust and where you can't trust, where you have interests in common, and where you have significant conflicts of interest. So I'll keep scrolling through the chat. Meanwhile, play more. And again, with mail-in voting and all that kind of stuff, helped Biden get across the finish line, and Trump would have won. That, that's a fair point. But he did remarkably well. And that was in that was cooking for a year and a half, at least, if not two years before Trump got in office. So what is cooking now? Like what? OK, beautiful comment in the chat. Luke, uh, we love you. You've helped my life in many ways. So, yeah, I do have ways that I can help your life. In other situations, I might well be a detriment to your life. So there are situations where I have gifts and then there are other situations where I'm a detriment.
right? There are some things I'm good at, some things I'm bad at. I think I sometimes have something profound to say, and other times, not so much. Is QAnon just going to reemerge, or what? What is the, or is pizza, something like PizzaGate? Is the Epstein files going to be like PizzaGate? Like, what is cooking that is going to push Trump across the finish line? Or, you know, what will push Trump across the finish line? Events, my dear boy. Events. You know what will make Trump successful or a failure? Events, my dear boy. Events. Right? Depending on the circumstances, if the situation, if the circumstances running up to the election will put a priority on a strong hierarchical uh, right-wing traditional approach to, to the world, right? And there are some situations that are resolved much more effectively through hierarchy, right? Through a strong man or someone who appears like a strong man like Donald Trump, then Trump will win the election. The election is fought on uh, redistribution of economic resources and social welfare spending, right? Then in, in a time of low threat, Trump will lose. If the run-up to the election is a time of high threat, then Trump and Republicans will do well. If the run-up to the election is a time of low threat, then Trump and the Republicans will do poorly. Events, my dear boy, events. Good little segment here from Hoover Institute's Goodfellows program. Israel, the north of Israel, the east of Israel, the south of Israel. As you look at that map, what concerns you most in terms of this war escalating? Well, it, it already has escalated, and it's going to escalate more. And, and I think that's what we're going to see in, in this next year, because what you're seeing is on, on just after the third anniversary of the killing of Qasem Soleimani and Abu Mahdi al-Mohandas in Baghdad, uh, you're seeing the plan that Qasem Soleimani put into place. You know, you're seeing the activation of the so-called Ring of Fire around Israel. Israel's fighting essentially a five-front war uh, in Gaza, in the West Bank, uh, in, in Syria, uh, against a proxy army that Iran has assembled there, uh, and in southern Lebanon uh, against Hezbollah, and a kind of a longer-range fight as the Houthis are launching drones and, and missiles uh, from Yemen that have been supplied, obviously, by the, by the Iranians. So it's already a five-front war for Israel. Okay, I strongly disagree with this framing. It's not so much that Iran has assembled proxies, but various groups have found common interest with Iran, and Iran has helped out its allies, just as the United States helps out its allies. But the Houthis and Hamas and Hezbollah aren't just entities that Iran solely acts through, right? They have varying degrees of agency on their own. Israel, but what you're seeing is a connection across the region to what Soleimani has done in the so-called forward defense strategy, which is really a forward offense strategy in an effort to keep the entire Middle East enmeshed in conflict. To, so, so, so Iran's uh, neighbors can be perpetually weakened and Iran can, can pursue its, its, its hegemonic uh, agenda across the region. That involves pushing the United States out. And, and one, of the, one of the actions you, you didn't uh, mention, or maybe you did, Bill, but you went through them quickly. That was an excellent summary, is, is the strike uh, against a, a, a militia leader, Iran militia leader in Baghdad. And, right. and what you've seen is an intensification of, the, of actions on the part of Iranian, pro, Iranian proxies uh, against U.S. forces across the region, uh, over 100 attacks in, in, in the last uh, 90 days, uh, as, as well as political actions by an increasingly uh, sectarian, Shia-dominated government that's going to further alienate the Sunni Arab population and I think lead to a return of large-scale sectarian warfare uh, in, in Iraq, which Iran, I think, thinks is, is in its interest because it keeps that neighbor perpetually weak. The other big threat is to the Kurds uh, and, and the Kurdish regional government uh, in Iraq. So I could go on and on about this, but it, it's going to uh, Curious Gazelle has a comment. Is that pretty young woman, me, Luke Ford? Uh, I'm not going to 
No, no, it wasn't. But uh, Curious Gazelle could absolutely have an intoxicating effect on me. I, I cannot tell a lie. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Going to escalate because you know who's going to escalate it is Iran. And they're continuing to escalate it in large measure because we keep saying every time we do respond, oh, but we don't want it to escalate. Which to Iran is, hey, we've got permission to escalate them with impunity. Because that's what Iran, the only thing Iran fears is escalation based on our recognition that the return address is Tehran. So I, I think what's going to happen is the Biden administration, despite their deep reluctance to do it, is going to conclude that they have to respond directly against uh, Iran. And, and I think if they're smart, uh, they'll take advantage of the opportunity uh, to, to accomplish a range of objectives, uh, which would include setting back their missile and nuclear program at the same time. But I think that in the next year, you know, I know we're going to do predictions at the end, but I'm telling you, um, it's, 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 not a, it's not a hard prediction to make that this war is going to expand horizontally and I think also vertically in terms of, of, uh, of U.S. direct action against Iran. Mm -hmm. I agree with uh, nearly everything that HR said, except the last thing. I don't think the Biden administration will at any point uh, rise to the challenge that Iran poses. I think they've consistently pursued a policy of appeasement. Uh, they embarked on, to my mind, the unhinged strategy of trying to resuscitate the Iran nuclear deal. They did everything to encourage Iran, uh, to ease the financial pressure on it. And they are, I think, uh, reaping uh, the predictable harvest. I don't think they're about to change and get tough. Uh, and I think as a result, uh, what we should expect in the next couple of months is uh, a showdown between Israel and uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, and once again, I, I expect that the uh, US administration will uh, blow hot and cold. It might talk tough, but it won't do anything that really seriously hurts Iran. And that's going to leave a, a Israel in quite a weak uh, and vulnerable position because it will then have uh, presumably the remnants of Hamas still to contend with uh, in Gaza. Uh, it will have a very heavily armed Hezbollah in Lebanon that it will have to, to deal with instability in the West Bank and all the other issues that HR so eloquently outlined. So I fear that this ongoing weak strategy uh, of the Biden administration, which will continue throughout this year, will create uh, a very, very unstable situation and one that will be very dangerous for Israel. John? It seems to be a, um, a larger strategy, a larger habit. Uh, Ukraine, uh, well, um, we don't want to escalate. We don't want to provoke. We've basically uh, gone to, uh, you know, um, Putin gets to keep the parts he invaded, and, and that's stalemated because we didn't want to escalate or provoke. Here, too, that seems to be the, the mantra, don't escalate, don't provoke. Even to the point, you know, the Houthis sh uh, shoot missiles uh, into ships in the Red Sea, and we defend against the missiles, but we don't even shoot back to where the missiles were launched. In, in HR, you want to go right to Iran, but let's just start with, you know, no. how about where those missiles got launched? We send one back, yeah. which we're not even doing. And there's a, the, the, you know, this is part of the larger retreat around the world. You know, why are the Houthis still there? Uh, that that was a new one for me in the last week. Thinking, you know, we've we've retreated in Ukraine. We want to just stop stop in Israel and and um, uh, you know not escalate that. Um, isn't the most effective strategy against escalation at some point that you gotta fight back, and at some point that your objective is to win, not just to well, you guys can have the latest one. Let's not escalate it. And that habit of mind is the thing, uh, the one that I think uh, worries me the most. But it doesn't have to go HR. You know, you, you say go straight to Iraq and I'm sorry to Iran. I go, huh? Uh, but at, at least we could start um, fighting back in the small parts. And it also strikes me this this obsession with the nuclear deal. This is something we've talked about many times before. Why was the negotiation? We'll negotiate entirely about your nukes, but we're not going to even talk about your missiles, and we're not going to even talk about your uh, terrorist activities throughout the Middle East. You know, perhaps if the negotiations had been forget about the nukes, uh, but we're really, really mad about this stuff. 
that might have been more more productive. HR. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I I agree with all that, and I think what you're seeing is is that the perception of weakness is what is actually provocative here, and and uh, and you have the, the Biden administration, in addition to not enforcing, you know, the sta- the sanctions on Iran, which resulted in the transfer of some people think about eighty billion dollars to Iran, which guess where that went? Immediately went to to funding their their proxy wars and and funding groups like the like Houthis and Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and and Hezbollah. Uh, the Biden administration undesignated the Houthis as a terrorist organization um, when, when it came in as part of this effort, you know. To, to revive the nuclear deal uh, by by making the Iranians uh, feel as if we're trying to conciliate with one one of their proxy forces, uh, and under really this effort to try to negotiate uh, an end an end to the an end to the war in Yemen, but of course you know this idea that you can just negotiate and you see this with the president's recent statements about uh, about Israeli operations in, in Gaza uh, and and get it as a, a, an acceptable outcome without first changing the reality on the ground militarily is a, it's crazy it's a pipe dream I mean Israel has no option. But to destroy uh, Hamas at this stage, and as Neil's already alluded to, I, I agree, Neil. I think they've already made a decision. Israeli leaders have already made a decision to reinvade southern Lebanon because because I think they've recognized they cannot have you know, a hostile force. You know, like okay, that's the most important part of this show, All right? H.R. McMaster's valuation that Israel has already decided to invade southern Lebanon. So we're just counting down till this happens, and that is going to provoke such a major conflagration that uh, Israel may well use it as a justification or an opportunity to ethnically cleanse many Arabs out of Gaza and the West Bank. Hamas or the much more capable Hezbollah uh, directly on their borders. And remember, they've, they've already evacuated, I think about 90,000 people, is it, uh, Neil and John, uh, you know, out, uh, out of the, uh, the border areas with Lebanon. You know, th- those are families they want to get back, you know, and, and, and the only way to do it really with any uh, degree of security is going, to, is, is going to strip, is to strip Hezbollah's capabilities uh, out of southern Lebanon. And, and I know the U.S. government's trying to do everything they can to negotiate an alternative to that, but that's not going to work you know, because of the nature of Hezbollah. You know? and, and so I, I think that, again, it, it's almost as if we believe that we can negotiate a favorable outcome uh, without imposing costs, as you're suggesting, John, on these, uh, the, these adversaries and enemies that, are, that go beyond the cost they factor in when they so make- H.R. McMaster was Donald Trump's national security advisor, but he's much more hawkish than Donald Trump, much more eager to go to war. There's just this enormously well-funded, passionate, dedicated people in the national security industry promoting war against against Iran, which uh, I think is a mistake. I think it's a mistake to view the Houthis and Hezbollah and, and Hamas as simply agents of Iran, right? These are all different groups with some common interests, and sometimes they'll throw in together but they are not just automatic representatives of whatever it is that Iran wants. That would do it for me. i got to get rested. i got to get limber. i got to get outside and go for a nice walk for the big Dallas Cowboys-Green Bay Packers game coming up in one hour and 20 minutes. Until then, bye-bye.